Chapter 27 Percy We'll need some of your food. Percy shouldered his way around the old man and snatched stuff off the picnic table. A covered bowl of Thai noodles and mac and cheese sauce and a tubular pastry that looked like a combination burrito and cinnamon roll. Before he could lose control and smash the burrito in Phineas's face, Percy said, Come on, guys. He led his friends out of the parking lot. They stopped across the street. Percy took a deep breath, trying to calm down. The rain had slowed to a half-hearted drizzle. The cold mist felt good on his face. That man, Hazel smacked the side of a bus stop bench. He needs to die. Again. It was hard to tell in the rain, but she seemed to be blinking back tears. Her long, curly hair was plastered down the sides of her face. In the gray light, her gold eyes looked more like tin. Percy remembered how confident she'd acted when they first met, taking control of the situation with the Gorgons and ushering him to safety. She'd comforted him at the shrine of Neptune and made him feel welcome at camp. Now he wanted to return the favor, but he wasn't sure how. She looked lost, bedraggled, and thoroughly depressed. Percy wasn't surprised that she had come back from the underworld. He'd suspected that for a while, the way she avoided talking about her past, the way Nico D'Angelo had been so secretive and cautious. But that didn't change how Percy saw her. She seemed, well, alive, like a regular kid with a good heart, who deserved to grow up and have a future. She wasn't a ghoul like Phineas. We'll get him, Percy promised. He's nothing like you, Hazel. I don't care what he says. She shook her head. You don't know the whole story. I should have been sent to punishment. I, I'm just as bad. No, you're not. Frank balled his fists. He looked around like he was searching for anybody who might disagree with him, enemies he could hit for Hazel's sake. She's a good person, he yelled across the street. A few harpies squawked in the trees, but no one else paid them any attention. Hazel stared at Frank. She reached out tentatively as if she wanted to take his hand but was afraid he might evaporate. Frank, she stammered, I, I don't. Unfortunately, Frank seemed wrapped up in his own thoughts. He slung his spear off his back and gripped it uneasily. I could intimidate that old man, he offered. Maybe scare him. Frank, it's okay, Percy said. Let's keep that as a backup plan. But I don't think Phineas can be scared into cooperating. Besides, you've only got two more uses out of the spear, right? Frank scowled at the dragon's tooth point, which had grown back completely overnight. Yeah, I guess. Percy wasn't sure what the old seer had meant about Frank's family history, his great-grandfather destroying camp, his Argonaut ancestor, and the bit about a burned stick controlling Frank's life. But it had clearly shaken Frank up. Percy decided not to ask for explanations. He didn't want the big guy reduced to tears, especially in front of Hazel. I've got an idea. Percy pointed up the street. The red-feathered harpy went that way. Let's see if we can get her to talk to us. Hazel looked at the food in his hands. You're going to use that as bait? More like a peace offering, Percy said. Come on, just try to keep the other harpies from stealing this stuff, okay? Percy uncovered the Thai noodles and unwrapped the cinnamon burrito. Fragrant steam wafted into the air. They walked down the street, Hazel and Frank with their weapons out.
The harpies fluttered after them, perching on trees, mailboxes, and flagpoles, following the smell of food. Percy wondered what the mortals saw through the mist. Maybe they thought the harpies were pigeons and the weapons were lacrosse sticks or something. Maybe they just thought the Thai mac and cheese was so good it needed an armed escort. Percy kept a tight grip on the food. He'd seen how quickly the harpies could snatch things. He didn't want to lose his peace offering before he found the red-feathered harpy. Finally, he spotted her, circling above a stretch of parkland that ran for several blocks between rows of old stone buildings. Paths stretched through the park under huge maple and elm trees, past sculptures and playgrounds and shady benches. The place reminded Percy of... some other park. Maybe in his hometown? He couldn't remember, but it made him feel homesick. They crossed the street and found a bench to sit on, next to a big bronze sculpture of an elephant. Looks like Hannibal, Hazel said. Except it's Chinese, Frank said. My grandmother has one of those. He flinched. I mean, hers isn't twelve feet tall, but she imports stuff from China. We're Chinese. He looked at Hazel and Percy, who were trying hard not to laugh. Could I just die from embarrassment now? He asked. Don't worry about it, man, Percy said. Let's see if we can make friends with the harpy. He raised the Thai noodles and fanned the smell upward. Spicy peppers and cheesy goodness. The red harpy circled lower. We won't hurt you, Percy called up in a normal voice. We just want to talk. Thai noodles for a chance to talk, okay? The harpy streaked down in a flash of red and landed on the elephant statue. She was painfully thin. Her feathery legs were like sticks. Her face would have been pretty except for her sunken cheeks. She moved in jerky bird-like twitches, her coffee-brown eyes darting restlessly, her fingers clawing at her plumage, her earlobes, her shaggy red hair. Cheese, she muttered, looking sideways. Ella doesn't like cheese. Percy hesitated. Your name is Ella? Ella, Ayala, harpy in English and Latin. Ella doesn't like cheese. She said all that without taking a breath or making eye contact. Her hands snatched at her hair, her burlap dress, the raindrops, whatever moved. Quicker than Percy could blink, she lunged, snatched the cinnamon burrito, and appeared atop the elephant again. God, she's fast, Hazel said. And heavily caffeinated, Frank guessed. Ella sniffed the burrito. She nibbled at the edge and shuddered from head to foot, cawing like she was dying. Cinnamon is good, she pronounced. Good for harpies. Yum. She started to eat, but the bigger harpies swooped down. Before Percy could react, they began pummeling Ella with their wings, snatching at the burrito. No! Ella tried to hide under her wings as her sisters ganged up on her, scratching with their claws. No, she stuttered. No! Stop it, Percy yelled. He and his friends ran to help, but it was too late. A big yellow harpy grabbed the burrito and the whole flock scattered, leaving Ella cowering and shivering on top of the elephant. Hazel touched the harpy's foot. I'm so sorry. Are you okay? Ella poked her head out of her wings. She was still trembling, with her shoulders hunched. Percy could see the bleeding gash on her back where Phineas had hit her with the weed whacker. She picked at her feathers, pulling out tufts of plumage. So small, Ella, she stuttered angrily. Weak, Ella. No cinnamon for Ella. Only cheese. Frank glared across the street, 
where the other harpies were sitting in a maple tree tearing the burrito to shreds. We'll get you something else, he promised. Percy set down the tie noodles. He realized that Ella was different, even for a harpy. But after watching her get picked on, he was sure of one thing. Whatever else happened, he was going to help her. Ella, he said, we want to be your friends. We can get you more food, but... Friends, Ella said. Ten seasons, 1994 to 2004. She glanced sideways at Percy, then looked in the air and started reciting to the clouds. A half-blood of the eldest gods shall reach sixteen against all odds. Sixteen, your sixteen, page sixteen, mastering the art of French cooking, ingredients, bacon, butter. Percy's ears were ringing. He felt dizzy, like he just plunged a hundred feet underwater and back up again. Ella, what was that you said? Bacon. She caught a raindrop out of the air. Butter. No, before that. Those lines. I know those lines. Next to him, Hazel shivered. It does sound familiar. Like, I don't know, like a prophecy. Maybe it's something she heard Phineas say. At the name Phineas, Ella squawked in terror and flew away. Wait, Hazel called. I didn't mean... Oh, gods, I'm stupid. It's all right. Frank pointed. Look. Ella wasn't moving as quickly now. She flapped her way to the top of a three-story red brick building and scuttled out of sight over the roof. A single red feather fluttered down to the street. You think that's her nest? Frank squinted at the sign on the building. Multnomah County Library? Percy nodded. Let's see if it's open. They ran across the street and into the lobby. A library wouldn't have been Percy's first choice for some place to visit. With his dyslexia, he had enough trouble reading signs. A whole building full of books? That sounded about as much fun as Chinese water torture or getting his teeth extracted. As they jogged through the lobby, Percy figured Annabeth would like this place. It was spacious and brightly lit, with big vaulted windows. Books and architecture, that was definitely her. He froze in his tracks. Percy? Frank asked. What's wrong? Percy tried desperately to concentrate. Where had those thoughts come from? Architecture. Books. Annabeth had taken him to the library once, back home in... in... The memory faded. Percy slammed his fist into the side of a bookshelf. Percy? Hazel asked gently. He was so angry, so frustrated with his missing memories that he wanted to punch another bookshelf, but his friend's concerned faces brought him back to the present. I'm... I'm all right, he lied. Just got dizzy for a sec. Let's find a way to the roof. It took them a while, but they finally found a stairwell with roof access. At the top was a door with a handle alarm, but someone had propped it open with a copy of War and Peace. Outside, Ella the Harpy huddled in a nest of books under a makeshift cardboard shelter. Percy and his friends advanced slowly, trying not to scare her. Ella didn't pay them any attention. She picked at her feathers and muttered under her breath, like she was practicing lines for a play. Percy got within five feet and knelt down. Hi. Sorry we scared you. Look, I don't have much food, but... He took some of the macrobiotic jerky out of his pocket. Ella lunged and snatched it immediately. She huddled back in her nest, 
sniffing the jerky but sighed and tossed it away. N not from his table. Ella cannot eat. Sad. Jerky would be good for harpies. Not from... Oh, right, Percy said. That's part of the curse. You can only eat his food. There has to be a way, Hazel said. Photosynthesis, Ella muttered. Noun, biology, the synthesis of complex organic materials. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. What is she saying? Frank whispered. Percy stared at the mound of books around her. They all looked old and mildewed. Some had prices written in marker on the covers, like the library had gotten rid of them in a clearance sale. She's quoting books, Percy guessed. Farmer's Almanac, 1965, Ella said. Start breeding animals, January 26th. Ella, he said. Have you read all of these? She blinked. More, more downstairs, words, words calm Ella down. Words, words, words. Percy picked up a book at random, a tattered copy of A History of Horse Racing. Ella, do you remember the, um, third paragraph on page 62? Secretariat, Ella said instantly, favored three to two in the 1973 Kentucky Derby, finished at standing track record of one fifty-nine and two-fifths. Percy closed the book. His hands were shaking. Word for word. That's amazing. Hazel said. She's a genius chicken, Frank agreed. Percy felt uneasy. He was starting to form a terrible idea about why Phineas wanted to capture Ella, and it wasn't because she'd scratched him. Percy remembered that line she'd recited, a half-blood of the eldest gods. He was sure it was about him. Ella, he said, we're going to find a way to break the curse. Would you like that? It's impossible, she said, Recorded in English by Perry Como, 1970. Nothing's impossible, Percy said. Now look, I'm going to say his name. You don't have to run away. We're going to save you from the curse. We just need to figure out a way to beat Phineas. He waited for her to bolt, but she just shook her head vigorously. No, no, Phineas. Ella is quick, too quick for him. B but he wants to ch chain Ella. He hurts Ella. She tried to reach the gash on her back. Frank, Percy said, you have first aid supplies? On it. Frank brought out a thermos full of nectar and explained its healing properties to Ella. When he scooted closer, she recoiled and started to shriek. Then Hazel tried, and Ella let her pour some nectar on her back. The wound began to close. Hazel smiled. See? That's better. Phineas is bad, Ella insisted, and weed whackers. And cheese. Absolutely, Percy agreed. We won't let him hurt you again. We need to figure out how to trick him, though. You harpies must know him better than anybody. Is there any way we can trick him? N no, Ella said. Tricks are for kids. Fifty tricks to teach your dog. By Sophie Collins. Call number 636. Okay, Ella, Hazel spoke in a soothing voice, like she was trying to calm a horse. But does Phineas have any weaknesses? Blind. He's blind. Frank rolled his eyes, but Hazel continued patiently. Right. Besides that? Chance, she said. Games of chance. Two to one. Bad odds. Call or fold. 
Percy's spirits rose. You mean he's a gambler? Phineas sees big things, prophecies, fates, God stuff, not small stuff, random, exciting, and he is blind. Frank rubbed his chin. Any idea what she means? Percy watched the harpy pick at her burlap dress. He felt incredibly sorry for her, but he was also starting to realize just how smart she was. I think I get it, he said. Phineas sees the future. He knows tons of important events, but he can't see small things, like random occurrences, spontaneous games of chance. That makes gambling exciting for him. If we can tempt him into making a bet. Hazel nodded slowly. You mean if he loses, he has to tell us where Thanatos is. But what do we have to wager? What kind of game do we play? Something simple, with high stakes, Percy said. Like two choices, one you live, one you die. And the prize has to be something Phineas wants. I mean, besides Ella. That's off the table. Sight, Ella muttered. Sight is good for blind men. Healing. Nope, nope, Gia won't do that for Phineas. Gia keeps Phineas blind, dependent on Gia, yep. Frank and Percy exchanged a meaningful look. Gorgon's blood, they said simultaneously. What? Hazel asked. Frank brought out the two ceramic vials he'd retrieved from the little Tiber. Ella's a genius, he said, unless we die. Don't worry about that, Percy said. I've got a plan. Chapter 28 Percy The old man was right where they'd left him, in the middle of the food truck parking lot. He sat on his picnic bench with his bunny slippers propped up, eating a plate of greasy shish kebab. His weed whacker was at his side. His bathrobe was smeared with barbecue sauce. Welcome back, he called cheerfully. I hear the flutter of nervous little wings. You've brought me my harpy. She's here, Percy said, but she's not yours. Phineas sucked the grease off his fingers. His milky eyes seemed fixed on a point just above Percy's head. I see. Well, actually, I'm blind, so I don't see. Have you come to kill me, then? If so, good luck completing your quest. I've come to gamble. The old man's mouth twitched. He put down his shish kebab and leaned toward Percy. A gamble? How interesting. Information in exchange for the harpy? Winner take all? No, Percy said. The harpy isn't part of the deal. Phineas laughed. Really? Perhaps you don't understand her value. She's a person, Percy said. She isn't for sale. Oh, please. You're from the Roman camp, aren't you? Rome was built on slavery. Don't get all high and mighty with me. Besides, she isn't even human. She's a monster, a wind spirit, a minion of Jupiter. Ella squawked. Just getting her into the parking lot had been a major challenge. But now she started backing away, muttering, Jupiter, hydrogen and helium, 63 satellites, no minions, nope. Hazel put her arm around Ella's wings. She seemed to be the only one who could touch the harpy without causing lots of screaming and twitching. Frank stayed at Percy's side. He held his spear ready, as if the old man might charge them. Percy brought out the ceramic vials. I have a different wager. 
We've got two flasks of Gorgon's blood. One kills, one heals. They look exactly the same. Even we don't know which is which. If you choose the right one, it could cure your blindness. Phineas held out his hands eagerly. Let me feel them. Let me smell them. Not so fast, Percy said. First, you agree to the terms. Terms, Phineas was breathing shallowly. Percy could tell he was hungry to take the offer. Prophecy and sight. I'd be unstoppable. I could own this city. I'd build my palace here, surrounded by food trucks. I could capture that harpy myself. No, no, Ella said nervously. Nope, nope, nope. A villainous laugh is hard to pull off when you're wearing pink bunny slippers, but Phineas gave it his best shot. Very well, demigod. What are your terms? You get to choose a vial, Percy said. No uncorking, no sniffing before you decide. That's not fair. I'm blind. And I don't have your sense of smell, Percy countered. You can hold the vials, and I'll swear on the river sticks that they look identical. They're exactly what I told you. Gorgon's blood. One vial from the left side of the monster, one from the right. And I swear that none of us knows which is which. Percy looked back at Hazel. Uh, you're our underworld expert. With all this weird stuff going on with death, is an oath on the river Styx still binding? Yes, she said, without hesitation. To break such a vow, well, just don't do it. There are worse things than death. Phineas stroked his beard. So I choose which vial to drink. You have to drink the other one. We swear to drink at the same time. Right, Percy said. The loser dies, obviously, Phineas said. That kind of poison would probably keep even me from coming back to life. For a long time, at least. My essence would be scattered and degraded. So I'm risking quite a lot. But if you win, you get everything, Percy said. If I die, my friends will swear to leave you in peace and not take revenge. You'd have your sight back, which even Gia won't give you. The old man's expression soured. Percy could tell he'd struck a nerve. Phineas wanted to see. As much as Gia had given him, he resented being kept in the dark. If I lose, the old man said, I'll be dead, unable to give you information. How does that help you? Percy was glad he'd talked this through with his friends ahead of time. Frank had suggested the answer. You write down the location of Alcyonius's lair ahead of time, Percy said. Keep it to yourself, but swear on the river sticks it's specific and accurate. You also have to swear that if you lose and die, the harpies will be released from their curse. Those are high stakes, Phineas grumbled. You face death, Percy Jackson. Wouldn't it be simpler just to hand over the harpy? Not an option. Phineas smiled slowly. So you are starting to understand her worth. Once I have my sight, I'll capture her myself, you know. Whoever controls that harpy. Well, I was a king once. This gamble could make me a king again. You're getting ahead of yourself, Percy said. Do we have a deal? Phineas tapped his nose thoughtfully. I can't foresee the outcome. Annoying how that works. A completely unexpected gamble. It makes the future cloudy. 
But I can tell you this, Percy Jackson. A bit of free advice. If you survive today, you're not going to like your future. A big sacrifice is coming, and you won't have the courage to make it. That will cost you dearly. It will cost the world dearly. It might be easier if you just choose the poison. Percy's mouth tasted like Iris's sour green tea. He wanted to think the old man was just psyching him out, but something told him the prediction was true. He remembered Juno's warning when he'd chosen to go to Camp Jupiter. You will feel pain, misery, and loss beyond anything you've ever known. But you might have a chance to save your old friends and family. In the trees around the parking lot, the harpies gathered to watch as if they sensed what was at stake. Frank and Hazel studied Percy's face with concern. He'd assured them the odds weren't as bad as 50-50. He did have a plan. Of course, the plan could backfire. His chance of survival might be 100% or zero. He hadn't mentioned that. Do we have a deal? He asked again. Phineas grinned. I swear on the river sticks to abide by the terms, just as you have described them. Frank Jong, you're the descendant of an Argonaut. I trust your word. If I win, do you and your friend Hazel swear to leave me in peace and not seek revenge? Frank's hands were clenched so tight Percy thought he might break his gold spear, but he managed to grumble. I swear it on the river sticks. I also swear, Hazel said. Swear, Ella muttered. Swear not by the moon. The inconstant moon. Phineas laughed. In that case, find me something to write with. Let's get started. Frank borrowed a napkin and a pen from a food truck vendor. Phineas scribbled something on the napkin and put it in his bathrobe pocket. I swear this is the location of Alcyonius's lair. Not that you'll live long enough to read it. Percy drew his sword and swept all the food off the picnic table. Phineas sat on one side. Percy sat on the other. Phineas held out his hands. Let me feel the vials. Percy gazed at the hills in the distance. He imagined the shadowy face of a sleeping woman. He sent his thoughts into the ground beneath him and hoped the goddess was listening. Okay, Gia, he said. I'm calling your bluff. You say I'm a valuable pawn. You say you've got plans for me, and you're going to spare me until I make it north. Who's more valuable to you, me or this old man? Because one of us is about to die. Phineas curled his fingers in a grasping motion. Losing your nerve, Percy Jackson? Let me have them. Percy passed him the vials. The old man compared their weight. He ran his fingers along the ceramic surfaces, then he set them both on the table and rested one hand lightly on each. A tremor passed through the ground, a mild earthquake, just strong enough to make Percy's teeth chatter. Ella cawed nervously. The vial on the left seemed to shake slightly more than the one on the right. Phineas grinned wickedly. He closed his fingers around the left-hand vial. You are a fool, Percy Jackson. I choose this one. Now we drink. Percy took the vial on the right. His teeth were chattering. The old man raised his vial. A toast to the sons of Neptune. They both uncorked their vials and drank. 
Immediately, Percy doubled over, his throat burning, his mouth tasted like gasoline. Oh, gods, Hazel said behind him. Nope, Ella said. Nope, nope, nope. Percy's vision blurred. He could see Phineas grinning in triumph, sitting up straighter, blinking his eyes in anticipation. Yes, he cried. Any moment now, my sight will return. Percy had chosen wrong. He'd been stupid to take such a risk. He felt like broken glass was working its way through his stomach into his intestines. Percy! Frank gripped his shoulders. Percy, you can't die! He gasped for breath. Then suddenly his vision cleared. At the same moment, Phineas hunched over like he'd been punched. You... you can't! The old man wailed. Gia, you... you... He staggered to his feet and stumbled away from the table, clutching his stomach. I'm too valuable. Steam came out of his mouth. A sickly yellow vapor rose from his ears, his beard, his blind eyes. Unfair, he screamed. You tricked me. He tried to claw the piece of paper out of his robe pocket, but his hands crumbled, his fingers turning to sand. Percy rose unsteadily. He didn't feel cured of anything in particular. His memory hadn't magically returned. But the pain had stopped. No one tricked you, Percy said. You made your choice freely, and I hold you to your oath. The blind king wailed in agony. He turned in a circle, steaming and slowly disintegrating until there was nothing left but an old stained bathrobe and a pair of bunny slippers. Those? Frank said are the most disgusting spoils of war ever. A woman's voice spoke in Percy's mind. A gamble, Percy Jackson. It was a sleepy whisper, with just a hint of grudging admiration. You forced me to choose, and you are more important to my plans than the old seer. But do not press your luck. When your death comes... I promise it will be much more painful than Gorgon's blood. Hazel prodded the robe with her sword. There was nothing underneath, no sign that Phineas was trying to reform. She looked at Percy in awe. That was either the bravest thing I've ever seen, or the stupidest. Frank shook his head in disbelief. Percy, how did you know? You were so confident he'd choose the poison. Gia, Percy said. She wants me to make it to Alaska. She thinks... I'm not sure. She thinks she can use me as part of her plan. She influenced Phineas to choose the wrong vial. Frank stared in horror at the remains of the old man. Gia would kill her own servant rather than you? That's what you were betting on? Plans, Ella muttered. Plans and plots. The lady in the ground. Big plans for Percy. Macrobiotic jerky for Ella. Percy handed her the whole bag of jerky, and she squeaked with joy. Nope, 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 she muttered, half-singing. Phineas, nope. Food and words for Ella, yep. Percy crouched over the bathrobe and pulled the old man's note out of the pocket. It read, Hubbard Glacier. All that risk for two words. He handed the note to Hazel. I know where that is, she said. It's pretty famous, but we've got a long, long way to go. In the trees around the parking lot, the other harpies finally overcame their shock. 
they squawked with excitement and flew at the nearest food trucks, diving through the service windows and raiding the kitchens. Cooks shouted in many languages. Trucks shook back and forth. Feathers and food boxes flew everywhere. We'd better get back to the boat, Percy said. We're running out of time. Chapter 29 Hazel Even before she got on the boat, Hazel felt queasy. She kept thinking about Phineas with steam coming out of his eyes, his hands crumbling to dust. Percy had assured her that she wasn't like Phineas. But she was. She'd done something even worse than torment harpies. You started this whole thing, Phineas had said. If it weren't for you, Alcyonius wouldn't be alive. As the boat sped down the Columbia River, Hazel tried to forget. She helped Ella make a nest out of old books and magazines they liberated from the library's recycling bin. They hadn't really planned on taking the harpy with them, but Ella acted like the matter was decided. Friends, she muttered, ten seasons, 1994 to 2004, Friends melt Phineas and give Ella jerky. Ella will go with her friends. Now she was roosting comfortably in the stern, nibbling bits of jerky and reciting random lines from Charles Dickens and Fifty Tricks to Teach Your Dog. Percy knelt in the bow, steering them toward the ocean with his freaky mind-over-water powers. Hazel sat next to Frank on the center bench, their shoulders touching, which made her feel as jittery as a harpy. She remembered how Frank stood up for her in Portland, shouting, She's a good person, like he was ready to take on anybody who denied it. She remembered the way he had looked on the hillside in Mendocino, alone in a clearing of poisoned grass with his spear in hand, fires burning all around him and the ashes of three basilisks at his feet. A week ago, if someone had suggested that Frank was a child of Mars, Hazel would have laughed. Frank was much too sweet and gentle for that. She had always felt protective of him because of his clumsiness and his knack for getting into trouble. Since they'd left camp, she saw him differently. He had more courage than she'd realized. He was the one looking out for her. She had to admit that the change was kind of nice. The river widened into the ocean. The packs turned north. As they sailed, Frank kept her spirits up by telling her silly jokes. Why did the Minotaur cross the road? How many fawns does it take to change a light bulb? He pointed out buildings along the coastline that reminded him of places in Vancouver. The sky started to darken, the sea turning the same rusty color of Ella's wings. June 21st was almost over. The Feast of Fortuna would happen in the evening, exactly 72 hours from now. Finally, Frank brought out some food from his pack, sodas and muffins he'd scavenged from Phineas's table. He passed them around. It's okay, Hazel, he said quietly. My mom used to say you shouldn't try to carry a problem alone, but if you don't want to talk about it, that's okay. Hazel took a shaky breath. She was afraid to talk, not just because she was embarrassed. She didn't want to black out and slip into the past. You were right, she said. When you guessed I came back from the underworld, I'm, I'm an escapee. I shouldn't be alive. She felt like a dam had broken. The story flooded out. She explained how her mother had summoned Pluto and fallen in love with the god. She explained her mother's wish for all the riches in the earth, and how that had turned into Hazel's curse. She described her life in New Orleans, 
everything except her boyfriend, Sammy. Looking at Frank, she couldn't bring herself to talk about that. She described the voice and how Gia had slowly taken over her mother's mind. She explained how they had moved to Alaska, how Hazel had helped to raise the giant Alcyonius, and how she had died, sinking the island into Resurrection Bay. She knew Percy and Ella were listening, but she spoke mostly to Frank. When she had finished, she was afraid to look at him. She waited for him to move away from her, maybe tell her she was a monster after all. Instead, he took her hand. You sacrificed yourself to stop the giant from waking. I could never be that brave. She felt her pulse throbbing in her neck. It wasn't bravery. I let my mother die. I cooperated with Gia too long. I almost let her win. Hazel, said Percy, you stood up to a goddess all by yourself. You did the right. His voice trailed off as if he'd had an unpleasant thought. What happened in the underworld? I mean, after you died. You should have gone to Elysium. But if Nico brought you back... I didn't go to Elysium. Her mouth felt dry as sand. Please don't ask. But it was too late. She remembered her descent into the darkness, her arrival on the banks of the river Styx, and her consciousness began to slip. Hazel? Frank asked. Slip sliding away, Ella muttered. Number five, U.S. single, Paul Simon. Frank, go with her. Simon says, Frank, go with her. Hazel had no idea what Ella was talking about, but her vision darkened as she clung to Frank's hand. She found herself back in the underworld, and this time Frank was at her side. They stood in Karen's boat, crossing the sticks. Debris swirled in the dark waters, a deflated birthday balloon, a child's pacifier, a little plastic bride and groom from the top of a cake, all the remnants of human lives cut short. Where are we? Frank stood at her side, shimmering with a ghostly purple light as if he'd become a lar. It's my past. Hazel felt strangely calm. It's just an echo. Don't worry. The boatman turned and grinned. One moment he was a handsome African man in an expensive silk suit. The next moment he was a skeleton in a dark robe. "'Course you shouldn't worry,' he said with a British accent. He addressed Hazel, as if he couldn't see Frank at all. "'Told you I'd take you across, didn't I?' "'It's all right you don't have a coin. Wouldn't be proper, leaving Pluto's daughter on the wrong side of the river.' The boat slid onto a dark beach. Hazel led Frank to the black gates of Erebus. The spirits parted for them, sensing she was a child of Pluto. The giant three-headed dog Cerberus growled in the gloom, but he let them pass. Inside the gates, they walked into a large pavilion and stood before the judge's bench. Three black-robed figures in golden masks stared down at Hazel. Frank whimpered. Who? They'll decide my fate, she said. Watch. Just as before, the judges asked her no questions. They simply looked into her mind, pulling thoughts from her head and examining them like a collection of old photos. What a Gia, the first judge said, prevented Alcyonius from waking. But he raised the giant in the first place, the second judge argued, guilty of cowardice, weakness. She is young, said the third judge. Her mother's life hung in the balance. 
My mother. Hazel found the courage to speak. Where is she? What is her fate? The judges regarded her, their golden masks frozen in creepy smiles. Your mother. The image of Marie Levesque shimmered above the judges. She was frozen in time, hugging Hazel as the cave collapsed, her eyes shut tight. An interesting question, the second judge said. The division of fault. Yes, said the first judge. The child died for a noble cause. She prevented many deaths by delaying the giant's rise. She had courage to stand against the might of Gia. But she acted too late, the third judge said sadly. She is guilty of aiding and abetting an enemy of the gods. The mother influenced her, said the first judge. The child can have Elysium, eternal punishment for Marie Levesque. No, Hazel shouted. No, please, that's not fair. The judges tilted their heads in unison. Gold masks, Hazel thought. Gold has always been cursed for me. She wondered if the gold was poisoning their thoughts somehow, so that they'd never give her a fair trial. Beware, Hazel Levesque, the first judge warned. Would you take full responsibility? You could lay this guilt on your mother's soul. That would be reasonable. You were destined for great things. Your mother diverted your path. See what you might have been. Another image appeared above the judges. Hazel saw herself as a little girl grinning with her hands covered in finger paint. The image aged. Hazel saw herself growing up. Her hair became longer, her eyes sadder. She saw herself on her thirteenth birthday, riding across the fields on her borrowed horse. Sammy laughed as he raced after her. What are you running from? I'm not that ugly, am I? She saw herself in Alaska, trudging down Third Street in the snow and darkness on her way home from school. Then the image aged even more. Hazel saw herself at twenty. She looked so much like her mother, her hair gathered back in braids, her golden eyes flashing with amusement. She wore a white dress, a wedding dress. She was smiling so warmly. Hazel knew instinctively she must be looking at someone special, someone she loved. The sight didn't make her feel bitter. She didn't even wonder whom she would have married. Instead, she thought, My mother might have looked like this if she'd let go of her anger if Gia hadn't twisted her. You lost this life, the first judge said simply. Special circumstances. Elysium for you. Punishment for your mother. No, Hazel said. No, it wasn't all her fault. She was misled. She loved me. At the end, she tried to protect me. Hazel, Frank whispered. What are you doing? She squeezed his hand urging him to be silent. The judges paid him no attention. Finally, the second judge sighed. No resolution. Not enough good. Not enough evil. The blame must be divided, the first judge agreed. Both souls will be consigned to the fields of Asphodel. I'm sorry, Hazel of Esk. You could have been a hero. She passed through the pavilion into yellow fields that went on forever. She led Frank through a crowd of spirits to a grove of black poplar trees. You gave up 
Elysium, Frank said in amazement. So your mother wouldn't suffer? She didn't deserve punishment, Hazel said. But what happens now? Nothing, Hazel said. Nothing. For all eternity. They drifted aimlessly. Spirits around them chattered like bats, lost and confused, not remembering their past or even their names. Hazel remembered everything. Perhaps that was because she was a daughter of Pluto, but she never forgot who she was or why she was there. Remembering made my afterlife harder, she told Frank, who still drifted next to her as a glowing purple lar. So many times I tried to walk to my father's palace. She pointed to a large black castle in the distance. I could never reach it. I can't leave the fields of Asphodel. Did you ever see your mother again? Hazel shook her head. She wouldn't know me, even if I could find her. These spirits, it's like an eternal dream for them, an endless trance. This is the best I could do for her. Time was meaningless, but after an eternity, she and Frank sat together under a black poplar tree, listening to the screams from the fields of punishment. In the distance, under the artificial sunlight of Elysium, the Isles of the Blessed glittered like emeralds in a sparkling blue lake. White sails cut across water, and the souls of great heroes basked on the beaches in perpetual bliss. You didn't deserve Asphodel, Frank protested. You should be with the heroes. This is just an echo, Hazel said. We'll wake up, Frank. It only seems like forever. That's not the point, he protested. Your life was taken from you. You were going to grow up to be a beautiful woman. You... His face turned a darker shade of purple. You were going to marry someone, he said quietly. You would have had a good life. You lost all that. Hazel swallowed back a sob. It hadn't been this hard in Asphodel the first time. When she was on her own, having Frank with her made her feel so much sadder but she was determined not to get angry about her fate. Hazel thought about that image of herself as an adult, smiling and in love. She knew it wouldn't take much bitterness to sour her expression and make her look exactly like Queen Marie. I deserve better, her mother always said. Hazel couldn't allow herself to feel that way. I'm sorry, Frank, she said. I think your mother was wrong. Sometimes sharing a problem doesn't make it easier to carry. But it does. Frank slipped his hand into his coat pocket. In fact, since we've got eternity to talk, there's something I want to tell you. He brought out an object wrapped in cloth, about the same size as a pair of glasses. When he unfolded it, Hazel saw a half-burned piece of driftwood, glowing with purple light. She frowned. What is... Then the truth hit her, as cold and harsh as a blast of winter wind. Phineas said your life depends on a burned stick. It's true, Frank said. This is my lifeline, literally. He told her how the goddess Juno had appeared when he was a baby, how his grandmother had snatched the piece of wood from the fireplace. Grandmother said I had gifts, some talent we got from our ancestor, the Argonaut. That and my dad's being Mars... He shrugged. I'm supposed to be too powerful or something. That's why my life can burn up so easily. 
Iris said I would die holding this, watching it burn. Frank turned the piece of tinder in his fingers. Even in his ghostly purple form, he looked so big and sturdy. Hazel figured he would be huge when he was an adult, as strong and healthy as an ox. She couldn't believe his life depended on something as small as a stick. Frank, how can you carry it around with you? She asked. Aren't you terrified something will happen to it? That's why I'm telling you. He held out the firewood. I know it's a lot to ask, but would you keep it for me? Hazel's head spun. Until now, she'd accepted Frank's presence in her blackout. She'd led him along, numbly replaying her past, because it seemed only fair to show him the truth. But now she wondered if Frank was really experiencing this with her, or if she was just imagining his presence. Why would he trust her with his life? Frank, she said, you know who I am. I'm Pluto's daughter. Everything I touch goes wrong. Why would you trust me? You're my best friend. He placed the firewood in her hands. I trust you more than anybody. She wanted to tell him he was making a mistake. She wanted to give it back. But before she could say anything, a shadow fell over them. Our ride is here, Frank guessed. Hazel had almost forgotten she was reliving her past. Nico D'Angelo stood over her in his black overcoat, his Stygian iron sword at his side. He didn't notice Frank, but he locked eyes with Hazel and seemed to read her whole life. You're different, he said, a child of Pluto. You remember your past. Yes, Hazel said, and you're alive. Nico studied her like he was reading a menu, deciding whether or not to order. I'm Nico D'Angelo, he said. I came looking for my sister. Death has gone missing. So I thought... I thought I could bring her back and no one would notice. Back to life? Hazel asked. Is that possible? It should have been, Nico sighed. But she's gone. She chose to be reborn into a new life. I'm too late. I'm sorry. He held out his hand. You're my sister, too. You deserve another chance. Come with me. Chapter 30 Hazel Hazel! Percy was shaking her shoulder. Wake up! We've reached Seattle. She sat up groggily, squinting in the morning sunlight. Frank! Frank groaned, rubbing his eyes. Did we just... Was I just... You both passed out, Percy said. I don't know why, but Ella told me not to worry about it. She said you were... sharing? Sharing, Ella agreed. She crouched in the stern, preening her wing feathers with her teeth, which didn't look like a very effective form of personal hygiene. She spit out some red fluff. Sharing is good. No more blackouts. Biggest American blackout, August 14, 2003. Hazel shared. No more blackouts. Percy scratched his head. Yeah, we've been having conversations like that all night. I still don't know what she's talking about. Hazel pressed her hand against her coat pocket. She could feel the piece of firewood, wrapped in cloth. She looked at Frank. You were there. He nodded. He didn't say anything, but his expression was clear. He'd meant what he said. He wanted her to keep the piece of tinder safe. She wasn't sure whether she felt honored or scared. No one had ever trusted her with something so important.
Wait, Percy said. You mean you guys shared a blackout? Are you guys both going to pass out from now on? Nope, Ella said. Nope, nope, nope. No more blackouts. More books for Ella. Books in Seattle. Hazel gazed over the water. They were sailing through a large bay, making their way toward a cluster of downtown buildings. Neighborhoods rolled across a series of hills. From the tallest one rose an odd white tower with a saucer on the top, like a spaceship from the old Flash Gordon movie Sammy used to love. No more blackouts, Hazel thought. After enduring them for so long, the idea seemed too good to be true. How could Ella be sure they were gone? Yet Hazel did feel different, more grounded, as if she wasn't trying to live in two time periods anymore. Every muscle in her body began to relax. She felt as if she'd finally slipped out of a lead jacket she'd been wearing for months. Somehow, having Frank with her during the blackout had helped. She'd relived her entire past right through to the present. Now all she had to worry about was the future, assuming she had one. Percy steered the boat toward the downtown docks. As they got closer, Ella scratched nervously at her nest of books. Hazel started to feel edgy, too. She wasn't sure why. It was a bright, sunny day, and Seattle looked like a beautiful place, with inlets and bridges, wooded islands dotting the bay, and snow-capped mountains rising in the distance. Still, she felt as if she were being watched. Um, why are we stopping here? she asked. Percy showed them the silver ring on his necklace. Raina has a sister here. She asked me to find her and show her this. Raina has a sister? Frank asked, like the idea terrified him. Percy nodded. Apparently, Raina thinks her sister could send help for the camp. Amazons, Ella muttered. Amazon country. Hmm, Ella will find libraries instead. Doesn't like Amazons. Fierce, shields, swords, pointy. Ouch. Frank reached for his spear. Amazons? Like, female warriors? That would make sense, Hazel said. If Raina's sister is also a daughter of Bologna, I can see why she'd join the Amazons. But is it safe for us to be here? Nope, 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 Ella said. Get books instead. No Amazons. We have to try, Percy said. I promised Raina. Besides, the Pax isn't doing too great. I've been pushing it pretty hard. Hazel looked down at her feet. Water was leaking between the floorboards. Oh, yeah, Percy agreed. We'll either need to fix it or find a new boat. I'm pretty much holding it together with my willpower at this point. Ella, do you have any idea where we can find the Amazons? And, um, Frank said nervously, they don't, like, kill men on sight, do they? Ella glanced at the downtown docks, only a few hundred yards away. Ella will find friends later. Ella will fly away now. And she did. Well... Frank picked a single red feather out of the air. That's encouraging. They docked at the wharf. They barely had time to unload their supplies before the packs shuddered and broke into pieces. Most of it sank, leaving only a board with a painted eye and another with the letter P bobbing in the waves. Guess we're not fixing it, Hazel said. What now? Percy stared at the steep hills of downtown Seattle. We hope the Amazons will help. They explored for hours. They found some great salty caramel chocolate at a candy store. They bought some coffee so strong Hazel's head felt like a vibrating gong. 
They stopped at a sidewalk cafe and had some excellent grilled salmon sandwiches. Once they saw Ella zooming between high-rise towers, a large book clutched in each foot. But they found no Amazons. All the while, Hazel was aware of the time ticking by. June 22nd now, and Alaska was still a long way away. Finally, they wandered south of downtown, into a plaza surrounded by smaller glass and brick buildings. Hazel's nerves started tingling. She looked around, sure she was being watched. There, she said. The office building on their left had a single word etched on the glass doors. Amazon. Oh, Frank said. Oh, no, Hazel, that's a modern thing. They're a company, right? They sell stuff on the Internet. They're not actually Amazons. Unless... Percy walked through the doors. Hazel had a bad feeling about this place, but she and Frank followed. The lobby was like an empty fish tank, glass walls, a glossy black floor, a few token plants, and pretty much nothing else. Against the back wall, a black stone staircase led up and down. In the middle of the room stood a young woman in a black pantsuit with long auburn hair and a security guard's earpiece. Her name tag said... Kinsey. Her smile was friendly enough, but her eyes reminded Hazel of the policemen in New Orleans who used to patrol the French Quarter at night. They always seemed to look through you, as if they were thinking about who might attack them next. Kinsey nodded at Hazel, ignoring the boys. May I help you? Um, I hope so, Hazel said. We're looking for Amazons. Kinsey glanced at Hazel's sword, then Frank's spear though neither should have been visible through the mist. This is the main campus for Amazon, she said cautiously. Did you have an appointment with someone, or... Hilla, Percy interrupted. We're looking for a girl named... Kinsey moved so fast, Hazel's eyes almost couldn't follow. She kicked Frank in the chest and sent him flying backward across the lobby. She pulled a sword out of thin air, swept Percy off his feet with the flat of the blade, and pressed the point under his chin. Too late, Hazel reached for her sword. A dozen more girls in black flooded up the staircase, swords in hand, and surrounded her. Kinsey glared down at Percy. First rule, males don't speak without permission. Second rule, trespassing on our territory is punishable by death. You'll meet Queen Hilla, all right. She'll be the one deciding your fate. The Amazons confiscated the trio's weapons and marched them down so many flights of stairs, Hazel lost count. Finally, they emerged in a cavern so big it could have accommodated ten high schools, sports fields, and all. Stark fluorescent lights glowed along the rock ceiling. Conveyor belts wound through the room like water slides, carrying boxes in every direction. Aisles of metal shelves stretched out forever, stacked high with crates of merchandise. Cranes hummed and robotic arms whirred, folding cardboard boxes, packing shipments, and taking things on and off the belts. Some of the shelves were so tall they were only accessible by ladders and catwalks, which ran across the ceiling like theater scaffolding. Hazel remembered newsreels she'd seen as a child. She'd always been impressed by the scenes of factories building planes and guns for the war effort, hundreds and hundreds of weapons coming off the line every day but that was nothing compared to this. And almost all the work was being done by computers and robots. 
The only humans Hazel could see were some black-suited security women patrolling the catwalks and some men in orange jumpsuits, like prison uniforms, driving forklifts through the aisles, delivering more pallets of boxes. The men wore iron collars around their necks. You keep slaves? Hazel knew it might be dangerous to speak, but she was so outraged she couldn't stop herself. The men? Kinsey snorted. They're not slaves. They just know their place. Now move. They walked so far, Hazel's feet began to hurt. She thought they must surely be getting to the end of the warehouse when Kinsey opened a large set of double doors and led them into another cavern, just as big as the first. The underworld isn't this big, Hazel complained, which probably wasn't true, but it felt that way to her feet. Kinsey smiled smugly. You admire our base of operations? Yes, our distribution system is worldwide. It took many years and most of our fortune to build. Now, finally, we're turning a profit. The mortals don't realize they are funding the Amazon kingdom. Soon we'll be richer than any mortal nation. Then, when the weak mortals depend on us for everything, the revolution will begin. What are you going to do? Frank grumbled. Cancel free shipping? A guard slammed the hilt of her sword into his gut. Percy tried to help him, but two more guards pushed him back at sword point. You'll learn respect, Kinsey said. It's males like you who have ruined the mortal world. The only harmonious society is one run by women. We are stronger, wiser. More humble, Percy said. The guards tried to hit him, but Percy ducked. Stop it, Hazel said. Surprisingly, the guards listened. Hilla is going to judge us, right? Hazel asked. So take us to her. We're wasting time. Kinsey nodded. Perhaps you're right. We have more important problems. And time. Time is definitely an issue. What do you mean? Hazel asked. A guard grunted. We could take them straight to Otrera. Might win her favor that way. No, Kinsey snarled. I'd sooner wear an iron collar and drive a forklift. Hilla is queen. Until tonight, another guard muttered. Kinsey gripped her sword. For a second, Hazel thought the Amazons might start fighting one another, but Kinsey seemed to get her anger under control. Enough, she said. Let's go. They crossed a lane of forklift traffic, navigated a maze of conveyor belts, and ducked under a row of robotic arms that were packing up boxes. Most of the merchandise looked pretty ordinary. Books, electronics, baby diapers. But against one wall sat a war chariot with a big barcode on the side. Hanging from the yoke was a sign that read, Only one left in stock. Order soon. More on the way. Finally, they entered a smaller cavern that looked like a combination loading zone and throne room. The walls were lined with metal shelves six stories high decorated with war banners, painted shields, and the stuffed heads of dragons, hydras, giant lions, and wild boars. Standing guard along either side were dozens of forklifts modified for war. An iron-collared male drove each machine, but an Amazon warrior stood on a platform and back, manning a giant mounted crossbow. The prongs of each forklift had been sharpened into oversized sword blades, the shelves in this room were stacked with cages containing live animals. Hazel couldn't believe what she was seeing. Black mastiffs, giant eagles, 
a lion-eagle hybrid that must have been a griffin, and a red ant the size of a compact car. She watched in horror as a forklift zipped into the room, picked up a cage with a beautiful white pegasus, and sped away while the horse whinnied in protest. What are you doing to that poor animal? Hazel demanded. Kinsey frowned. The pegasus? It'll be fine. Someone must have ordered it. The shipping and handling charges are steep, but... You can buy a pegasus online? Percy asked. Kinsey glared at him. Obviously you can't, male. But Amazons can. We have followers all over the world. They need supplies. This way. At the end of the warehouse was a dais constructed from pallets of books, stacks of vampire novels, walls of James Patterson thrillers, and a throne made from about a thousand copies of something called The Five Habits of Highly Aggressive Women. At the base of the steps, several Amazons in camouflage were having a heated argument while a young woman, Queen Hilla, Hazel assumed, watched and listened from her throne. Hilla was in her twenties, lithe and lean as a tiger. She wore a black leather jumpsuit and black boots. She had no crown, but around her waist was a strange belt made of interlocking gold links, like the pattern of a labyrinth. Hazel couldn't believe how much she looked like Reyna, a little older, perhaps, but with the same long black hair, the same dark eyes, and the same hard expression, like she was trying to decide which of the Amazons before her most deserved death. Kinsey took one look at the argument and grunted with distaste. Otrera's agents spreading their lies. What? Frank asked. Then Hazel stopped so abruptly the guards behind her stumbled. A few feet from the queen's throne, two Amazons guarded a cage. Inside was a beautiful horse. Not the winged kind, but a majestic and powerful stallion with a honey-colored coat and a black mane. His fierce brown eyes regarded Hazel, and she could swear he looked impatient, as if thinking, about time you got here. It's him, Hazel murmured. Him who? Percy asked. Kinsey scowled in annoyance, but when she saw where Hazel was looking, her expression softened. Ah, yes, beautiful, isn't he? Hazel blinked to make sure she wasn't hallucinating. It was the same horse she'd chased in Alaska. She was sure of it. But that was impossible. No horse could live that long. Is he? Hazel could hardly control her voice. Is he for sale? The guards all laughed. That's Orion, Kinsey said patiently, as if she understood Hazel's fascination. He's a royal treasure of the Amazons, to be claimed only by our most courageous warrior, if you believe the prophecy. Prophecy? Hazel asked. Kinsey's expression became pained, almost embarrassed. Never mind. But no, he's not for sale. Then why is he in a cage? Kinsey grimaced. Because he is difficult. Right on cue, the horse slammed his head against the cage door. The metal bars shuddered and the guards retreated nervously. Hazel wanted to free that horse. She wanted it more than anything she had ever wanted before. But Percy, Frank, and a dozen Amazon guards were staring at her, so she tried to mask her emotions. Just asking, she managed. Let's see the queen. The argument at the front of the room grew louder. 
Finally, the queen noticed Hazel's group approaching, and she snapped, Enough! The arguing Amazons shut up immediately. The queen waved them aside and beckoned Kinsey forward. Kinsey shoved Hazel and her friends toward the throne. My queen, these demigods... The queen shot to her feet. You! She glared at Percy Jackson with murderous rage. Percy muttered something in ancient Greek that Hazel was pretty sure the nuns at St. Agnes wouldn't have liked. Clipboard, he said. Spa. Pirates. This made no sense to Hazel, but the queen nodded. She stepped down from her dais of bestsellers and drew a dagger from her belt. You were incredibly foolish to come here, she said. You destroyed my home. You made my sister and me exiles and prisoners. Percy, Frank said uneasily, what's the scary woman with the dagger talking about? Cersei's Island, Percy said. I just remembered. The Gorgon's blood. Maybe it's starting to heal my mind. The Sea of Monsters. Hilla. She welcomed us at the docks, took us to see her boss. Hilla worked for the sorceress. Hilla bared her perfect white teeth. Are you telling me you've had amnesia? You know, I might actually believe you. Why else would you be stupid enough to come here? We've come in peace, Hazel insisted. What did Percy do? Peace? The queen raised her eyebrows at Hazel. What did he do? This male destroyed Cersei's school of magic. Cersei turned me into a guinea pig, Percy protested. No excuses, Hilla said. Cersei was a wise and generous employer. I had room and board, a good health plan, dental, pet leopards, free potions, everything. And this demigod with his friend, the blonde. Annabeth. Percy tapped his forehead like he wanted the memories to come back faster. That's right. I was there with Annabeth. You released our captives, Blackbeard and his pirates. She turned to Hazel. Have you ever been kidnapped by pirates? It isn't fun. They burned our spot to the ground. My sister and I were their prisoners for months. Fortunately, we were daughters of Bologna. We learned to fight quickly. If we hadn't... She shuddered. Well, the pirates learned to respect us. Eventually, we made our way to California, where we... She hesitated as if the memory was painful. Where my sister and I parted ways. She stepped toward Percy until they were nose to nose. She ran her dagger under his chin. Of course, I survived and prospered. I have risen to be queen of the Amazons, so perhaps I should thank you. You're welcome, Percy said. The queen dug her knife in a little deeper. Never mind. I think I'll kill you. Wait, Hazel yelped. Raina sent us. Your sister. Look at the ring on his necklace. Hilla frowned. She lowered her knife to Percy's necklace until the point rested on the silver ring. The color drained from her face. Explain this, she glared at Hazel. Quickly. Hazel tried. She described Camp Jupiter. She told the Amazons about Reyna being their preter and the army of monsters that was marching south. 
She told them about their quest to free Thanatos in Alaska. As Hazel talked, another group of Amazons entered the room. One was taller and older than the rest, with plaited silver hair and fine silk robes like a Roman matron. The other Amazons made way for her, treating her with such respect that Hazel wondered if she was Hilla's mother, until she noticed how Hilla and the older woman stared daggers at each other. So we need your help, Hazel finished her story. Raina needs your help. Hilla gripped Percy's leather cord and yanked it off his neck, beads, ring, probatio tablet, and all. Raina, that foolish girl. Well, the older woman interrupted. Romans need our help? She laughed, and the Amazons around her joined in. How many times did we battle the Romans in my day? The woman asked. How many times have they killed our sisters in battle? When I was queen... Oh, Trera, Hilla interrupted. You are here as a guest. You are not queen anymore. The older woman spread her hands and made a mocking bow. As you say, at least until tonight. But I speak the truth, Queen Hilla. She said the word like a taunt. I've been brought back by the Earth Mother herself. I bring tidings of a new war. Why should Amazons follow Jupiter, that foolish king of Olympus, when we can follow a queen? When I take command, if you take command, Hilla said, but for now, I am queen. My word is law. I see. Otrera looked at the assembled Amazons, who were standing very still, as if they'd found themselves in a pit with two wild tigers. Have we become so weak that we listen to male demigods? Will you spare the life of this son of Neptune, even though he once destroyed your home? Perhaps you'll let him destroy your new home, too. Hazel held her breath. The Amazons looked back and forth between Hilla and Otrera, watching for any sign of weakness. I will pass judgment, Hilla said in an icy tone. Once I have all the facts, that is how I rule, by reason, not fear. First, I will talk with this one. She jabbed a finger toward Hazel. It is my duty to hear out a female warrior before I sentence her or her allies to death. That is the Amazon way. Or have your years in the underworld muddled your memory, Otrera? The older woman sneered, but she didn't try to argue. Hilla turned to Kinsey. Take these males to the holding cells. The rest of you, leave us. Otrera raised her hand to the crowd. As our queen commands. But any of you who would like to hear more about Gia and our glorious future with her, come with me. About half of the Amazons followed her out of the room. Kinsey snorted with disgust. Then she and her guards hauled Percy and Frank away. Soon Hilla and Hazel were alone except for the queen's personal guards. At Hilla's signal, even they moved out of earshot. The queen turned toward Hazel. Her anger dissolved, and Hazel saw desperation in her eyes. The queen looked like one of her caged animals being whisked off on a conveyor belt. We must talk, Hilla said. We don't have much time. By midnight, I will most likely be dead.
Chapter 31 Hazel Hazel considered making a run for it. She didn't trust Queen Hilla, and she certainly didn't trust that other lady, Otrera. Only three guards were left in the room. All of them kept their distance. Hilla was armed with just a dagger. This deep underground, Hazel might be able to cause an earthquake in the throne room or summon a big pile of schist or gold. If she could cause a distraction, she might be able to escape and find her friends. Unfortunately, she'd seen the Amazons fight. Even though the queen had only a dagger, Hazel suspected she could use it pretty well. And Hazel was unarmed. They hadn't searched her, which meant, thankfully, they hadn't taken Frank's firewood from her coat pocket. But her sword was gone. The queen seemed to be reading her thoughts. Forget about escape. Of course, we'd respect you for trying. But we'd have to kill you. Thanks for the warning, Hilla shrugged. The least I can do. I believe you come in peace. I believe Reyna sent you. But you won't help? The queen studied the necklace she'd taken from Percy. It's complicated, she said. Amazons have always had a rocky relationship with other demigods, especially male demigods. We fought for King Priam in the Trojan War, but Achilles killed our queen, Penthesilea. Years before that, Hercules stole Queen Hippolyta's belt. This belt I'm wearing. It took us centuries to recover it. Long before that, at the very beginning of the Amazon nation, a hero named Bellerophon killed our first queen, Otrera. You mean the lady who just left? Yes. Otrera, our first queen, daughter of Ares. Mars? Hilla made a sour face. No, definitely Ares. Otrera lived long before Rome, in a time when all demigods were Greek. Unfortunately, some of our warriors still prefer the old ways. Children of Ares. They are always the worst. The old ways. Hazel had heard rumors about Greek demigods. Octavian believed they existed and were secretly plotting against Rome. But she'd never really believed it. Even when Percy came to camp, he just didn't strike her as an evil, scheming Greek. You mean the Amazons are a mix, Greek and Roman? Hilla continued to examine the necklace, the clay beads, the probatio tablet. She slipped Raina's silver ring off the cord and put it on her own finger. I suppose they don't teach you about that at Camp Jupiter. The gods have many aspects, Mars, Ares, Pluto, Hades. Being immortal, they tend to accumulate personalities. They are Greek, Roman, American, a combination of all the cultures they've influenced over the eons. Do you understand? I... I'm not sure. Are all Amazons demigods? The queen spread her hands. We all have some immortal blood, but many of our warriors are descended from demigods. Some have been Amazons for countless generations. Others are children of minor gods. Kinsey, the one who brought you here, is the daughter of a nymph. Ah, oh, here she is now. The girl with the auburn hair approached the queen and bowed. The prisoners are safely locked away, Kinsey reported. But... Yes, the queen asked. Kinsey swallowed like she had a bad taste in her mouth. Otrera made sure her followers are guarding the cells. I'm sorry, my queen. Hilla pursed her lips. No matter. Stay with us, Kinsey. We were just talking about our, uh situation. Otrera, Hazel guessed. 
Gia brought her back from the dead to throw you Amazons into civil war. The queen exhaled. If that was her plan, it is working. Otrera is a legend among our people. She plans to take back the throne and lead us to war against the Romans. Many of my sisters will follow her. Not all, Kinsey grumbled. But Otrera is a spirit, Hazel said. She isn't even... Real? The queen studied Hazel carefully. I worked with the sorceress Circe for many years. I know a returned soul when I see one. When did you die, Hazel? 1920? 1930? 1942, Hazel said. But... but I wasn't sent by Gia. I came back to stop her. This is my second chance. Your second chance... Hilla gazed at the rows of battle forklifts, now empty. I know about second chances. That boy, Percy Jackson. He destroyed my old life. You wouldn't have recognized me back then. I wore dresses and makeup. I was a glorified secretary, an accursed Barbie doll. Kinsey made a three-fingered claw over her heart, like the voodoo gestures Hazel's mom once used for warding off the evil eye. Circe's island was a safe place for Reyna and me, the queen continued. We were daughters of the war goddess, Bologna. I wanted to protect Reyna from all that violence. Then Percy Jackson unleashed the pirates. They kidnapped us, and Reyna and I learned to be tough. We found out that we were good with weapons. The past four years, I've wanted to kill Percy Jackson for what he made us endure. But Reyna became the praetor of Camp Jupiter. Hazel said. You became the queen of the Amazons. Maybe this was your destiny. Hilla fingered the necklace in her hand. I may not be queen for much longer. You will prevail, Kinsey insisted. As the fates decree, Hilla said without enthusiasm. You see, Hazel, Otrera has challenged me to a duel. Every Amazon has that right. Tonight at midnight, we'll battle for the throne. But you're good, right? Hazel asked. Hilla managed a dry smile. Good, yes. But Otrera is the founder of the Amazons. She's a lot older. Maybe she's out of practice, having been dead for so long. I hope you're right, Hazel. You see, it's a battle to the death. She waited for that to sink in. Hazel remembered what Phineas had said in Portland how he had had a shortcut back from death, thanks to Gia. She remembered how the Gorgons had tried to reform in the Tiber. Even if you kill her, Hazel said, she'll just come back. As long as Thanatos is chained, she won't stay dead. Exactly, Hilla said. Otrera has already told us that she can't die, so even if I manage to defeat her tonight, she'll simply return and challenge me again tomorrow. There is no law against challenging the queen multiple times. She can insist on fighting me every night until she finally wears me down. I can't win. Hazel gazed at the throne. She imagined Otrera sitting there with her fine robes and her silver hair, ordering her warriors to attack Rome. She imagined the voice of Gia filling this cavern. There has to be a way, she said. Don't Amazons have... Special powers or something? No more than other demigods, Hilla said. We can die, just like any mortal. 
There is a group of archers who follow the goddess Artemis. They are often mistaken for Amazons, but the hunters forsake the company of men in exchange for almost endless life. We Amazons, we would prefer to live life to the fullest. We love, we fight, we die. I thought you hated men. Hilla and Kinsey both laughed. Hate men, said the queen. No, no, we like men. We just like to show them who's in charge. But that's beside the point. If I could, I would rally our troops and ride to my sister's aid. Unfortunately, my power is tenuous. When I am killed in combat, and it's only a matter of time, Otrera will be queen. She will march to Camp Jupiter with our forces, but she will not go to help my sister. She'll go to join the giant's army. We've got to stop her, Hazel said. My friends and I killed Phineas, one of Gia's other servants in Portland. Maybe we can help. The queen shook her head. You can't interfere. As queen, I must fight my own battles. Besides, your friends are imprisoned. If I let them go, I'll look weak. Either I execute you three as trespassers, or Otrera will do so when she becomes queen. Hazel's heart sank. So I guess we're both dead. Me for the second time. In the corner cage, the stallion Orion whinnied angrily. He reared and slammed his hooves against the bars. The horse seems to feel your despair, the queen said. Interesting. He's immortal, you know, the son of Neptune and Ceres. Hazel blinked. Two gods had a horse for a kid? Long story. Oh, Hazel's face felt hot with embarrassment. He's the fastest horse in the world. Hilla said. Pegasus is more famous with his wings. But Orion runs like the wind over land and sea. No creature is faster. It took us years to capture him, one of our greatest prizes. But it did us no good. The horse will not allow anyone to ride him. I think he hates Amazons, and he is expensive to keep. He will eat anything, but he prefers gold. The back of Hazel's neck tingled. He eats gold? She remembered the horse following her in Alaska so many years ago. She had thought he was eating nuggets of gold that appeared in her footsteps. She knelt and pressed her hand against the floor. Immediately the stone cracked. A chunk of gold ore the size of a plum was pushed out of the earth. Hazel stood, examining her prize. Hilla and Kinsey stared at her. How did you... The queen gasped. Hazel, be careful. Hazel approached the stallion's cage. She put her hand between the bars, and Orion gingerly ate the chunk of gold from her palm. Unbelievable, Kinsey said. The last girl who tried that... Now has a metal arm, the queen finished. She studied Hazel with new interest, as if deciding whether or not to say more. Hazel, we spent years hunting for this horse. It was foretold that the most courageous female warrior would someday master Orion and ride him to victory, ushering in a new era of prosperity for the Amazons. Yet no Amazon can touch him, much less control him. Even Otrera tried and failed. Two others died attempting to ride him. That probably should have worried Hazel, but she couldn't imagine this beautiful horse hurting her. She put her hand through the bars again and stroked Orion's nose. 
He nuzzled her arm, murmuring contentedly, as if asking, More gold? Yum. I would feed you more, Orion, Hazel glanced pointedly at the queen, but I think I'm scheduled for an execution. Queen Hilla looked from Hazel to the horse and back again. Unbelievable. The prophecy, Kinsey said. Is it possible? Hazel could almost see the gears turning inside the queen's head, formulating a plan. You have courage, Hazel Levesque, and it seems Orion has chosen you. Kinsey? Yes, my queen. You said Otrera's followers are guarding the cells? Kinsey nodded. I should have foreseen that. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. The queen's eyes gleamed, the way Hannibal the elephants did whenever he was unleashed to destroy a fortress. It would be embarrassing for Otrera if her followers failed in their duties. If, for instance, they were overcome by an outsider and a prison break occurred. Kinsey began to smile. Yes, my queen. Most embarrassing. Of course, Hilla continued, none of my guards would know a thing about this. Kinsey would not spread the word to allow an escape. Certainly not, Kinsey agreed. And we couldn't help you. The queen raised her eyebrows at Hazel. But if you somehow overpowered the guards and freed your friends, if, for instance, you took one of the guards' Amazon cards, with one-click purchasing enabled... Kinsey said, which will open the jail cells with one click. If, gods forbid, something like that were to happen, the queen continued, you would find your friend's weapons and supplies in the guard station next to the cells. And who knows, if you made your way back to this throne room while I was off preparing for my duel, well, as I mentioned, Orion is a very fast horse, it would be a shame if he were stolen and used for an escape. Hazel felt like she'd been plugged into a wall socket. Electricity surged through her whole body. Orion, Orion could be hers. All she had to do was rescue her friends and fight her way through an entire nation of highly trained warriors. Queen Hilla, she said, I, I'm not much of a fighter. Oh, there are many kinds of fighting, Hazel. I have a feeling you're quite resourceful. And if the prophecy is correct, you will help the Amazon nation achieve prosperity. If you succeed on your quest to free Thanatos, for instance. Then Otrera wouldn't come back if she were killed, Hazel said. You'd only have to defeat her, um, every night until we succeed. The queen nodded grimly. It seems we both have impossible tasks ahead of us. But you're trusting me, said Hazel, and I trust you. You will win, as many times as it takes. Hilla held out Percy's necklace and poured it into Hazel's hands. I hope you're right, the queen said. But the sooner you succeed, the better, yes? Hazel slipped the necklace into her pocket. She shook the queen's hand, wondering if it was possible to make a friend so fast especially one who was about to send her to jail. This conversation never happened, Hilla told Kinsey. Take our prisoner to the cells and hand her over to Otrera's guards. And Kinsey, be sure you leave before anything unfortunate happens. I don't want my loyal followers held accountable for a prison break. 
The queen smiled mischievously, and for the first time Hazel felt jealous of Reyna. She wished that she had a sister like this. Goodbye, Hazel of Esk, the queen said. If we both die tonight, well, I'm glad I met you. Chapter 32 Hazel The Amazon jail was at the top of a storage aisle sixty feet in the air. Kinsey led her up three different ladders to a metal catwalk, then tied Hazel's hands loosely behind her back and pushed her along past crates of jewelry. A hundred feet ahead, under the harsh glow of fluorescent lights, a row of chain-link cages hung suspended from cables. Percy and Frank were in two of the cages, talking to each other in hushed tones. Next to them on the catwalk, three bored-looking Amazon guards leaned against their spears and gazed at little black tablets in their hands like they were reading. Hazel thought the tablets looked too thin for books. Then it occurred to her they might be some sort of tiny, what did modern people call them? Laptop computers. Secret Amazon technology, perhaps. Hazel found the idea almost as unsettling as the battle forklifts downstairs. Get moving, girl, Kinsey ordered loud enough for the guards to hear. She prodded Hazel in the back with her sword. Hazel walked as slowly as she could, but her mind was racing. She needed to come up with a brilliant rescue plan. So far, she had nothing. Kinsey had made sure she could break her bonds easily, but she'd still be empty-handed against three trained warriors, and she had to act before they put her in a cage. She passed a pallet of crates marked 24-carat blue topaz rings then another labeled Silver Friendship Bracelets. An electronic display next to the Friendship Bracelets read, People who bought this item also bought Garden Gnome Solar Patio Light and Flaming Spear of Death. Buy all three and save 12%. Hazel froze. Gods of Olympus, she was stupid. Silver. Topaz. She sent out her senses searching for precious metals and her brain almost exploded from the feedback. She was standing next to a six-story tall mountain of jewelry. But in front of her, from here to the guards, was nothing but prison cages. What is it? Kinsey hissed. Keep moving. They'll get suspicious. Make them come here, Hazel muttered over her shoulder. Why? Please. The guards frowned in their direction. What are you staring at? Kinsey yelled at them. Here's the third prisoner. Come get her. The nearest guard set down her reading tablet. Why can't you walk another thirty paces, Kinsey? Um, because... Oof. Hazel fell to her knees and tried to put on her best seasick face. I'm feeling nauseous. Can't walk. Amazon's too scary. There you go. Kinsey told the guards. Now are you going to come take the prisoner, or should I tell Queen Hilla you're not doing your duty? The nearest guard rolled her eyes and trudged over. Hazel had hoped the other two guards would come too, but she'd have to worry about that later. The first guard grabbed Hazel's arm. Fine, I'll take custody of the prisoner. But if I were you, Kinsey, I wouldn't worry about Hilla. She won't be queen much longer. We'll see, Doris. Kinsey turned to leave. Hazel waited until her steps receded down the catwalk. The guard Doris pulled on Hazel's arm. Well, come on. 
Hazel concentrated on the wall of jewelry next to her. Forty large boxes of silver bracelets. Not feeling so good. You are not throwing up on me, Doris growled. She tried to yank Hazel to her feet, but Hazel went limp, like a kid throwing a fit in a store. Next to her, the boxes began to tremble. Lulu, Doris yelled to one of her comrades. Help me with this lame little girl. Amazons named Doris and Lulu, Hazel thought. Okay. The second guard jogged over. Hazel figured this was her best chance. Before they could haul her to her feet, she yelled, and flattened herself against the catwalk. Doris started to say, Oh, give me a... The entire pallet of jewelry exploded with a sound like a thousand slot machines hitting the jackpot. A tidal wave of silver friendship bracelets poured across the catwalk, washing Doris and Lulu right over the railing. They would have fallen to their deaths, but Hazel wasn't that mean. She summoned a few hundred bracelets, which leaped at the guards and lashed around their ankles, leaving them hanging upside down from the bottom of the catwalk, screaming like lame little girls. Hazel turned toward the third guard. She broke her bonds, which were about as sturdy as toilet paper. She picked up one of the fallen guard's spears. She was terrible with spears, but she hoped the third Amazon didn't know that. Should I kill you from here? Hazel snarled. Or are you going to make me come over there? The guard turned and ran. Hazel shouted over the side to Doris and Lulu, Amazon cards! Pass them up unless you want me to undo those friendship bracelets and let you drop. Four and a half seconds later, Hazel had two Amazon cards. She raced over to the cages and swiped a card. The doors popped open. Frank stared at her in astonishment. Hazel, that was amazing. Percy nodded. I will never wear jewelry again. Except this, Hazel tossed him the necklace. Our weapons and supplies are at the end of the catwalk. We should hurry. Pretty soon. Alarms began wailing throughout the cavern. Yeah, she said. That'll happen. Let's go. The first part of the escape was easy. They retrieved their things with no problem, then started climbing down the ladder. Every time Amazon swarmed beneath them, demanding their surrender, Hazel made a crate of jewelry explode, burying their enemies in a Niagara Falls of gold and silver. When they got to the bottom of the ladder, they found a scene that looked like Mardi Gras Armageddon. Amazons trapped up to their necks in bead necklaces, several more upside down in a mountain of amethyst earrings, and a battle forklift buried in silver charm bracelets. You, Hazel Levesque, Frank said, are entirely freaking incredible. She wanted to kiss him right there, but they had no time. They ran back to the throne room. They stumbled across one Amazon who must have been loyal to Hilla. As soon as she saw the escapees, she turned away like they were invisible. Percy started to ask, What the? Some of them want us to escape, Hazel said. I'll explain later. The second Amazon they met wasn't so friendly. She was dressed in full armor, blocking the throne room entrance. She spun her spear with lightning speed, but this time Percy was ready. He drew Riptide and stepped into battle. As the Amazon jabbed at him, he sidestepped, cut her spear shaft in half, and slammed the hilt of his sword against her helmet. The guard crumpled. Mars Almighty, Frank said. How did you... 
That wasn't any Roman technique. Percy grinned. The Greek has had some moves, my friend, after you. They ran into the throne room. As promised, Hill and her guards had cleared out. Hazel dashed over to Orion's cage and swiped an Amazon card across the lock. Instantly, the stallion burst forth, rearing in triumph. Percy and Frank stumbled backward. Um, is that thing tame? Frank said. The horse whinnied angrily. I don't think so, Percy guessed. He just said, I will trample you to death, silly Chinese-Canadian baby man. You speak horse? Hazel asked. Baby man, Frank spluttered. Speaking to horses is a Poseidon thing, Percy said. Uh, I mean a Neptune thing. Then you and Orion should get along fine, Hazel said. He's a son of Neptune, too. Percy turned pale. Excuse me? If they hadn't been in such a bad situation, Percy's expression might have made her laugh. The point is, he's fast. He can get us out of here. Frank did not look thrilled. Three of us can't fit on one horse, can we? We'll fall off, or slow him down, or... Orion whinnied again. Ouch, Percy said. Frank, the horse says you're a... You know, actually, I'm not going to translate that. Anyway, he says there's a chariot in the warehouse and he's willing to pull it. There, someone yelled from the back of the throne room. A dozen Amazons charged in, followed by males in orange jumpsuits. When they saw Orion, they backed up quickly and headed for the battle forklifts. Hazel vaulted onto Orion's back. She grinned down at her friends. I remember seeing that chariot. Follow me, guys. She galloped into the larger cavern and scattered a crowd of males. Percy knocked out an Amazon. Frank swept two more off their feet with his spear. Hazel could feel Orion straining to run. He wanted to go full speed, but he needed more room. They had to make it outside. Hazel bowled into a patrol of Amazons who scattered in terror at the sight of the horse. For once, Hazel's spatha felt exactly the right length. She swung it at everyone who came within reach. No Amazon dared challenge her. Percy and Frank ran after her. Finally, they reached the chariot. Orion stopped by the yoke, and Percy set to work with the reins and harness. You've done this before? Frank asked. Percy didn't need to answer. His hands flew. In no time, the chariot was ready. He jumped aboard and yelled, Frank, come on! Hazel, go! A battle cry went up behind them. A full army of Amazons stormed into the warehouse. Otrera herself stood astride a battle forklift, her silver hair flowing as she swung her mounted crossbow toward the chariot. Stop them! she yelled. Hazel spurred Orion. They raced across the cavern, weaving around pallets and forklifts. An arrow whizzed past Hazel's head. Something exploded behind her, but she didn't look back. The stairs! Frank yelled. No way this horse can pull a chariot up that many flights of... Oh my gods! Thankfully, the stairs were wide enough for the chariot, because Orion didn't even slow down. He shot up the steps with the chariot rattling and groaning. Hazel glanced back a few times to make sure Frank and Percy hadn't fallen off. Their knuckles were white on the sides of the chariot, their teeth chattering like wind-up Halloween skulls. Finally, they reached the lobby. Orion crashed through the main doors into the plaza and scattered a bunch of guys in business suits. Hazel felt the tension in Orion's ribcage. 
The fresh air was making him crazy to run, but Hazel pulled back on his reins. Ella! Hazel shouted at the sky. Where are you? We have to leave! For a horrible second, she was afraid the harpy might be too far away to hear. She might be lost or captured by the Amazons. Behind them, a battle forklift clattered up the stairs and roared through the lobby, a mob of Amazons behind it. Surrender! Otrera screamed. The forklift raised its razor-sharp tines. Ella! Hazel cried desperately. In a flash of red feathers, Ella landed in the chariot. Ella is here. Amazons are pointy. Go now. Hold on, Hazel warned. She leaned forward and said, Orion, run. The world seemed to elongate. Sunlight bent around them. Orion shot away from the Amazons and sped through downtown Seattle. Hazel glanced back and saw a line of smoking pavement where Orion's hooves had touched the ground. He thundered toward the docks, leaping over cars, barreling through intersections. Hazel screamed at the top of her lungs, but it was a scream of delight. For the first time in her life, in her two lives, she felt absolutely unstoppable. Orion reached the water and leaped straight off the docks. Hazel's ears popped. She heard a roar that she later realized was a sonic boom, and Orion tore over Puget Sound, seawater turning to steam in his wake as the skyline of Seattle receded behind them. Chapter 33 Frank Frank was relieved when the wheels fell off. He'd already thrown up twice from the back of the chariot, which was not fun at the speed of sound. The horse seemed to bend time and space as he ran, blurring the landscape and making Frank feel like he'd just drunk a gallon of whole milk without his lactose intolerance medicine. Ella didn't help matters. She kept muttering, "'750 miles per hour. 800. 803. Fast. Very fast.' The horse sped north across Puget Sound, zooming past islands and fishing boats and very surprised pods of whales. The landscape ahead began to look familiar. Crescent Beach, Boundary Bay. Frank had gone sailing here once on a school trip. They'd crossed into Canada. The horse rocketed onto dry land. He followed Highway 99 north, running so fast the cars seemed to be standing still. Finally, just as they were getting into Vancouver, the chariot wheels began to smoke. Hazel! Frank yelled. We're breaking up! She got the message and pulled the reins. The horse didn't seem happy about it, but he slowed to subsonic as they zipped through the city streets. They crossed the Iron Workers Bridge into North Vancouver and the chariot started to rattle dangerously. At last, Orion stopped at the top of a wooded hill. He snorted with satisfaction, as if to say... That's how we run, fools. The smoking chariot collapsed, spilling Percy, Frank, and Ella onto the wet, mossy ground. Frank stumbled to his feet. He tried to blink the yellow spots out of his eyes. Percy groaned and started unhitching Orion from the ruined chariot. Ella fluttered around in dizzy circles, bonking into the trees and muttering, Tree! 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 Only Hazel seemed unaffected by the ride. Grinning with pleasure, she slid off the horse's back. That was fun. Yeah, Frank swallowed back his nausea. So much fun. Orion whinnied. 
He says he needs to eat, Percy translated. No wonder. He probably burned about six million calories. Hazel studied the ground at her feet and frowned. I'm not sensing any gold around here. Don't worry, Orion. I'll find you some. In the meantime, why don't you go graze? We'll meet you. The horse zipped off, leaving a trail of steam in his wake. Hazel knit her eyebrows. Do you think he'll come back? I don't know, Percy said. He seems kind of... spirited. Frank almost hoped the horse would stay away. He didn't say that, of course. He could tell Hazel was distressed by the idea of losing her new friend. But Orion scared him, and Frank was pretty sure the horse knew it. Hazel and Percy started salvaging supplies from the chariot wreckage. There had been a few boxes of random Amazon merchandise in the front, and Ella shrieked with delight when she found a shipment of books. She snatched up a copy of The Birds of North America, fluttered to the nearest branch, and began scratching through the pages so fast, Frank wasn't sure if she was reading or shredding. Frank leaned against a tree, trying to control his vertigo. He still hadn't recovered from his Amazon imprisonment. Getting kicked across the lobby, disarmed, caged, and insulted as a baby man by an egomaniacal horse. That hadn't exactly helped his self-esteem. Even before that, the vision he had shared with Hazel had left him rattled. He felt closer to her now. He knew he'd done the right thing in giving her the piece of firewood. A huge weight had been taken off his shoulders. On the other hand, he'd seen the underworld firsthand. He had felt what it was like to sit forever doing nothing, just regretting your mistakes. He'd looked up at those creepy gold masks on the judges of the dead and realized that he would stand before them someday, maybe very soon. Frank had always dreamed of seeing his mother again when he died, but maybe that wasn't possible for demigods. Hazel had been an asphodel for something like seventy years and never found her mom. Frank hoped he and his mom would both end up in Elysium. But if Hazel hadn't gotten there, sacrificing her life to stop Gia, taking responsibility for her actions so that her mother wouldn't end up in punishment, what chance did Frank have? He'd never done anything that heroic. He straightened and looked around, trying to get his bearings. To the south, across Vancouver Harbor, the downtown skyline gleamed red in the sunset. To the north, the hills and rainforests of Lynn Canyon Park snaked between the subdivisions of North Vancouver until they gave way to the wilderness. Frank had explored this park for years. He spotted a bend in the river that looked familiar. He recognized a dead pine tree that had been split by lightning in a nearby clearing. Frank knew this hill. I'm practically home, he said. My grandmother's house is right over there. Hazel squinted. How far? Just over the river and through the woods. Percy raised an eyebrow. Seriously? To grandmother's house we go? Frank cleared his throat. Yeah. Anyway. Hazel clasped her hands in prayer. Frank, please, tell me she'll let us spend the night. I know we're on a deadline, but we've got to rest, right? And Orion saved us some time. Maybe we could get an actual cooked meal? And a hot shower, Percy pleaded. And a bed with, like, sheets and a pillow? Frank tried to imagine Grandmother's face if he showed up with two heavily armed friends and a harpy. Everything had changed since his mother's funeral, since the morning the wolves had taken him south. He'd been so angry about leaving. 
Now he couldn't imagine going back. Still, he and his friends were exhausted. They'd been traveling for more than two days without decent food or sleep. Grandmother could give them supplies, and maybe she could answer some questions that were brewing in the back of Frank's mind. A growing suspicion about his family gift. It's worth a try, Frank decided. To grandmother's house we go. Frank was so distracted, he would have walked right into the ogre's camp. Fortunately, Percy pulled him back. They crouched next to Hazel and Ella behind a fallen log and peered into the clearing. Bad, Ella murmured. This is bad for harpies. It was fully dark now. Around a blazing campfire sat half a dozen shaggy-haired humanoids. Standing up, they probably would have been eight feet tall, tiny compared to the giant polybates or even the cyclopes they'd seen in California. But that didn't make them any less scary. They wore only knee-length surfer shorts. Their skin was sunstroke red, covered with tattoos of dragons, hearts, and bikini-clad women. Hanging from a spit over the fire was a skinned animal, maybe a boar, and the ogres were tearing off chunks of meat with their claw-like fingernails, laughing and talking as they ate, bearing pointy teeth. Next to the ogres sat several mesh bags filled with bronze spheres like cannonballs. The spheres must have been hot, because they steamed in the cool evening air. Two hundred yards beyond the clearing, the lights of the Jong Mansion glowed through the trees. So close, Frank thought. He wondered if they could sneak around the monsters, but when he looked left and right, he saw more campfires in either direction, as if the ogres had surrounded the property. Frank's fingers dug into the tree bark. His grandmother might be alone inside the house, trapped. What are these guys? he whispered. Canadians, Percy said. Frank leaned away from him. Excuse me? Uh, no offense, Percy said. That's what Annabeth called them when I fought them before. She said they live in the north, in Canada. Yeah, well, Frank grumbled. We're in Canada. I'm Canadian, but I've never seen those things before. Ella plucked a feather from her wings and turned it in her fingers. Lestragonians, she said. Cannibals, northern giants, Sasquatch legend. Yep, yep, they're not birds, not birds of North America. That's what they're called, Percy agreed. Lestra... whatever Ella said. Frank scowled at the dudes in the clearing. They could be mistaken for Bigfoot. Maybe that's where the legend came from. Ella, you're pretty smart. Ella is smart, she agreed. She shyly offered Frank her feather. Oh, thanks. He stuck the feather in his pocket, then noticed Hazel was glaring at him. What? he asked. Nothing. She turned to Percy. So your memory is coming back? Do you remember how you beat these guys? Sort of, Percy said. It's still fuzzy. I think I had help. We killed them with celestial bronze. But that was before, you know. Before death got kidnapped, Hazel said. So now they might not die at all. Percy nodded. Those bronze cannonballs, those are bad news. I think we used some of them against the giants. They catch fire and blow up. Frank's hand went to his coat pocket. Then he remembered Hazel had his piece of driftwood. If we cause any explosions, he said, the ogres at the other camps will come running. 
I think they've surrounded the house, which means there could be fifty or sixty of these guys in the woods. So it's a trap. Hazel looked at Frank with concern. What about your grandmother? We've got to help her. Frank felt a lump in his throat. Never in a million years had he thought his grandmother would need rescuing. But now he started running combat scenarios in his mind, the way he had back at camp during the war games. We need a distraction, he decided. If we can draw this group into the woods, we might sneak through without alerting the others. I wish Orion was here, Hazel said. I could get the ogres to chase me. Frank slipped his spear off his back. I've got another idea. Frank didn't want to do this. The idea of summoning Gray scared him even more than Hazel's horse, but he didn't see another way. Frank, you can't charge out there, Hazel said. That's suicide. I'm not charging, Frank said. I've got a friend. Just nobody scream, okay? He jabbed the spear into the ground and the point broke off. Oops, Ella said. No spear point. Nope, nope. The ground trembled. Gray's skeletal hand broke the surface. Percy fumbled for his sword and Hazel made a sound like a cat with a hairball. Ella disappeared and rematerialized at the top of the nearest tree. It's okay, Frank promised. He's under control. Gray crawled out of the ground. He showed no sign of damage from his previous encounter with the basilisks. He was good as new in his camouflage and combat boots, translucent gray flesh covering his bones like glowing jello. He turned his ghostly eyes toward Frank, waiting for orders. Frank, that's a Spartus, Percy said. A skeleton warrior. They're evil. They're killers. They're... I know, Frank said bitterly. But it's a gift from Mars. Right now, that's all I've got. Okay, Gray. Your orders. Attack that group of ogres. Lead them off to the west, causing a diversion so we can... Unfortunately, Gray lost interest after the word ogres. Maybe he only understood simple sentences. He charged toward the ogres' campfire. Wait, Frank said, but it was too late. Gray pulled two of his own ribs from his shirt and ran around the fire, stabbing the ogres in the back with such blinding speed they didn't even have time to yell. Six extremely surprised-looking Lestragonians fell sideways like a circle of dominoes and crumbled into dust. Gray stomped around, kicking their ashes apart as they tried to reform. When he seemed satisfied that they weren't coming back, Gray stood at attention, saluted smartly in Frank's direction, and sank into the forest floor. Percy stared at Frank. How? No, Lestragonians. Ella fluttered down and landed next to them. Six minus six is zero. Spears are good for subtraction. Yep. Hazel looked at Frank as if he'd turned into a zombie skeleton himself. Frank thought his heart might shatter, but he couldn't blame her. Children of Mars were all about violence. Mars's symbol was a bloody spear for good reason. Why shouldn't Hazel be appalled? He glared down at the broken tip of his spear. He wished he had any father but Mars. Let's go, he said. My grandmother might be in trouble. Chapter 34 Frank They stopped at the front porch. As Frank had feared, a loose ring of campfires glowed in the woods, completely surrounding the property, 
but the house itself seemed untouched. Grandmother's wind chimes jangled in the night breeze. Her wicker chair sat empty, facing the road. Light shone through the downstairs windows, but Frank decided against ringing the doorbell. He didn't know how late it was, or if Grandmother was asleep or even home. Instead, he checked the stone elephant statue in the corner, a tiny duplicate of the one in Portland. The spare key was still tucked under its foot. He hesitated at the door. What's wrong? Percy asked. Frank remembered the morning he'd opened this door for the military officer who had told him about his mother. He remembered walking down these steps to her funeral, holding his piece of firewood in his coat for the first time. He remembered standing here and watching the wolves come out of the woods, Lupa's minions, who would lead him to Camp Jupiter. That seemed so long ago, but it had only been six weeks. Now he was back. Would Grandmother hug him? Would she say, Frank, thank the gods you've come. I'm surrounded by monsters. More likely she'd scold him, or mistake them for intruders and chase them off with a frying pan. Frank? Hazel asked. Ella is nervous, the harpy muttered from her perch on the railing. The elephant, the elephant is looking at Ella. It'll be fine. Frank's hand was shaking so badly he could barely fit the key in the lock. Just stay together. Inside, the house smelled closed up and musty. Usually the air was scented with jasmine incense, but all the burners were empty. They examined the living room, the dining room, the kitchen. Dirty dishes were stacked in the sink, which wasn't right. Grandmother's maid came every day unless she'd been scared off by the giants. Or eaten for lunch, Frank thought. Ella had said the Lestragonians were cannibals. He pushed that thought aside. Monsters ignored regular mortals. At least, they usually did. In the parlor, Buddha statues and Taoist immortals grinned at them like psycho clowns. Frank remembered Iris, the rainbow goddess, who'd been dabbling in Buddhism and Taoism. Frank figured one visit to this creepy old house would cure her of that. Grandmother's large porcelain vases were strung with cobwebs. Again, that wasn't right. She insisted that her collection be dusted regularly. Looking at the porcelain, Frank felt a twinge of guilt for having destroyed so many pieces the day of the funeral. It seemed silly to him now getting angry at Grandmother when he had so many others to be angry at. Juno, Gia, the Giants, his dad Mars, especially Mars. The fireplace was dark and cold. Hazel hugged her chest as if to keep the piece of firewood from jumping into the hearth. Is that? Yeah, Frank said. That's it. That's what? Percy asked. Hazel's expression was sympathetic, but that just made Frank feel worse. He remembered how terrified, how repulsed she had looked when he had summoned Gray. It's the fireplace, he told Percy, which sounded stupidly obvious. Come on, let's check upstairs. The steps creaked under their feet. Frank's old room was the same. None of his things had been touched. His extra bow and quiver. He'd have to grab those later. His spelling awards from school... Yeah, he probably was the only non-dyslexic spelling champion demigod in the world, as if he weren't enough of a freak already. And his photos of his mom. In her flak jacket and helmet, sitting on a Humvee in Kandahar province, in her soccer coach uniform. The season she'd coached Frank's team, in her military dress uniform, 
her hands on Frank's shoulders, the time she'd visited his school for career day. Your mother? Hazel asked gently. She's beautiful. Frank couldn't answer. He felt a little embarrassed. A 16-year-old guy with a bunch of pictures of his mom. How hopelessly lame was that? But mostly he felt sad. Six weeks since he'd been here. In some ways, it seemed like forever. But when he looked at his mom's smiling face in those photos, the pain of losing her was as fresh as ever. They checked the other bedrooms. The middle two were empty. A dim light flickered under the last door, grandmother's room. Frank knocked quietly. No one answered. He pushed open her door. Grandmother lay in bed, looking gaunt and frail. Her white hair spread around her face like a basilisk's crown. A single candle burned on the nightstand. At her bedside sat a large man in beige Canadian forces fatigues. Despite the gloom, he wore dark sunglasses with blood-red light glowing behind the lenses. Mars, Frank said. The god looked up impassively. Hey, kid, come on in. Tell your friends to take a hike. Frank, Hazel whispered. What do you mean, Mars? Is your grandmother... Is she okay? Frank glanced at his friends. You don't see him? See who? Percy gripped his sword. Mars? Where? The war god chuckled. Nah, they can't see me. Figured it was better this time. Just a private conversation. Father-son, right? Frank clenched his fists. He counted to ten before he trusted himself to speak. Guys, it's... It's nothing. Listen, why don't you take the middle bedrooms? Roof, Ella said. Roofs are good for harpies. Sure, Frank said in a daze. There's probably food in the kitchen. Would you give me a few minutes alone with my grandmother? I think she... His voice broke. He wasn't sure if he wanted to cry or scream or punch Mars in the glasses. Maybe all three. Hazel laid her hand on his arm. Of course, Frank. Come on, Ella, Percy. Frank waited until his friend's steps receded. Then he walked into the bedroom and closed the door. Is it really you? He asked Mars. This isn't a trick or illusion or something? The god shook his head. You'd prefer it if it wasn't me? Yes, Frank confessed. Mars shrugged. Can't blame you. Nobody welcomes war, not if they're smart. But war finds everyone sooner or later. It's inevitable. That's stupid. Frank said. War isn't inevitable. It kills people. It took your mom, Mars finished. Frank wanted to smack the calm look off his face, but maybe that was just Mars's aura making him feel aggressive. He looked down at his grandmother sleeping peacefully. He wished she would wake up. If anyone could take on a war god, his grandmother could. She's ready to die, Mars said. She's been ready for weeks, but she's holding on for you. For me? Frank was so stunned he almost forgot his anger. Why? How could she know I was coming back? I didn't know. The Lestragonians outside knew, Mars said. I imagine a certain goddess told them. Frank blinked. Juno? The war god laughed so loudly the windows rattled but grandmother didn't even stir. Juno! Boar's whiskers, kid. Not Juno. 
You're Juno's secret weapon. She wouldn't sell you out. No, I meant Gia. Obviously, she's been keeping track of you. I think you worry her more than Percy or Jason or any of the seven. Frank felt like the room was tilting. He wished there were another chair to sit in. The seven? You mean in the ancient prophecy, the doors of death? I'm one of the seven? And Jason and... Yes, yes. Mars waved his hand impatiently. Come on, boy. You're supposed to be a good tactician. Think it through. Obviously, your friends are being groomed for that mission, too. Assuming you make it back from Alaska alive, Juno aims to unite the Greeks and Romans and send them against the giants. She believes is the only way to stop Gia. Mars shrugged, clearly unconvinced of the plan. Anyway, Gia doesn't want you to be one of the seven. Percy Jackson, she believes she can control him. All the others have weaknesses she can exploit. But you, you worry her. She'd rather kill you right away. That's why she summoned the Lestragonians. They've been here for days, waiting. Frank shook his head. Was Mars playing some kind of trick? No way would a goddess be worried about Frank, especially when there was somebody like Percy Jackson to worry about. No weaknesses? he asked. I'm nothing but weaknesses. My life depends on a piece of wood. Mars grinned. You're selling yourself short. Anyway, Gia has these Lestragonians convinced that if they eat the last member of your family, that being you, they'll inherit your family gift. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But the Lestragonians are hungry to try. Frank's stomach twisted into a knot. Gray had killed six of the ogres, but judging from the campfires around the property, there were dozens more, all waiting to cook Frank for breakfast. I'm going to throw up, he said. No, you're not. Mars snapped his fingers and Frank's queasiness disappeared. Battle jitters happens to everybody. But my grandmother... Yeah, she's been waiting to talk to you. The ogres have left her alone so far. She's the bait, see? Now that you're here, I imagine they've already smelled your presence. They'll attack in the morning. Get us out of here, then, Frank demanded. Snap your fingers and blow up the cannibals. Ha, that would be fun. But I don't fight my kids' battles for them. The fates have clear ideas about what jobs belong to gods and what has to be done by mortals. This is your quest, kid. And, uh, in case you haven't figured it out yet, your spear won't be ready to use again for twenty-four hours. So I hope you've learned how to use the family gift. Otherwise, you're gonna be breakfast for cannibals. The Family Gift Frank had wanted to talk with Grandmother about it, but now he had no one to consult but Mars. He stared at the war god who was smiling with absolutely no sympathy. Paracliminus. Frank sounded out the word carefully like a spelling bee challenge. He was my ancestor, a Greek prince, an Argonaut. He died fighting Hercules. Mars rolled his hand in a go-on gesture. He had an ability that helped him in combat, Frank said. Some sort of gift from the gods. 
My mom said he fought like a swarm of bees. Mars laughed. True enough. What else? Somehow, the family got to China. I think, like in the days of the Roman Empire, one of Periclymenes' descendants served in a legion. My mom used to talk about a guy named Seneca Gracchus, but he also had a Chinese name, Sung Gua. I think, well, this is the part I don't know, but Reyna always said there were many lost legions. The Twelfth founded Camp Jupiter. Maybe there was another legion that disappeared into the east. Mars clapped silently. Not bad, kid. Ever heard of the Battle of Cari? Huge disaster for the Romans. They fought these guys called the Parthians on the eastern border of the empire. Fifteen thousand Romans died. Ten thousand more were taken prisoner. And one of the prisoners was my ancestor, Seneca Gracchus? Exactly, Mars agreed. The Parthians put the captured legionnaires to work, since they were pretty good fighters. Except then Parthia got invaded again from the other direction. By the Chinese, Frank guessed, and the Roman prisoners got captured again. Yeah, kind of embarrassing. Anyway, that's how a Roman legion got to China. The Romans eventually put down roots and built a new hometown called... Legion, Frank said. My mother said that was our ancestral home. Legion. Legion. Mars looked pleased. Now you're getting it. And old Seneca Gracchus, he had your family's gift. My mom said he fought dragons, Frank remembered. She said he was... He was the most powerful dragon of all. He was good, Mars admitted. Not good enough to avoid the bad luck of his legion, but good. He settled in China, passed the family gift to his kids, and so on. Eventually, your family emigrated to North America and got involved with Camp Jupiter. Full circle, Frank finished. Juno said I would bring the family full circle. We'll see. Mars nodded at his grandmother. She wanted to tell you all this herself, but I figured I'd cover some of it since the old bird hasn't got much strength. So do you understand your gift? Frank hesitated. He had an idea, but it seemed crazy, even crazier than a family moving from Greece to Rome to China to Canada. He didn't want to say it aloud. He didn't want to be wrong and have Mars laugh at him. I... I think so. But against an army of those ogres... Yeah, it'll be tough. Mars stood and stretched. When your grandmother wakes up in the morning, she'll offer you some help. Then I imagine she'll die. What? But I have to save her. She can't just leave me. She's lived a full life, Mars said. She's ready to move on. Don't be selfish. Selfish? The old woman only stuck around this long out of a sense of duty. Your mom was the same way. That's why I loved her. She always put her duty first, ahead of everything, even her life. Even me. Mars took off his sunglasses. Where his eyes should have been, miniature spheres of fire boiled like nuclear explosions. Self-pity isn't helpful, kid. It isn't worthy of you. Even without the family gift, your mom gave you your most important traits. Bravery, 
Loyalty. Brains. Now you've got to decide how to use them. In the morning, listen to your grandmother. Take her advice. You can still free Thanatos and save the camp. And leave my grandmother behind to die. Life is only precious because it ends, kid. Take it from a god. You mortals don't know how lucky you are. Yeah, Frank muttered. Real lucky. Mars laughed. A harsh, metallic sound. Their mom used to tell me this Chinese proverb. Eat bitter. Eat bitter tastes sweet, Frank said. I hate that proverb. But it's true. What do they call it these days? No pain, no gain? Same concept. You do the easy thing, the appealing thing, the peaceful thing. Mostly it turns out sour in the end. But if you take the hard path, ah, that's how you reap the sweet rewards. Duty, sacrifice, they mean something. Frank was so disgusted he could hardly speak. This was his father? Sure, Frank understood about his mom being a hero. He understood she'd saved lives and been really brave. But she'd left him alone. That wasn't fair. It wasn't right. I'll be going, Mars promised. But first, you said you were weak. That's not true. You want to know why Juno spared you, Frank? Why that piece of wood didn't burn yet? It's because you've got a role to play. You think you're not as good as the other Romans. You think Percy Jackson is better than you. He is, Frank grumbled. He battled you and won. Marsh shrugged. Maybe, maybe so. But every hero has a fatal flaw. Percy Jackson, he's too loyal to his friends. He can't give them up, not for anything. He was told that years ago. And someday soon, he's going to face a sacrifice he can't make. Without you, Frank, without your sense of duty, he's going to fail. The whole war will go sideways, and Gia will destroy our world. Frank shook his head. He couldn't hear this. War is a duty, Mars continued. The only real choice is whether you accept it, and what you fight for. The legacy of Rome is on the line. Five thousand years of law, order, civilization. The gods, the traditions, the cultures that shape the world you live in. It's all going to crumble, Frank, unless you win this. I think that's worth fighting for. Think about it. What's mine? Frank asked. Mars raised an eyebrow. You're what? Fatal flaw. You said all heroes have one. The gods smiled dryly. You gotta answer that yourself, Frank. But you're finally asking the right questions. Now, get some sleep. You need the rest. The god waved his hand. Frank's eyes felt heavy. He collapsed, and everything went dark. Fie, said a familiar voice, harsh and impatient. Frank blinked his eyes. Sunlight streamed into the room. Fie, get up! As much as I would like to slap that ridiculous face of yours, I am in no condition to get out of bed. Grandmother? 
She came into focus, looking down at him from the bed. He lay sprawled on the floor. Someone had put a blanket over him during the night and a pillow under his head. But he had no idea how it had happened. Yes, my silly ox. Grandmother still looked horribly weak and pale, but her voice was as steely as ever. Now get up. The ogres have surrounded the house. We have much to discuss if you and your friends are to escape here alive. Chapter 35 Frank One look out the window and Frank knew he was in trouble. At the edge of the lawn, the Lestragonians were stacking bronze cannonballs. Their skin gleamed red. Their shaggy hair, tattoos, and claws didn't look any prettier in the morning light. Some carried clubs or spears. A few confused ogres carried surfboards like they'd shown up at the wrong party. All of them were in a festive mood, giving each other high fives tying plastic bibs around their necks, breaking out the knives and forks. One ogre had fired up a portable barbecue and was dancing in an apron that said, Kiss the Cook. The scene would have been almost funny, except Frank knew he was the main course. I sent your friends to the attic, Grandmother said. You can join them when we are done. The attic? Frank turned. You told me I could never go in there. That's because we keep weapons in the attic, silly boy. Do you think this is the first time monsters have attacked our family? Weapons, Frank grumbled. Right. I've never handled weapons before. Grandmother's nostrils flared. Was that sarcasm, Fai Jong? Yes, Grandmother. Good. There may be hope for you yet. Now sit. You must eat. She waved her hand at the nightstand, where someone had set a glass of orange juice and a plate of poached eggs and bacon on toast, Frank's favorite breakfast. Despite his troubles, Frank suddenly felt hungry. He looked at Grandmother in astonishment. Did you... make you breakfast? My Buddha's monkey, of course not! And it wasn't the house staff. Too dangerous for them here. No, your girlfriend, Hazel, made that for you, and brought you a blanket and pillow last night and picked out some clean clothes for you in your bedroom. By the way, you should shower. You smell like burning horsehair. Frank opened and closed his mouth like a fish. He couldn't make sounds come out. Hazel had done all that for him. Frank had been sure he'd destroyed any chance with her last night when he had summoned Gray. She's, um, she's not... Not your girlfriend, Grandmother guessed. Well, she should be, you dolt. Don't let her get away. You need strong women in your life, if you haven't noticed. Now, to business. Frank ate while Grandmother gave him a sort of military briefing. In the daylight, her skin was so translucent, her veins seemed to glow. Her breathing sounded like a crackly paper bag inflating and deflating, but she spoke with firmness and clarity. She explained that the ogres had been surrounding the house for three days, waiting for Frank to show up. They want to cook you and eat you, she said distastefully, which is ridiculous. You'd taste terrible. Thank you, Grandmother, she nodded. I admit I was somewhat pleased when they said you were coming back. I am glad to see you one last time, even if your clothes are dirty and you need a haircut. Is this how you represent your family? I've been a little busy, Grandmother. No excuse for sloppiness. At any rate, your friends have slept and eaten. 
They are taking stock of the weapons in the attic. I told them you would be along shortly, but there are too many ogres to fend off for long. We must speak of your escape plan. Look in my nightstand. Frank opened the drawer and pulled out a sealed envelope. You know the airfield at the end of the park? Grandmother asked. Could you find it again? Frank nodded mutely. It was about three miles to the north, down the main road through the canyon. Grandmother had taken him there sometimes when she would charter planes to bring in special shipments from China. There is a pilot standing by to leave at a moment's notice, Grandmother said. He is an old family friend. I have a letter for him in that envelope, asking him to take you north. But do not argue, boy, she muttered. Mars has been visiting me these last few days, keeping me company. He told me of your quest. Find death in Alaska and release him. Do your duty. But if I succeed, you'll die. I'll never see you again. That is true, Grandmother agreed. But I'll die anyway. I'm old. I thought I made that clear. Now, did your preter give you letters of introduction? Uh, yes, but good. Show those to the pilot as well. He's a veteran of the Legion. In case he has any doubts or gets cold feet, those credentials will make him honor-bound to help you in any way possible. All you have to do is reach the airfield. The house rumbled. Outside, a ball of fire exploded in midair, lighting up the entire room. The ogres are getting restless, Grandmother said. We must hurry. Now, about your powers. I hope you figured them out. Uh... Grandmother muttered some curses in rapid-fire Mandarin. Gods of your ancestors, boy, have you learned nothing? Yes, he stammered out the details of his discussion with Mars the night before, but he felt much more tongue-tied in front of Grandmother. The gift of Periclymenus. I think, I think he was a son of Poseidon. I mean, Neptune. I mean, Frank spread his hands. The sea god. Grandmother nodded grudgingly. He was the grandson of Poseidon, but good enough. How did your brilliant intellect arrive at this fact? A seer in Portland. He said something about my great-grandfather, Shen Lun. The seer said he was blamed for the 1906 earthquake that destroyed San Francisco and the old location of Camp Jupiter. Go on. At camp, they said a descendant of Neptune had caused the disaster. Neptune is the god of earthquakes, but... But I don't think great-grandfather actually did it. Causing earthquakes isn't our gift. No, grandmother agreed. But yes, he was blamed. He was unpopular as a descendant of Neptune. He was unpopular because his real gift was much stranger than causing earthquakes. And he was unpopular because he was Chinese. A Chinese boy had never before claimed Roman blood. An ugly truth, but there is no denying it. He was falsely accused, forced out in shame. So, if he didn't do anything wrong, why did you tell me to apologize for him? Grandmother's cheeks flushed. Because apologizing for something you didn't do is better than dying for it. I wasn't sure if the camp would hold you to blame. I did not know if the prejudice of the Romans had eased. Frank swallowed down his breakfast. He'd been teased in school and on the street sometimes, but not that much, and never at Camp Jupiter. Nobody at camp, not once, had made fun of him for being Asian. Nobody cared about that. They only made fun of him because he was clumsy and slow. 
he couldn't imagine what it had been like for his great-grandfather, accused of destroying the entire camp, drummed out of the legion for something he didn't do. And our real gift? Grandmother asked. Have you at least figured out what it is? His mother's old stories swirled in Frank's head. Fighting like a swarm of bees, he was the greatest dragon of all. He remembered his mother's appearing next to him in the backyard, as if she'd flown from the attic. He remembered her coming out of the woods, saying that she'd given a mama grizzly bear directions. You can be anything, Frank said. That's what she always told me. Grandmother huffed. Finally, a dim light goes on in that head of yours. Yes, Fai Jung, your mother was not simply boosting your self-esteem. She was telling you the literal truth. But... Another explosion shook the house. Ceiling plaster fell like snow. Frank was so bewildered he barely noticed. Anything? Within reason, Grandmother said. Living things. It helps if you know the creature well. It also helps if you are in a life-and-death situation, such as combat. Why do you look so surprised, Fi? You have always said you are not comfortable in your own body. We all feel that way, all of us with the blood of Pilos. This gift was only given once to a mortal family. We are unique among demigods. Poseidon must have been feeling especially generous when he blessed our ancestor, or especially spiteful. The gift has often proven a curse. It did not save your mother. Outside, a cheer went up from the ogres. Someone shouted, Jong! Jong! You must go, silly boy, Grandmother said. Our time is up. But I don't know how to use my power. I've never... I can't... You can, Grandmother said. Or you will not survive to realize your destiny. I don't like this prophecy of seven that Mars told me about. Seven is an unlucky number in Chinese, a ghost number. But there is nothing we can do about that. Now go. Tomorrow evening is the Feast of Fortuna. You have no time to waste. Don't worry about me. I will die in my own time, in my own way. I have no intention of being devoured by those ridiculous ogres. Go. Frank turned at the door. He felt like his heart was being squeezed through a juicer, but he bowed formally. Thank you, Grandmother, he said. I will make you proud. She muttered something under her breath. Frank almost thought she had said, You have. He stared at her, dumbfounded, but her expression immediately soured. Stop gaping, boy. Go shower and dress. Comb your hair. My last image of you and you show me messy hair? He patted down his hair and bowed again. His last image of grandmother was of her glaring out the window, as if thinking about the terrible scolding she would give the ogres when they invaded her home. Chapter 36 Frank Frank took the quickest possible shower, put on the clothes Hazel had set out, an olive green shirt with beige cargo pants. Really? Then grabbed his spare bow and quiver and bounded up the attic stairs. The attic was full of weapons. His family had collected enough ancient armaments to supply an army. Shields, spears, and quivers of arrows hung along one wall, almost as many as in the Camp Jupiter armory. At the back window, 
A scorpion crossbow was mounted and loaded, ready for action. At the front window stood something that looked like a machine gun with a cluster of barrels. Rocket launcher? he wondered aloud. Nope, nope, said a voice from the corner. Potatoes. Ella doesn't like potatoes. The harpy had made a nest for herself between two old steamer trunks. She was sitting in a pile of Chinese scrolls, reading seven or eight at once. Ella, Frank said. Where are the others? Roof, she glanced upward, then returned to her reading, alternately picking at her feathers and turning pages. Roof, ogre watching. Ella doesn't like ogres. Potatoes. Potatoes? Frank didn't understand until he swiveled the machine gun around. Its eight barrels were loaded with spuds. At the base of the gun, a basket was filled with more edible ammunition. He looked out the window, the same window his mom had watched him from when he had met the bear. Down in the yard, the ogres were milling around, shoving each other, occasionally yelling at the house, and throwing bronze cannonballs that exploded in midair. They have cannonballs, Frank said, and we have a potato gun. Starch, Ella said thoughtfully. Starch is bad for ogres. The house shook from another explosion. Frank needed to reach the roof and see how Percy and Hazel were doing, but he felt bad leaving Ella alone. He knelt next to her, careful not to get too close. Ella, it's not safe here with the ogres. We're going to be flying to Alaska soon. Will you come with us? Ella twitched uncomfortably. Alaska, 626,425 square miles. State mammal, the moose. Suddenly, she switched to Latin, which Frank could just barely follow thanks to his classes at Camp Jupiter. To the north, beyond the gods, lies the legion's crown. Falling from ice, the son of Neptune shall drown. She stopped and scratched her disheveled red hair. Hmm, burned. The rest is burned. Frank could hardly breathe. Ella, was... was that a prophecy? Where did you read that? Moose, Ella said, savoring the word. Moose, moose, moose. The house shook again. Dust rained down from the rafters. Outside, an ogre bellowed, Frank Jong, show yourself. Nope, Ella said. Frank shouldn't. Nope. Just stay here, okay? Frank said. I've got to go help Hazel and Percy. He pulled down the ladder to the roof. Morning, Percy said grimly. Beautiful day, huh? He wore the same clothes as the day before, jeans, his purple t-shirt, and polar tech jacket, but they'd obviously been freshly washed. He held his sword in one hand and a garden hose in the other. Why there was a garden hose on the roof, Frank wasn't sure, but every time the giant sent up a cannonball, Percy summoned a high-powered blast of water and detonated the sphere in midair. Then Frank remembered his family was descended from Poseidon, too, Grandmother had said their house had been attacked before. Maybe they had put a hose up here for just that reason. Hazel patrolled the widow's walk between the two attic gables. She looked so good it made Frank's chest hurt. She wore jeans, a cream-colored jacket, and a white shirt that made her skin look as warm as cocoa. Her curly hair fell around her shoulders. When she came close, Frank could smell jasmine shampoo. She gripped her sword. When she glanced at Frank, her eyes flashed with concern. Are you okay? she asked. Why are you smiling? Oh, uh, nothing, he managed. Thanks for breakfast, and the clothes, and not hating me. Hazel looked baffled. Why would I hate you? 
Frank's face burned. He wished he'd kept his mouth shut, but it was too late now. Don't let her get away, his grandmother had said. You need strong women. It's just... Last night, he stammered, when I summoned the skeleton, I thought... I thought that you thought... I was repulsive or something. Hazel raised her eyebrows. She shook her head in dismay. Frank, maybe I was surprised. Maybe I was scared of that thing, but repulsed? The way you commanded it, so confident in everything, like... Oh, by the way, guys, I have this all-powerful Spartus we can use. I couldn't believe it. I wasn't repulsed, Frank. I was impressed. Frank wasn't sure he'd heard her right. You were... impressed? By me? Percy laughed. Dude, it was pretty amazing. Honest? Frank asked. Honest, Hazel promised. But right now, we have other problems to worry about, okay? She gestured at the army of ogres, who were getting increasingly bold, shuffling closer and closer to the house. Percy readied the garden hose. I've got one more trick up my sleeve. Your lawn has a sprinkler system. I can blow it up and cause some confusion down there, but that'll destroy your water pressure. No pressure, no hose, and those cannonballs are going to plow right into the house. Hazel's praise was still ringing in Frank's ears, making it difficult to think. Dozens of ogres were camped on his lawn, waiting to tear him apart, and Frank could barely control the urge to grin. Hazel didn't hate him. She was impressed. He forced himself to concentrate. He remembered what his grandmother had told him about the nature of his gift and how he had to leave her here to die. You've got a role to play, Mars had said. Frank couldn't believe he was Juno's secret weapon or that this big prophecy of the Seven depended on him. But Hazel and Percy were counting on him. He had to do his best. He thought about that weird, partial prophecy Ella had recited in the attic about the son of Neptune drowning. You don't understand her true value, Phineas had told them in Portland. The old blind man had thought that controlling Ella would make him a king. All these puzzle pieces swirled around in Frank's mind, he got the feeling that when they finally connected, they would create a picture he didn't like. Guys, I've got an escape plan. He told his friends about the plane waiting at the airfield and his grandmother's note for the pilot. He's a Legion veteran. He'll help us. But Orion's not back, Hazel said. And what about your grandmother? We can't just leave her. Frank choked back a sob. Maybe, maybe Orion will find us. As for my grandmother... She was pretty clear. She said she'd be okay. It wasn't exactly the truth, but it was as much as Frank could manage. There's another problem, Percy said. I'm not good with air travel. It's dangerous for a son of Neptune. You'll have to risk it. And so will I, Frank said. By the way, we're related. Percy almost stumbled off the roof. What? Frank gave them the five-second version. Periclimenus, ancestor on my mom's side, Argonaut, grandson of Poseidon. Hazel's mouth fell open. You're a, a descendant of Neptune? Frank, that's... Crazy? Yeah. And there's this ability my family has, supposedly. But I don't know how to use it. If I can't figure it out... Another massive cheer went up from the Lestragonians. 
Frank realized they were staring up at him, pointing and waving and laughing. They had spotted their breakfast. Chong! they yelled. Chong! Hazel stepped closer to him. They keep doing that. Why are they yelling your name? Never mind, Frank said. Listen, we've got to protect Ella. Take her with us. Of course, Hazel said. The poor thing needs our help. No, Frank said. I mean, yes, but it's not just that. She recited a prophecy downstairs. I think... I think it was about this quest. He didn't want to tell Percy the bad news about a son of Neptune drowning, but he repeated the lines. Percy's jaw tightened. I don't know how a son of Neptune can drown. I can breathe underwater. But the crown of the Legion... That's got to be the eagle, Hazel said. Percy nodded. And Ella recited something like this once before, in Portland, a line from the old great prophecy. The what? Frank asked. Tell you later. Percy turned his garden hose and shot another cannonball out of the sky. It exploded in an orange fireball. The ogres clapped with appreciation and yelled, Pretty! Pretty! The thing is, Frank said, Ella remembers everything she reads. She said something about the page being burned, like she'd read a damaged text of prophecies. Hazel's eyes widened. Burned books of prophecy? You don't think. But that's impossible. The books Octavian wanted, back at camp, Percy guessed. Hazel whistled under her breath. The lost Sibylline books that outlined the entire destiny of Rome. If Ella actually read a copy somehow and memorized it... Then she's the most valuable harpy in the world, Frank said. No wonder Phineas wanted to capture her. Frank Jong! an ogre shouted from below. He was bigger than the rest, wearing a lion's cape like a Roman standard bearer and a plastic bib with a lobster on it. Come down, son of Mars. We've been waiting for you. Come be our honored guest. Hazel gripped Frank's arm. Why do I get the feeling that honored guest means the same thing as dinner? Frank wished Mars were still there. He could use somebody to snap his fingers and make his battle jitters go away. Hazel believes in me, he thought. I can do this. He looked at Percy. Can you drive? Sure. Why? Grandmother's car is in the garage. It's an old Cadillac. The thing is like a tank. If you can get it started... We'll still have to break through a line of ogres, Hazel said. The sprinkler system, Percy said. Use it as a distraction? Exactly, Frank said. I'll buy you as much time as I can. Get Ella and get in the car. I'll try to meet you in the garage. But don't wait for me. Percy frowned. Frank. Give us your answer, Frank Jong, the yoger yelled up. Come down and we will spare the others. Your friends, your poor old granny. We only want you. They're lying, Percy muttered. Yeah, I got that, Frank agreed. Go. His friends ran for the ladder. Frank tried to control the beating of his heart. He grinned and yelled, Hey down there, who's hungry? The ogres cheered as Frank paced along the widow's walk and waved like a rock star. Frank tried to summon his family power. He imagined himself as a fire-breathing dragon. He strained and clenched his fist and thought about dragons so hard, beads of sweat popped up on his forehead. 
He wanted to sweep down on the enemy and destroy them. That would be extremely cool. But nothing happened. He had no clue how to change himself. He had never even seen a real dragon. For a panicky moment, he wondered if Grandmother had played some sort of cruel joke on him. Maybe he'd misunderstood the gift. Maybe Frank was the only member of the family who hadn't inherited it. That would be just his luck. The ogres started to become restless. The cheering turned to catcalls. A few Lestragonians hefted their cannonballs. Hold on, Frank yelled. You don't want to char me, do you? I won't taste very good that way. Come down, they yelled. Hungry. Time for plan B. Frank just wished he had one. Do you promise to spare my friends? Frank asked. Do you swear on the river sticks? The ogres laughed. One threw a cannonball that arced over Frank's head and blew up the chimney. By some miracle, Frank wasn't hit with shrapnel. I'll take that as a no, he muttered. Then he shouted down, Okay, fine. You win. I'll be right down. Wait there. The ogres cheered, but their leader in the lion's skin cape scowled suspiciously. Frank wouldn't have much time. He descended the ladder into the attic. Ella was gone. He hoped that was a good sign. Maybe they'd gotten her to the Cadillac. He grabbed an extra quiver of arrows labeled Assorted Varieties in his mother's neat printing. Then he ran to the machine gun. He swiveled the barrel, took aim at the lead ogre, and pressed the trigger. Eight high-powered spuds blasted the giant in the chest, propelling him backward with such force that he crashed into a stack of bronze cannonballs, which promptly exploded, leaving a smoking crater in the yard. Apparently, starch was bad for ogres. While the rest of the monsters ran around in confusion, Frank pulled his bow and rained arrows on them. Some of the missiles detonated on impact, Others splintered like buckshot and left the giants with some painful new tattoos. One hit an ogre and instantly turned him into a potted rosebush. Unfortunately, the ogres recovered quickly. They began throwing cannonballs, dozens at a time. The whole house groaned under the impact. Frank ran for the stairs. The attic disintegrated behind him. Smoke and fire poured down the second-floor hallway. "'Grandmother!' he cried but the heat was so intense he couldn't reach her room. He raced to the ground floor, clinging to the banister as the house shook and huge chunks of the ceiling collapsed. The base of the staircase was a smoking crater. He leaped over it and stumbled through the kitchen. Choking from the ash and soot, he burst into the garage. The Cadillac's headlights were on. The engine was running and the garage door was opening. Get in, Percy yelled. Frank dove in the back next to Hazel. Ella was curled up in the front, her head tucked under her wings, muttering, Yikes, yikes, yikes. Percy gunned the engine. They shot out of the garage before it was fully open, leaving a Cadillac-shaped hole of splintered wood. The ogres ran to intercept, but Percy shouted at the top of his lungs, and the irrigation system exploded. A hundred geysers shot into the air along with clods of dirt, pieces of pipe, and very heavy sprinkler heads. The Cadillac was going about forty when they hit the first ogre, who disintegrated on impact. By the time the other monsters overcame their confusion, the Cadillac was half a mile down the road. Flaming cannonballs burst behind them. 
Frank glanced back and saw his family mansion on fire, the walls collapsing inward and smoke billowing into the sky. He saw a large black speck, maybe a buzzard, circling up from the fire. It might have been Frank's imagination, but he thought it had flown out of the second-story window. Grandmother, he murmured. It seemed impossible, but she had promised she would die in her own way, not at the hands of the ogres. Frank hoped she had been right. They drove through the woods and headed north. About three miles, Frank said. You can't miss it. Behind them, more explosions ripped through the forest. Smoke boiled into the sky. How fast can Lestragonians run? Hazel asked. Let's not find out, Percy said. The gates at the airfield appeared before them, only a few hundred yards away. A private jet idled on the runway. Its stairs were down. The Cadillac hit a pothole and went airborne. Frank's head slammed into the ceiling. When the wheels touched the ground, Percy floored the brakes and they swerved to a stop just inside the gates. Frank climbed out and drew his bow. Get to the plane! They're coming! The Lestragonians were closing in with alarming speed. The first line of ogres burst out of the woods and barreled toward the airfield, 500 yards away, 400 yards. Percy and Hazel managed to get Ella out of the Cadillac, but as soon as the harpy saw the airplane, she began to shriek. No, 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 she yelped. Fly with wings. No, no, no airplanes. It's okay, Hazel promised. We'll protect you. Ella made a horrible, painful wail like she was being burned. Percy held up his hands in exasperation. What do we do? We can't force her. No, Frank agreed. The ogres were three hundred yards out. She's too valuable to leave behind, Hazel said. Then she winced at her own words. Gods, I'm sorry, Ella. I sound as bad as Phineas. You're a living thing, not a treasure. No planes. No, 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 no planes. Ella was hyperventilating. The ogres were almost in throwing distance. Percy's eyes lit up. I've got an idea. Ella, can you hide in the woods? Will you be safe from the ogres? Hide, she agreed. Safe. Hiding is good for harpies. Ella is quick and small and fast. Okay, Percy said. Just stay around this area. I can send a friend to meet you and take you to Camp Jupiter. Frank unslung his bow and knocked an arrow. A friend? Percy waved his hand in a tell-you-later gesture. Ella, would you like that? Would you like my friend to take you to Camp Jupiter and show you our home? Camp, Ella muttered. Then in Latin, Wisdom's daughter walks alone. The mark of Athena burns through Rome. Uh, right, Percy said. That sounds important, but we can talk about that later. You'll be safe at camp. All the books and food you want. No planes, she insisted. No planes, Percy agreed. Ella will hide now. Just like that, she was gone. A red streak disappearing into the woods. I'll miss her. Hazel said sadly. We'll see her again, Percy promised, but he frowned uneasily, as if he were really troubled by that last bit of prophecy, the thing about Athena. An explosion sent the airfield's gates spinning into the air. Frank tossed his grandmother's letter to Percy. Show that to the pilot. Show him your letter from Raina, too. We've got to take off now. Percy nodded. He and Hazel ran for the plane. Frank took cover behind the Cadillac and started firing at the ogres. 
He targeted the largest clump of enemies and shot a tulip-shaped arrow. Just as he'd hoped, it was a hydra. Ropes lashed out like squid tentacles, and the entire front row of ogres plowed face-first into the dirt. Frank heard the plane's engines rev. He shot three more arrows as fast as he could, blasting enormous craters in the ogres' ranks. The survivors were only a hundred yards away, and some of the brighter ones stumbled to a stop, realizing that they were now within hurling range. Frank! Hazel shrieked. Come on! A fiery cannonball hurtled toward him in a slow arc. Frank knew instantly it was going to hit the plane. He knocked an arrow. I can do this, he thought. He let the arrow fly. It intercepted the cannonball midair, detonating a massive fireball. Another two cannonballs sailed toward him. Frank ran. Behind him, metal groaned as the Cadillac exploded. He dove into the plane just as the stairs started to rise. The pilot must have understood the situation just fine. There was no safety announcement, no pre-flight drink, and no waiting for clearance. He pushed the throttle and the plane shot down the runway. Another blast ripped through the runway behind them, but then they were in the air. Frank looked down and saw the airstrip riddled with craters like a piece of burning Swiss cheese. Swaths of Lynn Canyon Park were on fire. A few miles to the south, a swirling pyre of flames and black smoke was all that remained of the Jong family mansion. So much for Frank being impressive. He'd failed to save his grandmother. He'd failed to use his powers. He hadn't even saved their harpy friend. When Vancouver disappeared in the clouds below, Frank buried his head in his hands and started to cry. The plane banked to the left. Over the intercom, the pilot's voice said, Senatus populusque Romanus, my friends. Welcome aboard. Next stop, Anchorage, Alaska. Chapter 37 Percy Airplanes or cannibals? No contest. Percy would have preferred driving Grandma Jong's Cadillac all the way to Alaska with fireball-throwing ogres on his tail rather than sitting in a luxury Gulf Stream. He'd flown before. The details were hazy, but he remembered a Pegasus named Blackjack. He'd even been in a plane once or twice, but a son of Neptune, Poseidon, whatever, didn't belong in the air. Every time the plane hit a spot of turbulence, Percy's heart raced, and he was sure Jupiter was slapping them around. He tried to focus as Frank and Hazel talked. Hazel was reassuring Frank that he'd done everything he could for his grandmother. Frank had saved them from the Lestragonians and gotten them out of Vancouver. He'd been incredibly brave. Frank kept his head down like he was ashamed to have been crying, but Percy didn't blame him. The poor guy had just lost his grandmother and seen his house go up in flames. As far as Percy was concerned, shedding a few tears about something like that didn't make you any less of a man, especially when you had just fended off an army of ogres that wanted to eat you for breakfast. Percy still couldn't get over the fact that Frank was a distant relative. Frank would be his, what, great times a thousand nephew? Too weird for words. Frank refused to explain exactly what his family gift was, but as they flew north, Frank did tell them about his conversation with Mars the night before. He explained the prophecy Juno had issued when he was a baby, about his life being tied to a piece of firewood and how he had asked Hazel to keep it for him. Some of that, 
Percy had already figured out. Hazel and Frank had obviously shared some crazy experiences when they had blacked out together, and they'd made some sort of deal. It also explained why even now, out of habit, Frank kept checking his coat pocket, and why he was so nervous around fire. Still, Percy couldn't imagine what kind of courage it had taken for Frank to embark on a quest, knowing that one small flame could snuff out his life. Frank, he said, I'm proud to be related to you. Frank's ears turned red. With his head lowered, his military haircut made a sharp black arrow pointing down. Juno has some sort of plan for us, about the prophecy of seven. Yeah, Percy grumbled. I didn't like her as Hera. I don't like her any better as Juno. Hazel tucked her feet underneath her. She studied Percy with her luminescent golden eyes, and he wondered how she could be so calm. She was the youngest one on the quest, but she was always holding them together and comforting them. Now they were flying to Alaska, where she had died once before. They would try to free Thanatos, who might take her back to the underworld, yet she didn't show any fear. It made Percy feel silly for being scared of airplane turbulence. You're a son of Poseidon, aren't you? she asked. You are a Greek demigod. Percy gripped his leather necklace. I started to remember in Portland, after the Gorgon's blood. It's been coming back to me slowly since then. There's another camp. Camp Half-Blood. Just saying the name made Percy feel warm inside. Good memories washed over him. The smell of strawberry fields in the warm summer sun. Fireworks lighting up the beach on the 4th of July. Satyrs playing panpipes at the nightly campfire. And a kiss at the bottom of the canoe lake. Hazel and Frank stared at him as though he'd slipped into another language. Another camp? Hazel repeated. A Greek camp? Gods, if Octavian found out. He'd declare war, Frank said. He's always been sure the Greeks were out there, plotting against us. He thought Percy was a spy. That's why Juno sent me, Percy said. Uh, I mean, not to spy. I think it was some kind of exchange. Your friend Jason... I think he was sent to my camp. In my dreams, I saw a demigod that might have been him. He was working with some other demigods on this flying warship. I think they're coming to Camp Jupiter to help. Frank tapped nervously on the back of his seat. Mars said Juno wants to unite the Greeks and Romans to fight Gia. But geez, Greeks and Romans have a long history of bad blood. Hazel took a deep breath. That's probably why the gods have kept us apart this long. If a Greek warship appeared in the sky above Camp Jupiter, and Reyna didn't know it was friendly. Yeah, Percy agreed. We've got to be careful how we explain this when we get back. If we get back, Frank said. Percy nodded reluctantly. I mean, I trust you guys. I hope you trust me. I feel, well, I feel as close to you two as to any of my old friends at Camp Half-Blood but with the other demigods, at both camps, there's going to be a lot of suspicion. Hazel did something he wasn't expecting. She leaned over and kissed him on the cheek. It was totally a sisterly kiss, but she smiled with such affection it warmed Percy right down to his feet. Of course we trust you, she said. We're a family now, aren't we, Frank? Sure, he said. Do I get a kiss? Hazel laughed, but there was nervous tension in it. 
Anyway, what do we do now? Percy took a deep breath. Time was slipping away. They were almost halfway through June 23rd, and tomorrow was the Feast of Fortuna. I've got to contact a friend, to keep my promise to Ella. How? Frank said. One of those iris messages? Still not working, Percy said sadly. I tried it last night at your grandmother's house. No luck. Maybe it's because my memories are still jumbled. Or the gods aren't allowing a connection. I'm hoping I can contact my friend in my dreams. Another bump of turbulence made him grab his seat. Below them, snow-capped mountains broke through a blanket of clouds. I'm not sure I can sleep, Percy said, but I need to try. We can't leave Ella by herself with those ogres around. Yeah, Frank said. We've still got hours to fly. Take the couch, man. Percy nodded. He felt lucky to have Hazel and Frank watching out for him. What he'd said to them was true. He trusted them. In the weird, terrifying, horrible experience of losing his memory and getting ripped out of his old life, Hazel and Frank were the bright spots. He stretched out, closed his eyes, and dreamed he was falling from a mountain of ice toward a cold sea. The dream shifted. He was back in Vancouver, standing in front of the ruins of the Jong Mansion. The Lestragonians were gone. The mansion was reduced to a burned-out shell. A crew of firefighters was packing up their equipment, getting ready to move out. The lawn looked like a war zone, with smoking craters and trenches from the blown-out irrigation pipes. At the edge of the forest, a giant shaggy black dog was bounding around, sniffing the trees. The firefighters completely ignored him. Beside one of the craters knelt a cyclops in oversized jeans, boots, and a massive flannel shirt. His messy brown hair was spattered with rain and mud. When he raised his head, his big brown eye was red from crying. Close, he moaned. So close, but gone. It broke Percy's heart to hear the pain and worry in the big guy's voice, but he knew they only had a few seconds to talk. The edges of the vision were already dissolving. If Alaska was the land beyond the gods, Percy figured the farther north he went, the harder it would be to communicate with his friends, even in his dreams. Tyson, he called. The Cyclops looked around frantically. Percy? Brother? Tyson, I'm okay. I'm here. Well, not really. Tyson grabbed the air like he was trying to catch butterflies. Can't see you. Where is my brother? Tyson, I'm flying to Alaska. I'm okay. I'll be back. Just find Ella. She's a harpy with red feathers. She's hiding in the woods around the house. Find a harpy? A red harpy? Yes. Protect her, okay? She's my friend. Get her back to California. There's a demigod camp in the Oakland Hills. Camp Jupiter. Meet me above the Caldecott Tunnel. Oakland Hills, California, Caldecott Tunnel. He shouted to the dog, Mrs. O'Leary, we must find a harpy. Woof, said the dog. Tyson's face started to dissolve. My brother is okay? My brother is coming back? I miss you. I miss you too, Percy tried to keep his voice from cracking. I'll see you soon. Just be careful. There's a giant's army marching south. Tell Annabeth. The dream shifted. 
Percy found himself standing in the hills north of Camp Jupiter, looking down at the field of Mars and New Rome. At the Legion's fort, horns were blowing. Campers scrambled to muster. The giant's army was arrayed to Percy's left and right. Centaurs with bull's horns, the six-armed Earthborn, and evil Cyclopes in scrap metal armor. The Cyclopes' siege tower cast a shadow across the feet of the giant Polybates, who grinned down at the Roman camp. He paced eagerly across the hill, snakes dropping from his green dreadlocks, his dragon legs stomping down small trees. On his green-blue armor, the decorative faces of hungry monsters seemed to blink in the shadows. Yes, he chuckled, planting his trident in the ground. Blow your little horns, Romans. I've come to destroy you. Sleeto! The gorgon scrambled out of the bushes. Her lime-green viper hair and bargain-mart vest clashed horribly with the giant's color scheme. Yes, master, she said. Would you like a puppy in a blanket? She held up a tray of free samples. Hmm, Polybates said. What sort of puppy? Ah, they're not actually puppies. They're tiny hot dogs and crescent rolls, but they're on sale this week. Bah! Never mind, then. Are our forces ready to attack? Oh, Stheno stepped back quickly to avoid getting flattened by the giant's foot. Almost, great one. Magasket and half her Cyclopes stopped in Napa. Something about a winery tour? They promised to be here by tomorrow evening. What? The giant looked around as if just noticing that a big portion of his army was missing. Ugh, that Cyclops woman will give me an ulcer. Winery tour? I think there was cheese and crackers, too, Theno said helpfully, though Bargain Mart has a much better deal. Polybates ripped an oak tree out of the ground and threw it into the valley. Cyclopes! I tell you, Theno, when I destroy Neptune and take over the oceans, we will renegotiate the Cyclopes' labor contract. Ma Gasket will learn her place. Now, what news from the north? The demigods have left for Alaska, Theno said. They fly straight to their death. Uh, small d death, I mean, not our prisoner death. Although, I suppose they're flying to him, too. Polybates growled. Alcyonius had better spare the son of Neptune as he promised. I want that one chained at my feet so I can kill him when the time is ripe. His blood shall water the stones of Mount Olympus and wake the Earth Mother. What word from the Amazons? Only silence, Stheno said. We do not yet know the winner of last night's duel, but it is only a matter of time before Otrera prevails and comes to our aid. Hmm. Polybates absently scratched some vipers out of his hair. Perhaps it's just as well we wait, then. Tomorrow at sundown is Fortuna's feast. By then, we must invade. Amazons or no. In the meantime, dig in. We set up camp here, on high ground. Yes, great one, Stheno announced to the troops. Puppies and blankets for everyone. The monsters cheered. Polybates spread his hands in front of him, taking in the valley like a panoramic picture. 
Yes, blow your little horns, demigods. Soon the legacy of Rome will be destroyed for the last time. The dream faded. Percy woke with a jolt as the plane started its descent. Hazel laid her hand on his shoulder. Sleep okay? Percy sat up groggily. How long was I out? Frank stood in the aisle, wrapping his spear and new bow in his ski bag. A few hours, he said. We're almost there. Percy looked out the window. A glittering inlet of the sea snaked between snowy mountains. In the distance, a city was carved out of the wilderness, surrounded by lush green forests on one side and icy black beaches on the other. Welcome to Alaska, Hazel said. We're beyond the help of the gods. Chapter 38 Percy The pilot said the plane couldn't wait for them, but that was okay with Percy. If they survived till the next day, he hoped they could find a different way back, anything but a plane. He should have been depressed. He was stuck in Alaska, the giant's home territory, out of contact with his old friends just as his memories were coming back. He had seen an image of Polybates' army about to invade Camp Jupiter. He'd learned that the giants planned to use him as some kind of blood sacrifice to awaken Gia. Plus, tomorrow evening was the Feast of Fortuna. He, Frank, and Hazel had an impossible task to complete before then. At best, they would unleash death. Who might take Percy's two friends to the underworld? Not much to look forward to. Still, Percy felt strangely invigorated. His dream of Tyson had lifted his spirits. He remembered Tyson, his brother. They'd fought together, celebrated victories, shared good times at Camp Half-Blood. He remembered his home, and that gave him a new determination to succeed. He was fighting for two camps now, two families. Juno had stolen his memory and sent him to Camp Jupiter for a reason. He understood that now. He still wanted to punch her in her godly face, but at least he got her reasoning. If the two camps could work together, they stood a chance of stopping their mutual enemies. Separately, both camps were doomed. There were other reasons Percy wanted to save Camp Jupiter. Reasons he didn't dare put into words, not yet anyway. Suddenly he saw a future for himself and for Annabeth that he'd never imagined before. As they took a taxi into downtown Anchorage, Percy told Frank and Hazel about his dreams. They looked anxious but not surprised when he told them about the giant's army closing in on camp. Frank choked when he heard about Tyson. You have a half-brother who's a cyclops? Sure, Percy said. Which makes him your great, great, great... Please, Frank covered his ears. Enough. As long as he can get Ella to camp, Hazel said. I'm worried about her. Percy nodded. He was still thinking about the lines of prophecy the harpy had recited, about the son of Neptune drowning and the mark of Athena burning through Rome. He wasn't sure what the first part meant, but he was starting to have an idea about the second. He tried to set the question aside. He had to survive this quest first. The taxi turned on Highway 1, which looked more like a small street to Percy, and took them north toward downtown. It was late afternoon, but the sun was still high in the sky. I can't believe how much this place has grown, Hazel muttered. The taxi driver grinned in the rearview mirror. Been a long time since you visited, miss? About seventy years, Hazel said. 
The driver slid the glass partition closed and drove on in silence. According to Hazel, almost none of the buildings were the same, but she pointed out features of the landscape, the vast forests ringing the city, the cold gray waters of Cook Inlet, tracing the north edge of town, and the Chugach Mountains rising grayish-blue in the distance, capped with snow even in June. Percy had never smelled air this clean before. The town itself had a weather-beaten look to it, with closed stores, rusted-out cars, and worn apartment complexes lining the road. But it was still beautiful. Lakes and huge stretches of woods cut through the middle. The Arctic sky was an amazing combination of turquoise and gold. Then there were the giants. Dozens of bright blue men, each thirty feet tall with gray, frosty hair, were wading through the forests, fishing in the bay, and striding across the mountains. The mortals didn't seem to notice them. The taxi passed within a few yards of one who was sitting at the edge of a lake washing his feet, but the driver didn't panic. Um, Frank pointed at the blue guy. Hyperboreans, Percy said. He was amazed he remembered that name. Northern Giants. I fought some when Kronos invaded Manhattan. Wait, Frank said. When who did what? Long story. But these guys look, I don't know, peaceful. They usually are, Hazel agreed. I remember them. They're everywhere in Alaska, like bears. Bears, Frank said nervously. The Giants are invisible to mortals, Hazel said. They never bothered me, though one almost stepped on me by accident once. That sounded fairly bothersome to Percy, but the taxi kept driving. None of the giants paid them any attention. One stood right at the intersection of Northern Lights Road, straddling the highway, and they drove between his legs. The Hyperborean was cradling a Native American totem pole wrapped in furs, humming to it like a baby. If the guy hadn't been the size of a building... He would have been almost cute. The taxi drove through downtown, past a bunch of tourist shops, advertising furs, Native American art, and gold. Percy hoped Hazel wouldn't get agitated and make the jewelry shops explode. As the driver turned and headed toward the seashore, Hazel knocked on the glass partition. Here is good. Can you let us out? They paid the driver and stepped onto 4th Street. Compared to Vancouver, downtown Anchorage was tiny more like a college campus than a city, but Hazel looked amazed. It's huge, she said. That, that's where the Gitchell Hotel used to be. My mom and I stayed there our first week in Alaska. And they've moved City Hall. It used to be there. She led them in a daze for a few blocks. They didn't really have a plan beyond finding the fastest way to the Hubbard Glacier. But Percy smelled something cooking nearby. Sausage, maybe? He realized he hadn't eaten since that morning at Grandma Jong's. Food, he said. Come on. They found a cafe right by the beach. It was bustling with people, but they scored a table at the window and perused the menus. Frank whooped with delight. Twenty-four hour breakfast. It's like dinner time, Percy said, though he couldn't tell from looking outside. The sun was so high it could have been noon. I love breakfast, Frank said. I'd eat breakfast, breakfast, and breakfast if I could. Though, um, I'm sure the food here isn't as good as Hazel's. Hazel elbowed him, but her smile was playful. Seeing them like that made Percy happy. Those two definitely needed to get together. 
but it also made him sad. He thought about Annabeth and wondered if he'd live long enough to see her again. Think positive, he told himself. You know, he said, breakfast sounds great. They all ordered massive plates of eggs, pancakes, and reindeer sausage, though Frank looked a little worried about the reindeer. You think it's okay that we're eating Rudolph? Dude, Percy said, I could eat Prancer and Blitzen too. I'm hungry. The food was excellent. Percy had never seen anyone eat as fast as Frank. The red-nosed reindeer did not stand a chance. Between bites of blueberry pancake, Hazel drew a squiggly curve and an X on her napkin. So, this is what I'm thinking. We're here, she tapped X. Anchorage. It looks like a seagull's face, Percy said, and we're the eye. Hazel glared at him. It's a map, Percy. Anchorage is at the top of this sliver of ocean, Cook Inlet. There's a big peninsula of land below us, and my old hometown, Seward, is at the bottom of the peninsula here. She drew another X at the base of the seagull's throat. That's the closest town to the Hubbard Glacier. We could go around by sea, I guess, but it would take forever. We don't have that kind of time. Frank polished off the last of his Rudolph. But land is dangerous, he said. Land means Gia. Hazel nodded. I don't see that we've got much choice, though. We could have asked our pilot to fly us down, but I don't know. His plane might be too big for the little Seward airport. And if we chartered another plane... No more planes, Percy said. Please. Hazel held up her hand in a placating gesture. It's okay. There's a train that goes from here to Seward. We might be able to catch one tonight. It only takes a couple of hours. She drew a dotted line between the two X's. You just cut off the seagull's head, Percy noted. Hazel sighed. It's the train line. Look, from Seward, the Hubbard Glacier is down here somewhere. She tapped the lower right corner of her napkin. That's where Alcyonius is. But you're not sure how far? Frank asked. Hazel frowned and shook her head. I'm pretty sure it's only accessible by boat or plane. Boat, Percy said immediately. Fine, Hazel said. It shouldn't be too far from Seward, if we can get to Seward safely. Percy gazed out the window. So much to do and only twenty-four hours left. This time tomorrow, the Feast of Fortuna would be starting. Unless they unleashed death and made it back to camp, the giant's army would flood into the valley. The Romans would be the main course at a monster dinner. Across the street, a frosty black sand beach led down to the sea, which was as smooth as steel. The ocean here felt different, still powerful, but freezing, slow, and primal. No gods controlled that water, at least no gods Percy knew. Neptune wouldn't be able to protect him. Percy wondered if he could even manipulate water here, or breathe underwater. A hyperborean giant lumbered across the street. Nobody in the cafe noticed. The giant stepped into the bay, cracking the ice under his sandals, and thrust his hands in the water. He brought out a killer whale in one fist. Apparently that wasn't what he wanted, because he threw the whale back and kept waiting. Good breakfast, Frank said. Who's ready for a train ride? The station wasn't far. They were just in time to buy tickets for the last train south. As his friends climbed on board, Percy said, 
Be with you in a sec, and ran back into the station. He got change from the gift shop and stood in front of the payphone. He'd never used a payphone before. They were strange antiques to him, like his mom's turntable or his teacher Chiron's Frank Sinatra cassette tapes. He wasn't sure how many coins it would take, or if he could even make a call go through, assuming he remembered the number correctly. Sally Jackson, he thought. That was his mom's name. And he had a stepdad. Paul. What did they think had happened to Percy? Maybe they had already held a memorial service. As near as he could figure, he'd lost seven months of his life. Sure, most of that had been during the school year, but still, not cool. He picked up the receiver and punched in a New York number, his mom's apartment. Voicemail. Percy should have figured. It would be like midnight in New York. They wouldn't recognize this number. Hearing Paul's voice on the recording hit Percy in the gut so hard he could barely speak at the tone. Mom, he said. Hey, I'm alive. Hera put me to sleep for a while, and then she took my memory, and... His voice faltered. How could he possibly explain all this? Anyway, I'm okay. I'm sorry. I'm on a quest. He winced. He shouldn't have said that. His mom knew all about quests, and now she'd be worried. I'll make it home. I promise. Love you. He put down the receiver. He stared at the phone, hoping it would ring back. The train whistle sounded. The conductor shouted, All aboard! Percy ran. He made it just as they were pulling up the steps, then climbed to the top of the double-decker car and slid into his seat. Hazel frowned. You okay? Yeah, he croaked. Just made a call. She and Frank seemed to get that. They didn't ask for details. Soon they were heading south along the coast, watching the landscape go by. Percy tried to think about the quest, but for an ADHD kid like him, the train wasn't the easiest place to concentrate. Cool things kept happening outside. Bald eagles soared overhead. The train raced over bridges and along cliffs where glacial waterfalls tumbled thousands of feet down the rocks. They passed forests buried in snowdrifts, big artillery guns, to set off small avalanches and prevent uncontrolled ones, Hazel explained, and lakes so clear they reflected the mountains like mirrors so the world looked upside down. Brown bears lumbered through the meadows. Hyperborean giants kept appearing in the strangest places. One was lounging in a lake like it was a hot tub. Another was using a pine tree as a toothpick. A third sat in a snowdrift, playing with two live moose like they were action figures. The train was full of tourists, ooing and eyeing and snapping pictures. But Percy felt sorry they couldn't see the Hyperboreans. They were missing the really good shots. Meanwhile, Frank studied a map of Alaska that he'd found in the seat pocket. He located Hubbard Glacier, which looked discouragingly far away from Seward. He kept running his finger along the coastline, frowning with concentration. What are you thinking? Percy asked. Just possibilities, Frank said. Percy didn't know what that meant, but he let it go. After about an hour, Percy started to relax. They bought hot chocolate from the dining car. The seats were warm and comfortable, and he thought about taking a nap. Then a shadow passed overhead. 
Tourists murmured in excitement and started taking pictures. Eagle! One yelled. Eagle! said another. Huge eagle! said a third. That's no eagle, Frank said. Percy looked up just in time to see the creature make a second pass. It was definitely larger than an eagle, with a sleek black body the size of a Labrador retriever. Its wingspan was at least ten feet across. There's another one, Frank pointed. Strike that. Three. Four. Okay, we're in trouble. The creatures circled the train like vultures, delighting the tourists. Percy wasn't delighted. The monsters had glowing red eyes, sharp beaks, and vicious talons. Percy felt for his pen in his pocket. Those things look... familiar. Seattle, Hazel said. The Amazons had one in a cage. They're... Then several things happened at once. The emergency brake screeched, pitching them forward. Tourists screamed and tumbled through the aisles. The monsters swooped down, shattering the glass roof of the car, and the entire train toppled off the rails. Chapter 39 Percy Percy went weightless. His vision blurred. Claws grabbed his arms and lifted him into the air. Below, train wheels squealed and metal crashed. Glass shattered. Passengers screamed. When his eyesight cleared, he saw the beast that was carrying him aloft. It had the body of a panther, sleek, black, and feline, with the wings and head of an eagle. Its eyes glowed blood red. Percy squirmed. The monster's front talons were wrapped around his arms like steel bands. He couldn't free himself or reach his sword. He rose higher and higher in the cold wind. Percy had no idea where the monster was taking him, but he was pretty sure he wouldn't like it when he got there. He yelled, mostly out of frustration. Then something whistled by his ear. An arrow sprouted from the monster's neck. The creature shrieked and let go. Percy fell, crashing through tree branches until he slammed into a snowbank. He groaned, looking up at a massive pine tree he'd just shredded. He managed to stand. Nothing seemed broken. Frank stood to his left, shooting down the creatures as fast as he could. Hazel was at his back, swinging her sword at any monster that came close. But there were too many swarming around them, at least a dozen. Percy drew Riptide. He sliced the wing off one monster and sent it spiraling into a tree, then sliced through another that burst into dust. But the defeated ones began to reform immediately. What are these things? he yelled. Griffins, Hazel said. We have to get them away from the train. Percy saw what she meant. The train cars had fallen over and their roofs had shattered. Tourists were stumbling around in shock. Percy didn't see anybody seriously injured, but the griffins were swooping toward anything that moved. The only thing keeping them away from the mortals was a glowing gray warrior in camouflage. Frank's pet Spartus. Percy glanced over and noticed Frank's spear was gone. Used your last charge? Yeah, Frank shot another griffin out of the sky. I had to help the mortals. The spear just dissolved. Percy nodded. Part of him was relieved. He didn't like this skeleton warrior. Part of him was disappointed, because that was one less weapon they had at their disposal. But he didn't fault Frank. Frank had done the right thing. Let's move the fight, Percy said. Away from the tracks. 
They stumbled through the snow, smacking and slicing griffins that reformed from dust every time they were killed. Percy had had no experience with griffins. He'd always imagined them as huge, noble animals, like lions with wings. But these things reminded him more of vicious pack hunters, flying hyenas. About fifty yards from the tracks, the trees gave way to an open marsh. The ground was so spongy and icy, Percy felt like he was racing across bubble wrap. Frank was running out of arrows. Hazel was breathing hard. Percy's own sword swings were getting slower. He realized they were alive only because the griffins weren't trying to kill them. The griffins wanted to pick them up and carry them off somewhere. Maybe to their nests, Percy thought. Then he tripped over something in the tall grass, a circle of scrap metal about the size of a tractor tire. It was a massive bird's nest, a griffin's nest. The bottom littered with old pieces of jewelry, an imperial gold dagger, a dented centurion's badge, and two pumpkin-sized eggs that looked like real gold. Percy jumped into the nest. He pressed his sword tip against one of the eggs. Back off, or I break it. The griffin squawked angrily. They buzzed around the nest and snapped their beaks, but they didn't attack. Hazel and Frank stood back to back with Percy, their weapons ready. Griffins collect gold. Hazel said. They're crazy for it. Look, more nests over there. Frank knocked his last arrow. So if these are their nests, where were they trying to take Percy? That thing was flying away with him. Percy's arm still throbbed where the griffin had grabbed him. Alcyonius, he guessed. Maybe they're working for him. Are these things smart enough to take orders? I don't know, Hazel said. I never fought them when I lived here. I just read about them at camp. Weaknesses? Frank asked. Please tell me they have weaknesses. Hazel scowled. Horses. They hate horses. Natural enemies or something. I wish Orion was here. The griffins shrieked. They swirled around the nest with their red eyes glowing. Guys, Frank said nervously, I see legion relics in this nest. I know, Percy said. That means other demigods died here, or... Frank... It'll be okay, Percy promised. One of the griffins dived in. Percy raised his sword, ready to stab the egg. The monster veered off, but the other griffins were losing their patience. Percy couldn't keep this standoff going much longer. He glanced around the fields, desperately trying to formulate a plan. About a quarter mile away, a Hyperborean giant was sitting in the bog, peacefully picking mud from between his toes with a broken tree trunk. I've got an idea. Percy said. Hazel, all the gold in these nests, do you think you can use it to cause a distraction? I, I guess. Just give us enough time for a head start. When I say go, run for that giant. Frank gaped at him. You want us to run toward a giant? Trust me, Percy said. Ready? Go! Hazel thrust her hand upward. From a dozen nests across the marsh, golden objects shot into the air. Jewelry, weapons, coins, gold nuggets, and most importantly, griffin eggs. The monsters shrieked and flew after their eggs, frantic to save them. Percy and his friends ran. Their feet splashed and crunched through the frozen marsh. Percy poured on speed, but he could hear the griffins closing behind them, and now the monsters were really angry. The giant hadn't noticed the commotion yet. He was inspecting his toes for mud his face sleepy and peaceful. 
his white whiskers glistening with ice crystals. Around his neck was a necklace of found objects, garbage cans, car doors, moose antlers, camping equipment, even a toilet. Apparently, he'd been cleaning up the wilderness. Percy hated to disturb him, especially since it meant taking shelter under the giant's thighs. But they didn't have much choice. Under, he told his friends. Crawl under. They scrambled between the massive blue leg and flattened themselves in the mud, crawling as close as they could to his loincloth. Percy tried to breathe through his mouth, but it wasn't the most pleasant hiding spot. What's the plan? Frank hissed. Get flattened by a blue rump? Lay low, Percy said. Only move if you have to. The griffins arrived in a wave of angry beaks, talons, and wings, swarming around the giant, trying to get under his legs. The giant rumbled in surprise. He shifted. Percy had to roll to avoid getting crushed by his large, hairy rear. The hyperborean grunted, a little more irritated. He swatted at the griffins, but they squawked in outrage and began pecking at his legs and hands. Roo! the giant bellowed. He took a deep breath and blew out a wave of cold air. Even under the protection of the giant's legs, Percy could feel the temperature drop. The griffin's shrieking stopped abruptly, replaced by the thunk, thunk, thunk of heavy objects hitting the mud. Come on, Percy told his friends. Carefully. They squirmed out from under the giant. All around the marsh, trees were glazed with frost. A huge swath of the bog was covered in fresh snow. Frozen griffins stuck out of the ground like feathery popsicle sticks, their wings still spread, beaks open, eyes wide with surprise. Percy and his friends scrambled away, trying to keep out of the giant's vision, but the big guy was too busy to notice them. He was trying to figure out how to string a frozen griffin onto his necklace. Percy, Hazel wiped the ice and mud from her face. How did you know the giant could do that? I almost got hit by hyperborean breath once, he said. We'd better move. The griffins won't stay frozen forever. Chapter 40 Percy They walked over land for about an hour, keeping the train tracks in sight but staying in the cover of the trees as much as possible. Once they heard a helicopter flying in the direction of the train wreck. Twice they heard the screech of griffins, but they sounded a long way off. As near as Percy could figure, it was about midnight when the sun finally set. It got cold in the woods. The stars were so thick Percy was tempted to stop and gawk at them. Then the northern lights cranked up. They reminded Percy of his mom's gas stovetop back home when she had the flame on low, waves of ghostly blue flames rippling back and forth. That's amazing, Frank said. Bears, Hazel pointed. Sure enough, a couple of brown bears were lumbering in the meadow a few hundred feet away, their coats gleaming in the starlight. They won't bother us, Hazel promised. Just give them a wide berth. Percy and Frank didn't argue. As they trudged on, Percy thought about all the crazy places he'd seen. None of them had left him speechless like Alaska. He could see why it was a land beyond the gods. Everything here was rough and untamed. There were no rules, no prophecies, no destinies. 
just the harsh wilderness and a bunch of animals and monsters. Mortals and demigods came here at their own risk. Percy wondered if this was what Gia wanted, for the whole world to be like this. He wondered if that would be such a bad thing. Then he put the thought aside. Gia wasn't a gentle goddess. Percy had heard what she planned to do. She wasn't like the Mother Earth you might read about in a children's fairy tale. She was vengeful and violent. If she ever woke up fully, she'd destroy human civilization. After another couple of hours, they stumbled across a tiny village between the railroad tracks and a two-lane road. The city limit sign said, Moose Pass. Standing next to the sign was an actual moose. For a second, Percy thought it might be some sort of statue for advertising. Then the animal bounded into the woods. They passed a couple of houses, a post office, and some trailers. Everything was dark and closed up. On the other end of town was a store with a picnic table and an old rusted petrol pump in front. The store had a hand-painted sign that read, Moose Pass Gas. That's just wrong, Frank said. By silent agreement, they collapsed around the picnic table. Percy's feet felt like blocks of ice, very sore blocks of ice. Hazel put her head in her hands and passed out, snoring. Frank took out his last sodas and some granola bars from the train ride and shared them with Percy. They ate in silence, watching the stars, until Frank said, Did you mean what you said earlier? Percy looked across the table. About what? In the starlight, Frank's face might have been alabaster, like an old Roman statue. About being proud that we're related. Percy tapped his granola bar on the table. Well, let's see. You single-handedly took out three basilisks while I was sipping green tea and wheat germ, you held off an army of Lestragonians so that our plane could take off in Vancouver. You saved my life by shooting down that griffin. And you gave up the last charge on your magic spear to help some defenseless mortals. You are, hands down, the nicest child of the war god I've ever met. Maybe the only nice one. So what do you think? Frank stared up at the northern lights, still cooking across the stars on low heat. It's just... I was supposed to be in charge of this quest. The Centurion and all. I feel like you guys have had to carry me. Not true, Percy said. I'm supposed to have these powers I haven't figured out how to use, Frank said bitterly. Now I don't have a spear, and I'm almost out of arrows. And I'm scared. I'd be worried if you weren't scared, Percy said. We're all scared. But the Feast of Fortuna is... Frank thought about it. It's after midnight, isn't it? That means it's June 24th now. The feast starts tonight at sundown. We have to find our way to Hubbard Glacier, defeat a giant who is undefeatable in his home territory, and get back to Camp Jupiter before they're overrun. All in less than 18 hours. And when we free Thanatos, Percy said, he might claim your life. And Hazel's. Believe me, I've been thinking about it. Frank gazed at Hazel, still snoring lightly. Her face was buried under a mass of curly brown hair. She's my best friend, Frank said. I lost my mom, my grandmother. I can't lose her, too. Percy thought about his old life. His mom in New York, K. 
Camp Half-Blood, Annabeth. He'd lost all of that for eight months. Even now, with the memories coming back, he'd never been this far away from home before. He'd been to the underworld and back. He'd faced death dozens of times. But sitting at this picnic table, thousands of miles away, beyond the power of Olympus, he'd never been so alone. Except for Hazel and Frank. I'm not going to lose either of you, he promised. I'm not going to let that happen. And Frank, you are a leader. Hazel would say the same thing. We need you. Frank lowered his head. He seemed lost in thought. Finally, he leaned forward until his head bumped the picnic table. He started to snore in harmony with Hazel. Percy sighed. Another inspiring speech from Jackson, he said to himself. Rest up, Frank. Big day ahead. At dawn, the store opened up. The owner was a little surprised to find three teenagers crashed out on his picnic table. But when Percy explained that they had stumbled away from last night's train wreck, the guy felt sorry for them and treated them to breakfast. He called a friend of his, an Inuit native who had a cabin close to Seward. Soon they were rumbling along the road in a beat-up Ford pickup that had been new about the time Hazel was born. Hazel and Frank sat in back. Percy rode up front with a leathery old man who smelled like smoked salmon. He told Percy stories about Bear and Raven, the Inuit gods, and all Percy could think was that he hoped he didn't meet them. He had enough enemies already. The truck broke down a few miles outside Seward. The driver didn't seem surprised, as though this happened to him several times a day. He said they could wait for him to fix the engine, but since Seward was only a few miles away, they decided to walk it. By mid-morning, they climbed over a rise in the road and saw a small bay ringed with mountains. The town was a thin crescent on the right-hand shore, with wharves extending into the water and a cruise ship in the harbor. Percy shuddered. He'd had bad experiences with cruise ships. Seward, Hazel said. She didn't sound happy to see her old home. They'd already lost a lot of time, and Percy didn't like how fast the sun was rising. The road curved around the hillside, but it looked like they could get to town faster going straight across the meadows. Percy stepped off the road. Come on. The ground was squishy, but he didn't think much about it until Hazel shouted, Percy, no! His next step went straight through the ground. He sank like a stone until the earth closed over his head, and the earth swallowed him. Chapter 41 Hazel Your bow! Hazel shouted. Frank didn't ask questions. He dropped his pack and slipped the bow off his shoulder. Hazel's heart raced. She hadn't thought about this boggy soil, muskeg, since before she had died. Now, too late, she remembered the dire warnings the locals had given her. Marshy silt and decomposed plants made a surface that looked completely solid, but it was even worse than quicksand. It could be twenty feet deep or more, and impossible to escape. She tried not to think what would happen if it were deeper than the length of the bow. Hold one end, she told Frank. Don't let go. She grabbed the other end, took a deep breath, and jumped into the bog. The earth closed over her head. Instantly, she was frozen in a memory. Not now, she wanted to scream. Ella said I was done with blackouts. Oh, but my dear, said the voice of Gia, 
This is not one of your blackouts. This is a gift from me. Hazel was back in New Orleans. She and her mother sat in the park near their apartment, having a picnic breakfast. She remembered this day. She was seven years old. Her mother had just sold Hazel's first precious stone, a small diamond. Neither of them had yet realized Hazel's curse. Queen Marie was in an excellent mood. She had bought orange juice for Hazel and champagne for herself, and beignets sprinkled with chocolate and powdered sugar. She'd even bought Hazel a new box of crayons and a pad of paper. They sat together, Queen Marie humming cheerfully while Hazel drew pictures. The French Quarter woke up around them, ready for Mardi Gras. Jazz bands practiced. Floats were being decorated with fresh-cut flowers. Children laughed and chased each other, decked in so many colored necklaces they could barely walk. The sunrise turned the sky to red gold, and the warm, steamy air smelled of magnolias and roses. It had been the happiest morning of Hazel's life. You could stay here. Her mother smiled, but her eyes were blank white. The voice was Gia's. This is fake, Hazel said. She tried to get up, but the soft bed of grass made her lazy and sleepy. The smell of baked bread and melting chocolate was intoxicating. It was the morning of Mardi Gras, and the world seemed full of possibilities. Hazel could almost believe she had a bright future. What is real? asked Gia, speaking through her mother's face. Is your second life real, Hazel? You're supposed to be dead. Is it real that you're sinking into a bog, suffocating? Let me help my friend. Hazel tried to force herself back to reality. She could imagine her hand clenched on the end of the bow, but even that was starting to feel fuzzy. Her grip was loosening. The smell of magnolias and roses was overpowering. Her mother offered her a beignet. No, Hazel thought. This isn't my mother. This is Gia tricking me. You want your old life back, Gia said. I can give you that. This moment can last for years. You can grow up in New Orleans, and your mother will adore you. You'll never have to deal with the burden of your curse. You can be with Sammy. It's an illusion, Hazel said, choking on the sweet scent of flowers. You are an illusion, Hazel Levesque. You were only brought back to life because the gods have a task for you. I may have used you, but Nico used you and lied about it. You should be glad I captured him. Captured? A feeling of panic rose in Hazel's chest. What do you mean? Gia smiled, sipping her champagne. The boy should have known better than to search for the doors. But no matter, it's not really your concern. Once you release Thanatos, you'll be thrown back into the underworld to rot forever. Frank and Percy won't stop that from happening. Would real friends ask you to give up your life? Tell me who is lying and who tells you the truth. Hazel started to cry. Bitterness welled up inside her. She'd lost her life once. She didn't want to die again. That's right. 
Gia purred. You were destined to marry Sammy. Do you know what happened to him after you died in Alaska? He grew up and moved to Texas. He married and had a family. But he never forgot you. He always wondered why you disappeared. He's dead now, a heart attack in the 1960s. The life you could have had together always haunted him. Stop it, Hazel screamed. You took that from me. And you can have it again, Gia said. I have you in my embrace, Hazel. You'll die anyway. If you give up, at least I can make it pleasant for you. Forget saving Percy Jackson. He belongs to me. I'll keep him safe in the earth until I'm ready to use him. You can have an entire life in your final moments. You can grow up, marry Sammy. All you have to do is let go. Hazel tightened her grip on the bow. Below her, something grabbed her ankles, but she didn't panic. She knew it was Percy, suffocating, desperately grasping for a chance at life. Hazel glared at the goddess. I'll never cooperate with you. Let us go. Her mother's face dissolved. The New Orleans morning melted into darkness. Hazel was drowning in mud, one hand on the bow, Percy's hands around her ankles, deep in the darkness. Hazel wiggled the end of the bow frantically. Frank pulled her up with such force it nearly popped her arm out of the socket. When she opened her eyes, she was lying in the grass covered in muck. Percy sprawled at her feet, coughing and spitting mud. Frank hovered over them, yelling, Oh gods! Oh gods! Oh gods! He yanked some extra clothes from his bag and started toweling off Hazel's face, but it didn't do much good. He dragged Percy farther from the muskeg. You were down there so long, Frank cried. I didn't think... Oh, gods, don't ever do something like that again. He wrapped Hazel in a bear hug. Can't breathe, she choked out. Sorry. Frank went back to toweling and fussing over them. Finally, he got them to the side of the road, where they sat and shivered and spit up mud clods. Hazel couldn't feel her hands. She wasn't sure if she was cold or in shock, but she managed to explain about the muskeg and the vision she'd seen while she was under. Not the part about Sammy. That was still too painful to say out loud, but she told them about Gia's offer of a fake life and the goddess's claim that she'd captured her brother Nico. Hazel didn't want to keep that to herself. She was afraid the despair would overwhelm her. Percy rubbed his shoulders. His lips were blue. You... you saved me, Hazel. We'll figure out what happened to Nico, I promise. Hazel squinted at the sun, which was now high in the sky. The warmth felt good, but it didn't stop her trembling. Does it seem like Gia let us go too easily? Percy plucked a mud clod from his hair. Maybe she still wants us as pawns. Maybe she was just saying things to mess with your mind. She knew what to say, Hazel agreed. She knew how to get to me. Frank put his jacket around her shoulders. This is a real life. You know that, right? We're not going to let you die again. 
He sounded so determined. Hazel didn't want to argue, but she didn't see how Frank could stop death. She pressed her coat pocket, where Frank's half-burned firewood was still securely wrapped. She wondered what would have happened to him if she'd sunk in the mud forever. Maybe that would have saved him. Fire couldn't have gotten to the wood down there. She would have made any sacrifice to keep Frank safe. Perhaps she hadn't always felt that strongly, but Frank had trusted her with his life. He believed in her. She couldn't bear the thought of any harm coming to him. She glanced at the rising sun. Time was running out. She thought about Hilla, the Amazon queen back in Seattle. Hilla would have dueled Otrera two nights in a row by now, assuming she had survived. She was counting on Hazel to release death. She managed to stand. The wind coming off Resurrection Bay was just as cold as she remembered. We should get going. We're losing time. Percy gazed down the road. His lips were returning to their normal color. Any hotels or something where we could clean off? I mean, hotels that accept mud people? I'm not sure, Hazel admitted. She looked at the town below and couldn't believe how much it had grown since 1942. The main harbor had moved east as the town had expanded. Most of the buildings were new to her, but the grid of downtown streets seemed familiar. She thought she recognized some warehouses along the shore. I might know a place we can freshen up. Chapter 42 Hazel When they got into town, Hazel followed the same route she'd used 70 years ago, the last night of her life, when she'd come home from the hills and found her mother missing. She led her friends along 3rd Avenue. The railroad station was still there. The big white two-story Seward Hotel was still in business, though it had expanded to twice its old size. They thought about stopping there, but Hazel didn't think it would be a good idea to traipse into the lobby covered in mud, nor was she sure the hotel would give a room to three miners. Instead, they turned toward the shoreline. Hazel couldn't believe it, but her old home was still there, leaning over the water on barnacle-encrusted piers. The roof sagged. The walls were perforated with holes like buckshot. The door was boarded up, and a hand-painted sign read, Rooms, crossed out, Storage, crossed out, Available. Come on, she said. Uh, you sure it's safe? Frank asked. Hazel found an open window and climbed inside. Her friends followed. The room hadn't been used in a long time. Their feet kicked up dust that swirled in the buckshot beams of sunlight. Moldering cardboard boxes were stacked along the walls. Their faded labels read, Greeting Cards, Assorted, Seasonal. Why several hundred boxes of season's greetings had wound up crumbling to dust in a warehouse in Alaska, Hazel had no idea. But it felt like a cruel joke, as if the cards were for all the holidays she'd never gotten to celebrate. Decades of Christmases, Easter's, birthdays, Valentine's. It's warmer in here, at least. Frank said. Guess no running water? Maybe I can go shopping. I'm not as muddy as you guys. I could find us some clothes. Hazel only half heard him. She climbed over a stack of boxes in the corner that used to be her sleeping area. An old sign was propped against the wall. Gold prospecting supplies. She thought she'd find a bare wall behind it. But when she moved the sign, 
most of her photos and drawings were still pinned there. The sign must have protected them from sunlight and the elements. They seemed not to have aged. Her crayon drawings of New Orleans looked so childish. Had she really made them? Her mother stared out at her from one photograph, smiling in front of her business sign, Queen Marie's Grigri, Charms Sold, Fortunes Told. Next to that was a photo of Sammy at the carnival. He was frozen in time with his crazy grin, his curly black hair, and those beautiful eyes. If Gia was telling the truth, Sammy had been dead for over forty years. Had he really remembered Hazel all that time? Or had he forgotten the peculiar girl he used to go riding with, the girl who shared one kiss and a birthday cupcake with him before disappearing forever? Frank's fingers hovered over the photo. Who? He saw that she was crying and clamped back his question. Sorry, Hazel. This must be really hard. Do you want some time? No, she croaked. No, it's fine. Is that your mother? Percy pointed to the photo of Queen Marie. She looks like you. She's beautiful. Then Percy studied the picture of Sammy. Who is that? Hazel didn't understand why he looked so spooked. That's... that's Sammy. He was my, uh, friend from New Orleans. She forced herself not to look at Frank. I've seen him before, Percy said. You couldn't have, Hazel said. That was in 1941. He's... he's probably dead now. Percy frowned. I guess. Still. He shook his head, like the thought was too uncomfortable. Frank cleared his throat. Look, we passed a store on the last block. We've got a little money left. Maybe I should go get you guys some food and clothes and, I don't know, a hundred boxes of wet wipes or something? Hazel put the gold prospecting sign back over her mementos. She felt guilty even looking at that old picture of Sammy, with Frank trying to be so sweet and supportive. It didn't do her any good to think about her old life. That would be great, she said. You're the best, Frank. The floorboards creaked under his feet. Well, I'm the only one not completely covered in mud anyway. Be back soon. Once he was gone, Percy and Hazel made temporary camp. They took off their jackets and tried to scrape off the mud. They found some old blankets in a crate and used them to clean up. They discovered that boxes of greeting cards made pretty good places to rest if you arrange them like mattresses. Percy set his sword on the floor where it glowed with a faint bronze light. Then he stretched out on a bed of Merry Christmas 1982. Thank you for saving me, he said. I should have told you that earlier. Hazel shrugged. You would have done the same for me. Yes, he agreed. But when I was down in the mud... I remembered that line from Ella's prophecy about the son of Neptune drowning. I thought, this is what it means. I'm drowning in the earth. I was sure I was dead. His voice quavered like it had his first day at Camp Jupiter when Hazel had shown him the shrine of Neptune. Back then, she had wondered if Percy was the answer to her problems. The descendant of Neptune that Pluto had promised would take away her curse someday. Percy had seemed so intimidating and powerful, like a real hero. Only now, she knew that Frank was a descendant of Neptune, too. Frank wasn't the most impressive-looking hero in the world, but he'd trusted her with his life. He tried so hard to protect her, 
Even his clumsiness was endearing. She'd never felt more confused, and since she had spent her whole life confused, that was saying a lot. Percy, she said, that prophecy might not have been complete. Frank thought Ella was remembering a burned page. Maybe you'll drown someone else. He looked at her cautiously. You think so? Hazel felt strange reassuring him. He was so much older and more in command, but she nodded confidently. You're going to make it back home. You're going to see your girlfriend, Annabeth. You'll make it back too, Hazel, he insisted. We're not going to let anything happen to you. You're too valuable to me, to the camp, and especially to Frank. Hazel picked up an old valentine. The lacy white paper fell apart in her hands. I don't belong in this century. Nico only brought me back so I could correct my mistakes. Maybe get into Elysium. There's more to your destiny than that, he said. We're supposed to fight Gia together. I'm going to need you at my side way longer than just today. And Frank, you can see the guy is crazy about you. This life is worth fighting for, Hazel. She closed her eyes. Please, don't get my hopes up. I can't... The window creaked open. Frank climbed in, triumphantly holding some shopping bags. Success! He showed off his prizes. From a hunting store, he'd gotten a new quiver of arrows for himself, some rations, and a coil of rope. For the next time we run across Muskeg, he said. From a local tourist shop, he had bought three sets of fresh clothes, some towels, some soap, some bottled water, and yes, a huge box of wet wipes. It wasn't exactly a hot shower, but Hazel ducked behind a wall of greeting card boxes to clean up and change. Soon she was feeling much better. This is your last day, she reminded herself. Don't get too comfortable. The Feast of Fortuna. All the luck that happened today, good or bad, was supposed to be an omen of the entire year to come. One way or another, their quest would end this evening. She slipped the piece of driftwood into her new coat pocket. Somehow she'd have to make sure it stayed safe, no matter what happened to her. She could bear her own death as long as her friends survived. So, she said, now we find a boat to Hubbard Glacier. She tried to sound confident, but it wasn't easy. She wished Orion were still with her. She'd much rather ride into battle on that beautiful horse. Ever since they'd left Vancouver, she'd been calling to him in her thoughts, hoping he would hear her and come find her. But that was just wishful thinking. Frank patted his stomach. If we're going to battle to the death, I want lunch first. I found the perfect place. Frank led them to a shopping plaza near the wharf where an old railway car had been converted to a diner. Hazel had no memory of the place from the 1940s, but the food smelled amazing. While Frank and Percy ordered, Hazel wandered down to the docks and asked some questions. When she came back, she needed cheering up. Even the cheeseburger and fries didn't do the trick. We're in trouble, she said. I tried to get a boat, but I miscalculated. No boats? Frank asked. Oh, I can get a boat, Hazel said. But the glacier is farther than I thought. Even at top speed, we couldn't get there until tomorrow morning. Percy turned pale. Maybe I could make the boat go faster? Even if you could, Hazel said. From what the captains tell me, 
It's treacherous. Icebergs, mazes of channels to navigate. You'd have to know where you were going. A plane? Frank asked. Hazel shook her head. I asked the boat captains about that. They said we could try, but it's a tiny airfield. You have to charter a plane two, three weeks in advance. They ate in silence after that. Hazel's cheeseburger was excellent, but she couldn't concentrate on it. She'd eaten about three bites when a raven settled on the telephone pole above and began to croak at them. Hazel shivered. She was afraid it would speak to her like the other raven so many years ago. The last night, tonight. She wondered if ravens always appeared to children of Pluto when they were about to die. She hoped Nico was still alive, and Gia had just been lying to make her unsettled. Hazel had a bad feeling that the goddess was telling the truth. Nico had told her that he'd search for the doors of death from the other side. If he'd been captured by Gia's forces, Hazel might have lost the only family she had. She stared at her cheeseburger. Suddenly, the raven's cawing changed to a strangled yelp. Frank got up so fast that he almost toppled the picnic table. Percy drew his sword. Hazel followed their eyes. Perched on top of the pole, where the raven had been, a fat, ugly griffin glared down at them. It burped, and raven feathers fluttered from its beak. Hazel stood and unsheathed her spatha. Frank knocked an arrow. He took aim, but the griffin shrieked so loudly the sound echoed off the mountains. Frank flinched, and his shot went wide. I think that's a call for help, Percy warned. We have to get out of here. With no clear plan, they ran for the docks. The griffin dove after them. Percy slashed at it with his sword, but the griffin veered out of reach. They took the steps to the nearest pier and raced to the end. The griffin swooped after them, its front claws extended for the kill. Hazel raised her sword, but an icy wall of water slammed sideways into the griffin and washed it into the bay. The griffin squawked and flapped its wings. It managed to scramble onto the pier where it shook its black fur like a wet dog. Frank grunted. Nice one, Percy. Yeah, he said. Didn't know if I could still do that in Alaska. But bad news... Look over there. About a mile away, over the mountains, a black cloud was swirling. A whole flock of griffins, dozens at least. There was no way they could fight that many, and no boat could take them away fast enough. Frank knocked another arrow. Not going down without a fight. Percy raised Riptide. I'm with you. Then Hazel heard a sound in the distance, like the whinnying of a horse. She must have been imagining it, but she cried out desperately, Orion, over here! A tan blur came ripping down the street and onto the pier. The stallion materialized right behind the griffin, brought down his front hooves, and smashed the monster to dust. Hazel had never been so happy in her life. Good horse! Really good horse! Frank backed up and almost fell off the pier. How? He followed me, Hazel beamed, because he's the best horse ever. Now get on. All three of us, Percy said. Can he handle it? Orion whinnied indignantly. All right, no need to be rude, Percy said. Let's go. They climbed on, Hazel in front, 
Frank and Percy balancing precariously behind her. Frank wrapped his arms around her waist, and Hazel thought that if this was going to be her last day on Earth, it wasn't a bad way to go out. Run, Orion, she cried, to Hubbard Glacier. The horse shot across the water, his hooves turning the top of the sea to steam. Chapter 43 Hazel Riding Orion, Hazel felt powerful, unstoppable, absolutely in control. A perfect combination of horse and human. She wondered if this was what it was like to be a centaur. The boat captains in Seward had warned her it was 300 nautical miles to the Hubbard Glacier, a hard, dangerous journey, but Orion had no trouble. He raced over the water at the speed of sound, heating the air around them so that Hazel didn't even feel the cold. On foot, she never would have felt so brave. On horseback, she couldn't wait to charge into battle. Frank and Percy didn't look so happy. When Hazel glanced back, their teeth were clenched and their eyeballs were bouncing around in their heads. Frank's cheeks jiggled from the G-force. Percy sat in back, hanging on tight, desperately trying not to slip off the horse's rear. Hazel hoped that didn't happen. The way Orion was moving, she might not notice he was gone for fifty or sixty miles. They raced through icy straits, past blue fjords and cliffs with waterfalls spilling into the sea. Orion jumped over a breaching humpback whale and kept galloping, startling a pack of seals off an iceberg. It seemed like only minutes before they zipped into a narrow bay. The water turned the consistency of shaved ice in blue, sticky syrup. Orion came to a halt on a frozen turquoise slab. A half a mile away stood Hubbard Glacier. Even Hazel, who'd seen glaciers before, couldn't quite process what she was looking at. Purple snow-capped mountains marched off in either direction, with clouds floating around their middles like fluffy belts. In a massive valley between two of the largest peaks, a ragged wall of ice rose out of the sea, filling the entire gorge. The glacier was blue and white with streaks of black, so that it looked like a hedge of dirty snow left behind on a sidewalk after a snowplow had gone by, only four million times as large. As soon as Orion stopped, Hazel felt the temperature drop. All that ice was sending off waves of cold, turning the bay into the world's largest refrigerator. The eeriest thing was a sound like thunder that rolled across the water. What is that? Frank gazed at the clouds above the glacier. A storm? No, Hazel said. Ice cracking and shifting. Millions of tons of ice. You mean that thing is breaking up? Frank asked. As if on cue... A sheet of ice silently calved off the side of the glacier and crashed into the sea, spraying water and frozen shrapnel several stories high. A millisecond later, the sound hit them. A boom, almost as jarring as Orion hitting the sound barrier. We can't get close to that thing, Frank said. We have to, Percy said. The giant is at the top. Orion nickered. Jeez, Hazel. Percy said, tell your horse to watch his language. Hazel tried not to laugh. What did he say? With the cussing removed, he said he can get us to the top. Frank looked incredulous. I thought the horse couldn't fly. This time Orion whinnied so angrily, 
Even Hazel could guess he was cursing. Dude, Percy told the horse, I've gotten suspended for saying less than that. Hazel, he promises you'll see what he can do as soon as you give the word. Um, hold on then, you guys, Hazel said nervously. Orion, giddy up. Orion shot toward the glacier like a runaway rocket, barreling straight across the slush like he wanted to play chicken with a mountain of ice. The air grew colder, the crackling of the ice grew louder. As Orion closed the distance, the glacier loomed so large, Hazel got vertigo just trying to take it all in. The side was riddled with crevices and caves, spiked with jagged ridges like axe blades. Pieces were constantly crumbling off, some no larger than snowballs, some the size of houses. When they were about fifty yards from the base, a thunderclap rattled Hazel's bones, and a curtain of ice that would have covered Camp Jupiter calved away and fell toward them. Look out, Frank shouted, which seemed a little unnecessary to Hazel. Orion was way ahead of him. In a burst of speed, he zigzagged through the debris, leaping over chunks of ice and clambering up the face of the glacier. Percy and Frank both cussed like horses and held on desperately while Hazel wrapped her arms around Orion's neck. Somehow, they managed not to fall off as Orion scaled the cliffs, jumping from foothold to foothold with impossible speed and agility. It was like falling down a mountain in reverse. Then it was over. Orion stood proudly at the top of a ridge of ice that loomed over the void. The sea was now three hundred feet below them. Orion whinnied a challenge that echoed off the mountains. Percy didn't translate, but Hazel was pretty sure Orion was calling out to any other horses that might be in the bay. Beat that, you punks. Then he turned and ran inland across the top of the glacier, leaping a chasm fifty feet across. There! Percy pointed. The horse stopped. Ahead of them stood a frozen Roman camp, like a giant-sized ghastly replica of Camp Jupiter. The trenches bristled with ice spikes. The snow-brick ramparts glared blinding white. Hanging from the guard towers, banners of frozen blue cloth shimmered in the Arctic sun. There was no sign of life. The gates stood wide open. No sentries walked the walls. Still, Hazel had an uneasy feeling in her gut. She remembered the cave in Resurrection Bay, where she'd worked to raise Alcyonius, the oppressive sense of malice and the constant boom, 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 like Gia's heartbeat. This place felt similar, as if the earth were trying to wake up and consume everything, as if the mountains on either side wanted to crush them and the entire glacier to pieces. Orion trotted skittishly. Frank, Percy said, how about we go on foot from here? Frank sighed with relief. Thought you'd never ask. They dismounted and took some tentative steps. The ice seemed stable, covered with a fine carpet of snow so that it wasn't too slippery. Hazel urged Orion forward. Percy and Frank walked on either side, sword and bow ready. They approached the gates without being challenged. Hazel was trained to spot pits, snares, trip lines, and all sorts of other traps Roman legions had faced for eons in enemy territory, but she saw nothing, just the yawning icy gates and the frozen banners crackling in the wind. She could see straight down the Via Pretoria. 
At the crossroads, in front of the snow brick Principia, a tall, dark robed figure stood, bound in icy chains. Thanatos, Hazel murmured. She felt as if her soul were being pulled forward, drawn toward death like dust toward a vacuum. Her vision went dark. She almost fell off Orion, but Frank caught her and propped her up. We've got you, he promised. Nobody's taking you away. Hazel gripped his hand. She didn't want to let go. He was so solid, so reassuring. But Frank couldn't protect her from death. His own life was as fragile as a half-burned piece of wood. I'm all right, she lied. Percy looked around uneasily. No defenders? No giant? This has to be a trap. Obviously, Frank said but I don't think we have a choice. Before Hazel could change her mind, she urged Orion through the gates. The layout was so familiar. Cohort barracks, baths, armory. It was an exact replica of Camp Jupiter, except three times as big. Even on horseback, Hazel felt tiny and insignificant, as if they were moving through a model city constructed by the gods. They stopped ten feet from the robed figure, now that she was here, Hazel felt a reckless urge to finish the quest. She knew she was in more danger than when she'd been fighting the Amazons, or fending off the Griffins, or climbing the glacier on Orion's back. Instinctively, she knew that Thanatos could simply touch her, and she would die. But she also had a feeling that if she didn't see the quest through, if she didn't face her fate bravely, she would still die in cowardice and failure. The judges of the dead wouldn't be lenient to her a second time. Orion cantered back and forth, sensing her disquiet. Hello? Gazel forced out the word. Mr. Death? The hooded figure raised his head. Instantly, the whole camp stirred to life. Figures in Roman armor emerged from the barracks, the Principia, the armory, and the canteen, but they weren't human. They were shades, the chattering ghosts Hazel had lived with for decades in the fields of Asphodel. Their bodies weren't much more than wisps of black vapor, but they managed to hold together sets of scale armor, greaves, and helmets. Frost-covered swords were strapped to their waists. Pila and dented shields floated in their smoky hands. The plumes on the centurion's helmets were frozen and ragged. Most of the shades were on foot, but two soldiers burst out of the stables in a golden chariot pulled by ghostly black steeds. When Orion saw the horses, he stamped the ground in outrage. Frank gripped his bow. Yep, here's the trap. Chapter 44 Hazel The ghosts formed ranks and encircled the crossroads. There were about a hundred in all, not an entire legion, but more than a cohort. Some carried the tattered lightning bolt banners of the 12th Legion, 5th Cohort, Michael Varus's doomed expedition from the 1980s. Others carried standards and insignia Hazel didn't recognize, as if they died at different times, on different quests, maybe not even from Camp Jupiter. Most were armed with imperial gold weapons, more imperial gold than the entire 12th Legion possessed. Hazel could feel the combined power of all that gold humming around her, even scarier than the crackling of the glacier. 
She wondered if she could use her power to control the weapons, maybe disarm the ghosts, but she was afraid to try. Imperial gold wasn't just a precious metal. It was deadly to demigods and monsters. Trying to control that much at once would be like trying to control plutonium in a reactor. If she failed, she might wipe Hubbard Glacier off the map and kill her friends. Thanatos! Hazel turned to the robed figure. We're here to rescue you. If you control these shades, tell them... Her voice faltered. The god's hood fell away and his robes dropped off as he spread his wings, leaving him in only a sleeveless black tunic belted at the waist. He was the most beautiful man Hazel had ever seen. His skin was the color of teakwood, dark and glistening like Queen Marie's old seance table. His eyes were as honey gold as Hazel's. He was lean and muscular, with a regal face and black hair flowing down his shoulders. His wings glimmered in shades of blue, black, and purple. Hazel reminded herself to breathe. Beautiful was the right word for Thanatos. Not handsome, or hot, or anything like that. He was beautiful the way an angel is beautiful. Timeless, perfect, remote. Oh, she said in a small voice. The god's wrists were shackled in icy manacles, with chains that ran straight into the glacier floor. His feet were bare, shackled around the ankles and also chained. It's Cupid, Frank said. A really buff Cupid, Percy agreed. You compliment me, Thanatos said. His voice was as gorgeous as he was, deep and melodious. I am frequently mistaken for the god of love. Death has more in common with love than you might imagine. But I am death. I assure you. Hazel didn't doubt it. She felt as if she were made of ashes. Any second, she might crumble and be sucked into the vacuum. She doubted Thanatos even needed to touch her to kill her. He could simply tell her to die. She would keel over on the spot, her soul obeying that beautiful voice and those kind eyes. We're... we're here to save you, she managed. Where's Alcyonius? Save me? Thanatos narrowed his eyes. Do you understand what you are saying, Hazel Levesque? Do you understand what that will mean? Percy stepped forward. We're wasting time. He swung his sword at the god's chains. Celestial bronze rang against the ice, but Riptide stuck to the chain like glue. Frost began creeping up the blade. Percy pulled frantically. Frank ran to help. Together, they just managed to yank Riptide free before the frost reached their hands. That won't work, Thanatos said simply. As for the giant, he is close. These shades are not mine. They are his. Thanatos' eyes scanned the ghost soldiers. They shifted uncomfortably, as if an arctic wind were rattling through their ranks. So how do we get you out? Hazel demanded. Thanatos turned his attention back to her. Daughter of Pluto, child of my master, you of all people should not wish me released. Don't you think I know that? Hazel's eyes stung, but she was done being afraid. She'd been a scared little girl seventy years ago. She'd lost her mother because she acted too late. Now she was a soldier of Rome. She wasn't going to fail again. She wasn't going to let down her friends. 
Listen, Death. She drew her cavalry sword, and Orion reared in defiance. I didn't come back from the underworld and travel thousands of miles to be told that I'm stupid for setting you free. If I die, I die. I'll fight this whole army if I have to. Just tell us how to break your chains. Thanatos studied her for a heartbeat. Interesting. You do understand that these shades were once demigods like you. They fought for Rome. They died without completing their heroic quests. Like you, they were sent to Asphodel. Now Gia has promised them a second life if they fight for her today. Of course, if you release me and defeat them, they will have to return to the underworld where they belong. For treason against the gods, they will face eternal punishment. They are not so different from you, Hazel of Esk. Are you sure you want to release me and damn these souls forever? Frank clenched his fists. That's not fair. Do you want to be freed or not? Fair, Death mused. You'd be amazed how often I hear that word, Frank Jong, and how meaningless it is. Is it fair that your life will burn so short and bright? Was it fair when I guided your mother to the underworld? Frank staggered like he'd been punched. No, Death said sadly. Not fair, and yet it was her time. There is no fairness in Death. If you free me, I will do my duty. But of course these shades will try to stop you. So if we let you go, Percy summed up, we get mobbed by a bunch of black vapor dudes with gold swords. Fine. How do we break those chains? Thanatos smiled. Only the fire of life can melt the chains of death. Without the riddles, please, Percy asked. Frank drew a shaky breath. It isn't a riddle. Frank, no, Hazel said weakly. There's got to be another way. Laughter boomed across the glacier. A rumbling voice said, My friends, I've waited so long. Standing at the gates of the camp was Alcyonius. He was even larger than the giant polybates they'd seen in California. He had metallic golden skin, armor made from platinum links, and an iron staff the size of a totem pole. His rust-red dragon legs pounded against the ice as he entered the camp. Precious stones glinted in his red-braided hair. Hazel had never seen him fully formed, but she knew him better than she knew her own parents. She had made him. For months, she had raised gold and gems from the earth to create this monster. She knew the diamonds he used for a heart. She knew the oil that ran in his veins instead of blood. More than anything, she wanted to destroy him. The giant approached, grinning at her with his solid silver teeth. Ah, Hazel Levesque, he said. You cost me dearly. If not for you, I would have risen decades ago, and this world would already be Gia's. But no matter. He spread his hands, showing off the ranks of ghostly soldiers. Welcome, Percy Jackson. Welcome, Frank Jong. I am Alcyonius, the bane of Pluto, the new master of death. 
and this is your new legion. Chapter 45 Frank No fairness in death. Those words kept ringing in Frank's head. The golden giant didn't scare him. The army of shades didn't scare him. But the thought of freeing Thanatos made Frank want to curl into the fetal position. This god had taken his mother. Frank understood what he had to do to break those chains. Mars had warned him. He'd explained why he loved Emily Jong so much. She always put her duty first, ahead of everything, even her life. Now it was Frank's turn. His mother's sacrifice medal felt warm in his pocket. He finally understood his mother's choice, saving her comrades at the cost of her own life. He got what Mars had been trying to tell him. Duty. Sacrifice. They mean something. In Frank's chest, a hard knot of anger and resentment, a lump of grief he'd been carrying since the funeral, finally began to dissolve. He understood why his mother never came home. Some things were worth dying for. Hazel? He tried to keep his voice steady. That package you're keeping for me? I need it. Hazel glanced at him in dismay. Sitting on Orion, she looked like a queen, powerful and beautiful, her brown hair swept over her shoulders and a wreath of icy mist around her head. Frank, no, there has to be another way. Please, I, I know what I'm doing. Thanatos smiled and lifted his manacled wrists. You're right, Frank Jong, sacrifices must be made. Great, if death approved of his plan, Frank was pretty sure he wasn't going to like the results. The giant Alcyonius stepped forward, his reptilian feet shaking the ground. What package do you speak of, Frank Jong? Have you brought me a present? Nothing for you, golden boy, Frank said, except a whole lot of pain. The giant roared with laughter. Spoken like a child of Mars. Too bad I have to kill you, and this one... My, my, I've been waiting to meet the famous Percy Jackson. The giant grinned. His silver teeth made his mouth look like a car grill. I've followed your progress, son of Neptune, said Alcyonius. Your fight with Kronos, well done. Gia hates you above all others, except perhaps for that upstart Jason Grace. I'm sorry I can't kill you right away. But my brother Polybates wishes to keep you as a pet. He thinks it will be amusing when he destroys Neptune to have the god's favorite son on a leash. After that, of course, Gia has plans for you. Yeah, flattering, Percy raised Riptide. But actually, I'm the son of Poseidon. I'm from Camp Half-Blood. The ghosts stirred. Some drew swords and lifted shields. Alcyonius raised his hand, gesturing for them to wait. Greek, Roman, it doesn't matter, the giant said easily. We will crush both camps underfoot. You see, the Titans didn't think big enough. They planned to destroy the gods in their new home of America. We giants know better. To kill a weed, you must pull up its roots. Even now. While my forces destroy your little Roman camp, 
My brother, Porphyrian, is preparing for the real battle in the ancient lands. We will destroy the gods at their source. The ghosts pounded their swords against their shields. The sound echoed across the mountains. The source? Frank asked. You mean Greece? Alcyonius chuckled. No need to worry about that, son of Mars. You won't live long enough to see our ultimate victory. I will replace Pluto as lord of the underworld. I already have death in my custody. With Hazel Levesque in my service, I will have all the riches under the earth as well. Hazel gripped her spatha. I don't do service. Oh, but you gave me life, Alcyonius said. True, we hope to awaken Gia during World War II. That would have been glorious. But really, the world is in almost as bad a shape now. Soon your civilization will be wiped out. The doors of death will stand open. Those who serve us will never perish. Alive or dead, you three will join my army. Percy shook his head. Fat chance, golden boy. You're going down. Wait! Hazel spurred her horse toward the giant. I raised this monster from the earth. I'm the daughter of Pluto. It's my place to kill him. Ah, little Hazel. Alcyonius planted his staff on the ice. His hair glittered with millions of dollars worth of gems. Are you sure you will not join us of your own free will? You could be quite precious to us. Why die again? Hazel's eyes flashed with anger. She looked down at Frank and pulled the wrapped-up piece of firewood from her coat. Are you sure? Yeah, he said. She pursed her lips. You're my best friend, too, Frank. I should have told you that. She tossed him the stick. Do what you have to. And Percy? Can you protect him? Percy gazed at the ranks of ghostly Romans. Against a small army? Sure, no problem. Then I've got Golden Boy, Hazel said. She charged the giant. Chapter 46 Frank Frank unwrapped the firewood and knelt at the feet of Thanatos. He was aware of Percy standing over him, swinging his sword and yelling in defiance as the ghosts closed in. He heard the giant bellow and Orion whinny angrily, but he didn't dare look. His hands trembling, he held his piece of tinder next to the chains on death's right leg. He thought about flames, and instantly the wood blazed. Horrible warmth spread through Frank's body, the icy metal began to melt, the flame so bright it was more blinding than the ice. Good, Thanatos said. Very good, Frank Jong. Frank had heard about people's lives flashing before their eyes, but now he experienced it literally. He saw his mother the day she left for Afghanistan. She smiled and hugged him. He tried to breathe in her jasmine scent so he'd never forget it. I will always be proud of you, Frank, she said. Someday you'll travel even farther than I. You'll bring our family full circle. Years from now, our descendants will be telling stories about the hero, Frank Jong, their great, great, great... She poked him in the belly for old time's sake. 
it would be the last time Frank smiled for months. He saw himself at the picnic bench in Moose Pass, watching the stars and the northern lights as Hazel snored softly beside him. Percy sang, Frank, you are a leader. We need you. He saw Percy disappearing into the muskeg, then Hazel diving after him. Frank remembered how alone he had felt holding on to the bow, how utterly powerless. He had pleaded with the Olympian gods, even Mars, to help his friends, but he knew they were beyond the gods' reach. With a clank, the first chain broke. Quickly, Frank stabbed the firewood at the chain on Death's other leg. He risked a glance over his shoulder. Percy was fighting like a whirlwind. In fact, he was a whirlwind. A miniature hurricane of water and ice vapor churned around him as he waded through the enemy, knocking Roman ghosts away, deflecting arrows and spears. Since when did he have that power? He moved through the enemy lines, and even though he seemed to be leaving Frank undefended, the enemy was completely focused on Percy. Frank wasn't sure why. Then he saw Percy's goal. One of the black vapory ghosts was wearing the lion-skin cape of a standard bearer and holding a pole with a golden eagle, icicles frozen to its wings. The Legion's Standard Frank watched as Percy plowed through a line of legionnaires, scattering their shields with his personal cyclone. He knocked down the standard bearer and grabbed the eagle. You want it back? He shouted at the ghosts. Come and get it! He drew them away and Frank couldn't help being awed by his bold strategy. As much as those shades wanted to keep Thanatos chained, they were Roman spirits. Their minds were fuzzy at best, like the ghosts Frank had seen in Asphodel. But they remembered one thing clearly. They were supposed to protect their eagle. Still, Percy couldn't fight off that many enemies forever. Maintaining a storm like that had to be difficult. Despite the cold, his face was already beaded with sweat. Frank looked for Hazel. He couldn't see her or the giant. Watch your fire, boy, Death warned. You don't have any to waste. Frank cursed. He'd gotten so distracted he hadn't noticed the second chain had melted. He moved his fire to the shackles on the god's right hand. The piece of tinder was almost half gone now. Frank started to shiver. More images flashed through his mind— he saw Mars sitting at his grandmother's bedside, looking at Frank with those nuclear explosion eyes. Your Juno's secret weapon. Have you figured out your gift yet? He heard his mother say, You can be anything. Then he saw grandmother's stern face, her skin as thin as rice paper, her white hair spread across her pillow. Yes, Fai Jong, your mother was not simply boosting your self-esteem. She was telling you the literal truth. He thought of the grizzly bear his mother had intercepted at the edge of the woods. He thought of the large black bird circling over the flames of their family mansion. The third chain snapped. Frank thrust the tinder at the last shackle. His body was racked with pain. Yellow splotches danced in his eyes. He saw Percy at the end of the Via Principalis holding off the army of ghosts. He'd overturned the chariot and destroyed several buildings but every time he threw off a wave of attackers in his hurricane, the ghosts simply got up and charged again. Every time Percy slashed one of them down with his sword, the ghost reformed immediately. Percy had backed up almost as far as he could go. Behind him was the side gate of the camp, and about twenty feet beyond that, the edge of the glacier.
As for Hazel, she and Alcyoneus had managed to destroy most of the barracks in their battle. Now they were fighting in the wreckage at the main gate. Orion was playing a dangerous game of tag, charging around the giant while Alcyoneus swiped at them with his staff, knocking over walls and cleaving massive chasms in the ice. Only Orion's speed kept them alive. Finally, Death's last chain snapped. With a desperate yelp, Frank jabbed his firewood into a pile of snow and extinguished the flame. His pain faded. He was still alive. But when he took out the piece of tinder, it was no more than a stub, smaller than a candy bar. Thanatos raised his arms. Free, he said with satisfaction. Great, Frank blinked the spots from his eyes. Then do something. Thanatos gave him a calm smile. Do something? Of course, I will watch. Those who die in this battle will stay dead. Thanks, Frank muttered, slipping his firewood into his coat. Very helpful. You're most welcome, Thanatos said agreeably. Percy, Frank yelled. They can die now. Percy nodded understanding, but he looked worn out. His hurricane was slowing down. His strikes were getting slower. The entire ghostly army had him surrounded, gradually forcing him toward the edge of the glacier. Frank drew his bow to help. Then he dropped it. Normal arrows from a hunting store in Seward wouldn't do any good. Frank would have to use his gift. He thought he understood his powers at last. Something about watching the firewood burn, smelling the acrid smoke of his own life, had made him feel strangely confident. Is it fair your life burns so short and bright? Death had asked. No such thing is fair, Frank told himself. If I'm going to burn, it might as well be bright. He took one step toward Percy. Then, from across the camp, Hazel yelled in pain. Orion screamed as the giant got a lucky shot. His staff sent horse and rider tumbling over the ice, crashing into the ramparts. Hazel! Frank glanced back at Percy, wishing he had his spear. If he could just summon Gray, but he couldn't be in two places at once. Go help her! Percy yelled, holding the golden eagle aloft. I've got these guys. Percy didn't have them. Frank knew that. The son of Poseidon was about to be overwhelmed, but Frank ran to Hazel's aid. She was half buried in a collapsed pile of snow bricks. Orion stood over her trying to protect her, rearing and swatting at the giant with his front hooves. The giant laughed. Hello, little pony. You want to play? Alcyoneus raised his icy staff. Frank was too far away to help, but he imagined himself rushing forward, his feet leaving the ground. Be anything. He remembered the bald eagles they'd seen on the train ride. His body became smaller and lighter, his arms stretched into wings, and his sight became a thousand times sharper. He soared upward, then dove at the giant with his talons extended, his razor-sharp claws raking across the giant's eyes. Alcyoneus bellowed in pain. He staggered backward as Frank landed in front of Hazel and returned to his normal form. Frank! She stared at him in amazement, a cap of snow dripping off her head. What just... how did... Fool! Alcyoneus shouted. His face was slashed, black oil dripping into his eyes instead of blood. 
but the wounds were already closing. I am immortal in my homeland, Frank Jong, and thanks to your friend Hazel, my new homeland is Alaska. You cannot kill me here. We'll see, Frank said. Power coursed through his arms and legs. Hazel, get back on your horse. The giant charged, and Frank charged to meet him. He remembered the bear he'd met face to face when he was a child. As he ran, his body became heavier, thicker, rippling with muscles. He crashed into the giant as a full-grown grizzly, a thousand pounds of pure force. He was still small compared to Alcyonius, but he slammed into the giant with such momentum, Alcyonius toppled into an icy watchtower that collapsed on top of him. Frank sprang at the giant's head. A swipe of his claw was like a heavyweight fighter swinging a chainsaw. Frank bashed the giant's face back and forth until his metallic features began to dent. The giant mumbled in a stupor. Frank changed to his regular form. His backpack was still with him. He grabbed the rope he'd bought in Seward, quickly made a noose and fastened it around the giant's scaly dragon foot. Hazel, here! He tossed her the other end of the rope. I've got an idea, but we'll have to... Kill, uh, you, uh, Alcyonius muttered. Frank ran to the giant's head, picked up the nearest heavy object he could find, a legion shield, and slammed it into the giant's nose. The giant said, Ugh. Frank looked back at Hazel. How far can Orion pull this guy? Hazel just stared at him. You, you were a bird, then a bear, and... I'll explain later, Frank said. We need to drag this guy inland as fast and as far as we can. But Percy, Hazel said. Frank cursed. How could he have forgotten? Through the ruins of the camp, he saw Percy with his back to the edge of the cliff. His hurricane was gone. He held Riptide in one hand and the Legion's Golden Eagle in the other. The entire army of shades edged forward, their weapons bristling. Percy! Frank yelled. Percy glanced over. He saw the fallen giant and seemed to understand what was happening. He yelled something that was lost in the wind. Probably, go! Then he slammed Riptide into the ice at his feet. The entire glacier shuddered. Ghosts fell to their knees. Behind Percy, a wave surged up from the bay, a wall of gray water even taller than the glacier. Water shot from the chasms and crevices in the ice. As the wave hit, the back half of the camp crumbled. The entire edge of the glacier peeled away, cascading into the void, carrying buildings, ghosts, and Percy Jackson over the edge. Chapter 47 Frank Frank was so stunned that Hazel had to yell his name a dozen times before he realized Alcyonius was getting up again. He slammed his shield into the giant's nose until Alcyonius began to snore. Meanwhile, the glacier kept crumbling, the edge getting closer and closer. Thanatos glided toward them on his black wings, his expression serene. Ah, yes, he said with satisfaction. There go some souls, drowning, drowning. You'd best hurry, my friends, or you'll drown too. But Percy, Frank could barely speak his friend's name. 
Is he too soon to tell? As for this one, Thanatos looked down at Alcyonius with distaste. You'll never kill him here. You know what to do? Frank nodded numbly. I think so. Then our business is complete. Frank and Hazel exchanged nervous looks. Uh, Hazel faltered. You mean you won't? You're not going to... Claim your life? Thanatos asked. Well, let's see. He pulled a pure black iPad from thin air. Death tapped the screen a few times, and all Frank could think was, please don't let there be an app for reaping souls. I don't see you on the list, Thanatos said. Pluto gives me specific orders for escaped souls, you see. For some reason, he has not issued a warrant for yours. Perhaps he feels your life is not finished, or it could be an oversight. If you'd like me to call and ask... No, Hazel yelped. That's okay. Are you sure? Death asked helpfully. I have video conferencing enabled. I have his Skype address here somewhere. Really, no. Hazel looked as if several thousand pounds of worry had just been lifted from her shoulders. Thank you. Alcyonius mumbled. Frank hit him over the head again. Death looked up from his iPad. As for you, Frank Jong, it isn't your time either. You've got a little fuel left to burn. But don't think I'm doing either of you a favor. We will meet again under less pleasant circumstances. The cliff was still crumbling, the edge only twenty feet away now. Orion whinnied impatiently. Frank knew they had to leave, but there was one more question he had to ask. What about the doors of death? he said. Where are they? How do we close them? Ah, yes. A look of irritation flickered across Thanatos's face. The doors of me. Closing them would be good, but I fear it is beyond my power. How you would do it? I haven't the faintest idea. I can't tell you exactly where they are. The location isn't... Well, it's not entirely a physical place. They must be located through questing. I can tell you to start your search in Rome. The original Rome... You will need a special guide. Only one sort of demigod can read the signs that will ultimately lead you to the doors of me. Cracks appeared in the ice under their feet. Hazel patted Orion's neck to keep him from bolting. What about my brother? she asked. Is Nico alive? Thanatos gave her a strange look, possibly pity, though that didn't seem like an emotion death would understand. You will find the answer in Rome. And now I must fly south to your Camp Jupiter. I have a feeling there will be many souls to reap very soon. Farewell, demigods, until we meet again. Thanatos dissipated into black smoke. The cracks widened in the ice under Frank's feet. Hurry, he told Hazel. We've got to take Alcyonius about ten miles due north. He climbed onto the giant's chest and Orion took off, racing across the ice, dragging Alcyonius like the world's ugliest sled. It was a short trip. 
Orion rode the glacier like a highway, zipping across the ice, leaping crevices, and skidding down slopes that would have made a snowboarder's eyes light up. Frank didn't have to knock out Alcyonius too many times, because the giant's head kept bouncing and hitting the ice. As they raced along, the half-conscious golden boy mumbled a tune that sounded like jingle bells. Frank felt pretty stunned himself. He'd just turned into an eagle and a bear. He could still feel fluid energy rippling through his body, like he was halfway between a solid and liquid state. Not only that, Hazel and he had released death, and both of them had survived. And Percy. Frank swallowed down his fear. Percy had gone over the side of the glacier to save them. The son of Neptune shall drown. No, Frank refused to believe Percy was dead. They hadn't come all this way just to lose their friend. Frank would find him, but first they had to deal with Alcyonius. He visualized the map he had been studying on the train from Anchorage. He knew roughly where they were going, but there were no signs or markers on top of the glacier. He'd just have to take his best guess. Finally, Orion zoomed between two mountains into a valley of ice and rocks, like a massive bowl of frozen milk with bits of cocoa puffs. The giant's golden skin paled as if it were turning to brass. Frank felt a subtle vibration in his own body, like a tuning fork pressed against his sternum. He knew he'd crossed into friendly territory. Home territory. Here! Frank shouted. Orion veered to one side. Hazel cut the rope and Alcyonius went skidding past. Frank leaped off just before the giant slammed into a boulder. Immediately, Alcyonius jumped to his feet. What? Where? Who? His nose was bent in an odd direction. His wounds had healed, though his golden skin had lost some of its luster. He looked around for his iron staff, which was still back at Hubbard Glacier. Then he gave up and pounded the nearest boulder to pieces with his fist. You dare take me for a sleigh ride? He tensed and sniffed the air. That smell, like snuffed-out souls. Thanatos is free, huh? Bah, it doesn't matter. Gia still controls the doors of death. Now, why have you brought me here, son of Mars? To kill you, Frank said. Next question? The giant's eyes narrowed. I've never known a child of Mars who can change his form. But that doesn't mean you can defeat me. Do you think your stupid soldier of a father gave you the strength to face me in one-on-one -on -one combat? Hazel drew her sword. How about two-on-one? The giant growled and charged at Hazel, but Orion nimbly darted out of the way. Hazel slashed her sword across the back of the giant's calf, Black oil spouted from the wound. Alcyonius stumbled. You can't kill me, Thanatos or no. Hazel made a grabbing gesture with her free hand. An invisible force yanked the giant's jewel-encrusted hair backward. Hazel rushed in, slashed his other leg, and raced away before he could regain his balance. Stop that, Alcyonius shouted. This is Alaska. I am immortal in my homeland. Actually, Frank said, I have some bad news about that. See, I got more from my dad than strength. The giant snarled. What are you talking about, war brat? 
Tactics, Frank said. That's my gift from Mars. A battle can be won before it's ever fought by choosing the right ground. He pointed over his shoulder. We crossed the border a few hundred yards back. You're not in Alaska anymore. Can't you feel it, Al? You want to get to Alaska? You have to go through me. Slowly, understanding dawned in the giant's eyes. He looked down incredulously at his wounded legs. Oil still poured from his calves, turning the ice black. Impossible, the giant bellowed. I'll, I'll, gah! He charged at Frank, determined to reach the international boundary. For a split second, Frank doubted his plan. If he couldn't use his gift again, if he froze, he was dead. Then he remembered his grandmother's instructions. It helps if you know the creature well. Check. It also helps if you are in a life-and-death situation, such as combat. Double check. The giant kept coming. Twenty yards. Ten yards. Frank? Hazel called nervously. Frank stood his ground. I got this. Just before Alcyonius smashed into him, Frank changed. He'd always felt too big and clumsy. Now he used that feeling. His body swelled to massive size. His skin thickened. His arms changed to stout front legs. His mouth grew tusks and his nose elongated. He became the animal he knew best, the one he'd cared for, fed, bathed, and even given indigestion to at Camp Jupiter. Alcyonia slammed into a full-grown, ten-ton elephant. The giant staggered sideways, He screamed in frustration and slammed into Frank again, but Alcyonius was completely out of his weight division. Frank headbutted him so hard Alcyonius flew backward and landed spread-eagled on the ice. You can't kill me, Alcyonius growled. You can't. Frank turned back to his normal form. He walked up to the giant whose oily wounds were steaming. The gems fell out of his hair and sizzled in the snow. His golden skin began to corrode, breaking into chunks. Hazel dismounted and stood next to Frank, her sword ready. May I? Frank nodded. He looked into the giant's seething eyes. Here's a tip, Alcyonius. Next time you choose the biggest state for your home, don't set a base in the part that's only ten miles wide. Welcome to Canada, idiot. Hazel's sword came down on the giant's neck. Alcyonius dissolved into a pile of very expensive rocks. For a while, Hazel and Frank stood together, watching the remains of the giant melt into the ice. Frank picked up his rope. An elephant? Hazel asked. Frank scratched his neck. Yeah, it seemed like a good idea. He couldn't read her expression. He was afraid he'd finally done something so weird that she'd never want to be around him again. Frank Jong, lumbering klutz, child of Mars, part-time pachyderm. Then she kissed him. A real kiss on the lips. Much better than the kind of kiss she'd given Percy on the airplane. You are amazing, she said. And you make a very handsome elephant. Frank felt so flustered that he thought his boots might melt through the ice. Before he could say anything, a voice echoed across the valley. 
You haven't won. Frank looked up. Shadows were shifting across the nearest mountain, forming the face of a sleeping woman. You will never reach home in time, taunted the voice of Gia. Even now, Thanatos is attending the death of Camp Jupiter, the final destruction of your Roman friends. The mountain rumbled as if the whole earth were laughing. The shadows disappeared. Hazel and Frank looked at each other. Neither said a word. They climbed onto Orion and sped back toward Glacier Bay. Chapter 48 Frank Percy was waiting for them. He looked mad. He stood at the edge of the glacier, leaning on the staff with the golden eagle, gazing down at the wreckage he'd caused, several hundred acres of newly opened water dotted with icebergs and flotsam from the ruined camp. The only remains on the glacier were the main gates, which listed sideways, and a tattered blue banner lying over a pile of snow bricks. When they ran up to him, Percy said, Hey! Like they were just meeting for lunch or something. You're alive, Frank marveled. Percy frowned. The fall? That was nothing. I fell twice that far from the St. Louis Arch. You did what? Hazel asked. Never mind. The important thing was I didn't drown. So the prophecy was incomplete, Hazel grinned. It probably said something like, the son of Neptune will drown a whole bunch of ghosts. Percy shrugged. He was still looking at Frank like he was miffed. I got a bone to pick with you, Jong. You can turn into an eagle and a bear? And an elephant, Hazel said proudly. An elephant. Percy shook his head in disbelief. That's your family gift? You can change shape? Frank shuffled his feet. Um, yeah. Periclimenus, my ancestor, the Argonaut, he could do that. He passed down the ability. And he got that gift from Poseidon, Percy said. That's completely unfair. I can't turn into animals. Frank stared at him. Unfair? You can breathe underwater and blow up glaciers and summon freaking hurricanes. And it's unfair that I can be an elephant? Percy considered. Okay, I guess you got a point. But next time I say you're totally beast? Just shut up, Frank said. Please? Percy cracked a smile. If you guys are done, Hazel said, we need to go. Camp Jupiter is under attack. They could use that gold eagle. Percy nodded. One thing first, though. Hazel. There's about a ton of imperial gold weapons and armor at the bottom of the bay now, plus a really nice chariot. I'm betting that stuff could come in handy. It took them a long time. Too long. But they all knew those weapons could make the difference between victory and defeat if they got them back to camp in time. Hazel used her abilities to levitate some items from the bottom of the sea. Percy swam down and brought up more. Even Frank helped by turning into a seal, which was kind of cool, though Percy claimed his breath smelled like fish. It took all three of them to raise the chariot, but finally they'd managed to haul everything ashore to a black sand beach near the base of the glacier. They couldn't fit everything in the chariot, but they used Frank's rope to strap down most of the gold weapons 
and the best pieces of armor. It looks like Santa's sleigh, Frank said. Can Orion even pull that much? Orion huffed. Hazel, Percy said, I am seriously going to wash your horse's mouth with soap. He says yes, he can pull it, but he needs food. Hazel picked up an old Roman dagger, a pugio. It was bent and dull, so it wouldn't be much good in a fight, but it looked like solid imperial gold. Here you go, Orion, she said. High performance fuel. The horse took the dagger in his teeth and chewed it like an apple. Frank made a silent oath never to put his hand near that horse's mouth. I'm not doubting Orion's strength, he said carefully, but will the chariot hold up? The last one. This one has imperial gold wheels and axle, Percy said. It should hold. If not, Hazel said, this is going to be a short trip. But we're out of time. Come on. Frank and Percy climbed into the chariot. Hazel swung up onto Orion's back. Giddy up, she yelled. The horse's sonic boom echoed across the bay. They sped south, avalanches tumbling down the mountains as they passed. Chapter 49 Percy Four hours. That's how long it took the fastest horse on the planet to get from Alaska to San Francisco Bay, heading straight over the water down the northwest coast. That's also how long it took for Percy's memory to return completely. The process had started in Portland when he had drunk the Gorgon's blood, but his past life had still been maddeningly fuzzy. Now, as they headed back into the Olympian gods' territory, Percy remembered everything. The war with Kronos, his 16th birthday at Camp Half-Blood, his trainer Chiron the Centaur, his best friend Grover, his brother Tyson, and most of all, Annabeth. Two great months of dating and then boom. He'd been abducted by the alien known as Hera. Or Juno. Whatever. Eight months of his life stolen. Next time Percy saw the Queen of Olympus, he was definitely going to give her a goddess-sized slap upside the head. His friends and family must be going out of their minds. If Camp Jupiter was in such bad trouble, he could only guess what Camp Half-Blood must be facing without him. Even worse... Saving both camps would be only the beginning. According to Alcyonius, the real war would happen far away, in the homeland of the gods. The giants intended to attack the original Mount Olympus and destroy the gods forever. Percy knew that giants couldn't die unless demigods and gods fought them together. Nico had told him that. Annabeth had mentioned it too, back in August, when she'd speculated that the giants might be part of the new Great Prophecy what the Romans called the Prophecy of Seven. That was the downside of dating the smartest girl at camp. You learn stuff. He understood Juno's plan. Unite the Roman and Greek demigods to create an elite team of heroes, then somehow convince the gods to fight alongside them. But first, they had to save Camp Jupiter. The coastline began to look familiar. They raced past the Mendocino Lighthouse. Shortly afterward, Mount Tam and the Marin headlands loomed out of the fog. Orion shot straight under the Golden Gate Bridge into San Francisco Bay. They tore through Berkeley and into the Oakland Hills. When they reached the hilltop above the Caldecott Tunnel, Orion shuddered like a broken car and came to a stop, his chest heaving. Hazel patted his sides lovingly. 
You did great, Orion. The horse was too tired even to cuss. Of course I did great. What did you expect? Percy and Frank jumped off the chariot. Percy wished there'd been comfortable seats or an in-flight meal. His legs were wobbly. His joints were so stiff he could barely walk. If he went into battle like this, the enemy would call him Old Man Jackson. Frank didn't look much better. He hobbled to the top of the hill and peered down at the camp. Guys, you need to see this. When Percy and Hazel joined him, Percy's heart sank. The battle had begun and it wasn't going well. The Twelfth Legion was arrayed on the field of Mars, trying to protect the city. Scorpions fired into the ranks of the Earthborn. Hannibal the Elephant plowed down monsters right and left, but the defenders were badly outnumbered. On her pegasus Scipio, Reyna flew around the giant Polybates, trying to keep him occupied. The Lares had formed shimmering purple lines against a mob of black, vaporous shades in ancient armor. Veteran demigods from the city had joined the battle and were pushing their shield wall against an onslaught of wild centaurs. Giant eagles circled the battlefield doing aerial combat with two snake-haired ladies in green bargain-mart vests, Stheno and Uriel. The Legion itself was taking the brunt of the attack, but their formation was breaking. Each cohort was an island in a sea of enemies. The Cyclopes' siege tower shot glowing green cannonballs into the city, blasting craters in the forum, reducing houses to ruins. As Percy watched, a cannonball hit the Senate house and the dome partially collapsed. We're too late, Hazel said. No, Percy said. They're still fighting. We can do this. Where's Lupa? Frank asked, desperation creeping into his voice. She and the wolves, they should be here. Percy thought about his time with the wolf goddess. He'd come to respect her teachings, but he'd also learned that wolves had limits. They weren't frontline fighters. They only attacked when they had vastly superior numbers, and usually under the cover of darkness. Besides, Lupa's first rule was self-sufficiency. She would help her children as much as she could, train them to fight. But in the end, they were either predator or prey. Romans had to fight for themselves. They had to prove their worth or die. That was Lupa's way. She did what she could, Percy said. She slowed down the army on its way south. Now it's up to us. We've got to get the Gold Eagle and these weapons to the Legion. But Orion is out of steam, Hazel said. We can't haul this stuff ourselves. Maybe we don't have to. Percy scanned the hilltops. If Tyson had gotten his dream message in Vancouver, help might be close. He whistled as loud as he could, a good New York cab whistle that would have been heard all the way from Times Square to Central Park. Shadows rippled in the trees. A huge black shape bounded out of nowhere, a mastiff the size of an SUV with a cyclops and a harpy on her back. Hellhound! Frank scrambled backward. It's okay, Percy grinned. These are friends. Brother! Tyson climbed off and ran toward Percy. Percy tried to brace himself, but it was no good. Tyson slammed into him and smothered him in a hug. For a few seconds, Percy could only see black spots and lots of flannel. Then Tyson let go and laughed with delight, looking Percy over with that massive baby brown eye. You are not dead, he said. I like it when you are not dead. 
Ella fluttered to the ground and began preening her feathers. Ella found a dog, she announced. A large dog and a cyclops. Was she blushing? Before Percy could decide, his black mastiff pounced on him, knocking Percy to the ground and barking so loudly that even Orion backed up. Hey, Mrs. O'Leary, Percy said. Yeah, I love you too, girl. Good dog. Hazel made a squeaking sound. You have a hellhound named Mrs. O'Leary? Long story. Percy managed to get to his feet and wipe off the dog slobber. You can ask your brother. His voice wavered when he saw Hazel's expression. He'd almost forgotten that Nico D'Angelo was missing. Hazel had told him what Thanatos had said about searching for the doors of death in Rome, and Percy was anxious to find Nico for his own reasons, to wring the kid's neck for having pretended he didn't know Percy when he first came to camp. Still, he was Hazel's brother, and finding him was a conversation for another time. Sorry, he said, but yeah, this is my dog, Mrs. O'Leary. Tyson, these are my friends, Frank and Hazel. Percy turned to Ella, who was counting all the barbs in one of her feathers. Are you okay? he asked. We were worried about you. Ella is not strong, she said. Cyclopes are strong. Tyson found Ella. Tyson took care of Ella. Percy raised his eyebrows. Ella was blushing. Tyson, he said. You big charmer, you. Tyson turned the same color as Ella's plumage. Um, no. He leaned down and whispered nervously, loud enough for all the others to hear. She is pretty. Frank tapped his head like he was afraid his brain had short-circuited. Anyway, there's this battle happening? Right, Percy agreed. Tyson, where's Annabeth? Is any other help coming? Tyson pouted. His big brown eye got misty. The big ship is not ready. Leo says tomorrow, maybe two days. Then they will come. We don't have two minutes, Percy said. Okay, here's the plan. As quickly as possible, he pointed out which were the good guys and the bad guys on the battlefield. Tyson was alarmed to learn that bad Cyclopes and bad Centaurs were in the giant's army. I have to hit pony men? Just scare them away, Percy promised. Um, Percy? Frank looked at Tyson with trepidation. I just don't want our friend here getting hurt. Is Tyson a fighter? Percy smiled. Is he a fighter? Frank, you're looking at General Tyson of the Cyclops Army. And by the way, Tyson, Frank is a descendant of Poseidon. Brother! Tyson crushed Frank in a hug. Percy stifled a laugh. Actually, he's more like a great, great... Oh, never mind. Yeah, he's your brother. Thanks, Frank mumbled through a mouthful of flannel. But if the Legion mistakes Tyson for an enemy... I've got it. Hazel ran to the chariot and dug out the biggest Roman helmet she could find, plus an old Roman banner embroidered with SPQR. She handed them to Tyson. Put those on, big guy. Then our friends will know you're on our team. Yay, Tyson said. I'm on your team. The helmet was ridiculously small, and he put the cape on backward, like a SPQR baby bib. It'll do, Percy said. Ella, just stay here. Stay safe. Safe, Ella repeated. Ella likes being safe. <laughs>
safety in numbers, safety deposit boxes. Ella will go with Tyson. What? Percy said. Oh, fine, whatever. Just don't get hurt. And Mrs. O'Leary? Roof. How do you feel about pulling a chariot? Chapter 50 Percy They were, without a doubt, the strangest reinforcements in Roman military history. Hazel rode Orion, who had recovered enough to carry one person at normal horse speed, though he cursed about his aching hooves all the way downhill. Frank transformed into a bald eagle, which Percy still found totally unfair, and soared above them. Tyson ran down the hill, waving his club and yelling, Bad pony men! Boo! While Ella fluttered around him, reciting facts from the old farmer's almanac. As for Percy, he rode Mrs. O'Leary into battle with a chariot full of imperial gold equipment clanking and clinking behind. The Golden Eagle standard of the Twelfth Legion raised high above him. They skirted the perimeter of the camp and took the northernmost bridge over the little Tiber, charging onto the field of Mars at the western edge of the battle. A horde of Cyclopes was hammering away at the campers of the Fifth Cohort, who were trying to keep their shields locked just to stay alive. Seeing them in trouble, Percy felt a surge of protective rage. These were the kids who'd taken him in. This was his family. He shouted, Fifth Cohort! and slammed into the nearest Cyclops. The last things the poor monster saw were Mrs. O'Leary's teeth. After the Cyclops disintegrated, and stayed disintegrated thanks to death, Percy leaped off his hellhound and slashed wildly through the other monsters. Tyson charged at the Cyclops' leader, Ma Gasket, her chainmail dress spattered with mud and decorated with broken spears. She gawked at Tyson and started to say, Tyson hit her in the head so hard, she spun in a circle and landed on her rump. Bad Cyclops lady, he bellowed. General Tyson says, go away! He hit her again, and Ma Gasket broke into dust. Meanwhile, Hazel charged around on Orion, slicing her spatha through one cyclops after another, while Frank blinded the enemies with his talons. Once every cyclops within fifty yards had been reduced to ashes, Frank landed in front of his troops and transformed into a human. His centurion's badge and mural crown gleamed on his winter jacket. Fifth cohort, he bellowed, get your imperial gold weapons right here. The campers recovered from their shock and mobbed the chariot. Percy did his best to hand out equipment quickly. Let's go, let's go, Dakota urged, grinning like a madman as he swigged red Kool-Aid from his flask. Our comrades need help. Soon the fifth cohort was equipped with new weapons and shields and helmets. They weren't exactly consistent. In fact, they looked like they'd been shopping at a King Midas clearance sale. But they were suddenly the most powerful cohort in the Legion. Follow the eagle, Frank ordered. To battle! The campers cheered. As Percy and Mrs. O'Leary charged onward, the entire cohort followed, Forty extremely shiny gold-plated warriors screaming for blood. They slammed into a herd of wild centaurs that were attacking the third cohort. When the campers of the third saw the eagle standard, they shouted insanely and fought with renewed effort. The centaurs didn't stand a chance. 
the two cohorts crushed them like a vice. Soon there was nothing left but piles of dust and assorted hooves and horns. Percy hoped Chiron would forgive him, but these centaurs weren't like the party ponies he'd met before. They were some other breed. They had to be defeated. Form ranks, the centurions shouted. The two cohorts came together, their military training kicking in. Shields locked, they marched into battle against the Earthborn. Frank shouted, Pila! A hundred spears bristled. When Frank yelled, Fire! They sailed through the air, a wave of death cutting through the six-armed monsters. The campers drew swords and advanced toward the center of the battle. At the base of the aqueduct, the first and second cohorts were trying to encircle Polybates, but they were taking a pounding. The remaining earthborn threw barrage after barrage of stone and mud. Carpoy grain spirits, those horrible little piranha cupids, were rushing through the tall grass, abducting campers at random, pulling them away from the line. The giant himself kept shaking basilisks out of his hair. Every time one landed, the Romans panicked and ran. Judging from their corroded shields and the smoking plumes on their helmets, they'd already learned about the basilisks' poison and fire. Raina soared above the giant, diving in with her javelin whenever he turned his attention to the ground troops. Her purple cloak snapped in the wind. Her golden armor gleamed. Polybates jabbed his trident and swung his weighted net, but Scipio was almost as nimble as Orion. Then Raina noticed the fifth cohort marching to their aid with the eagle. She was so stunned, the giant almost swatted her out of the air, but Scipio dodged. Raina locked eyes with Percy and gave him a huge smile. Romans! Her voice boomed across the field. Rally to the eagle! Demigods and monsters alike turned and gawked as Percy bounded forward on his hellhound. What is this? Polybates demanded. What is this? Percy felt a rush of power coursing through the standard staff. He raised the eagle and shouted, Twelfth Legion Fulminata! Thunder shook the valley. The eagle let loose a blinding flash, and a thousand tendrils of lightning exploded from its golden wings, arcing in front of Percy like the branches of an enormous deadly tree, connecting with the nearest monsters, leaping from one to another, completely ignoring the Roman forces. When the lightning stopped, the first and second cohorts were facing one surprised-looking giant and several hundred smoking piles of ash. The enemy's center line had been charred to oblivion. The look on Octavian's face was priceless. The centurion stared at Percy with shock, then outrage. Then, when his own troops started to cheer, he had no choice except to join the shouting. Rome! Rome! The giant Polybates backed up uncertainly, but Percy knew the battle wasn't over. The fourth cohort was still surrounded by Cyclopes. Even Hannibal the Elephant was having a hard time wading through so many monsters. His black Kevlar armor was ripped so that his label just said, Ant. The veterans and Larrys on the eastern flank were being pushed toward the city. The monster's siege tower was still hurling explosive green fireballs into the streets, the Gorgons had disabled the giant eagles and now flew unchallenged over the giant's remaining centaurs and the earthborn, trying to rally them. Stand your ground, Sino yelled. 
I've got free samples. Polybates bellowed. A dozen fresh basilisks fell out of his hair, turning the grass to poison yellow. You think this changes anything, Percy Jackson? I cannot be destroyed. Come forward, son of Neptune. I will break you. Percy dismounted. He handed Dakota the standard. You are the cohort's senior centurion. Take care of this. Dakota blinked, then he straightened with pride. He dropped his Kool-Aid flask and took the eagle. I will carry it with honor. Frank, Hazel, Tyson, Percy said. Help the fourth cohort. I've got a giant to kill. He raised Riptide, but before he could advance, horns blew in the northern hills. Another army appeared on the ridge. Hundreds of warriors in black and gray camouflage armed with spears and shields. Interspersed among their ranks were a dozen battle forklifts, their sharpened tines gleaming in the sunset and flaming bolts knocked in their crossbows. Amazons, Frank said. Great. Polybates laughed. You see, our reinforcements have arrived. Rome will fall today. The Amazons lowered their spears and charged down the hill. Their forklifts barreled into battle. The giant's army cheered. Until the Amazons changed course and headed straight for the monster's intact eastern flank. Amazons, forward! On the largest forklift stood a girl who looked like an older version of Reyna, in black combat armor with a glittering gold belt around her waist. Queen Hilla, said Hazel. She survived. The Amazon queen shouted, To my sister's aid! Destroy the monsters! Destroy! Her troops' cry echoed through the valley. Reyna wheeled her pegasus toward Percy. Her eyes gleamed. Her expression said, I could hug you right now. She shouted, Romans, advance! The battlefield descended into absolute chaos. Amazon and Roman lines swung toward the enemy like the doors of death themselves. But Percy had only one goal. He pointed at the giant. You, me, to the finish. They met by the aqueduct, which had somehow survived the battle so far. Polybates fixed that. He swiped his trident and smashed the nearest brick arch, unleashing a waterfall. Go on then, son of Neptune, Polybates taunted. Let me see your power. Does water do your bidding? Does it heal you? But I am born to oppose Neptune. The giant thrust his hand under the water. As the torrent passed through his fingers, it turned dark green. He flung some at Percy, who instinctively deflected it with his will. The liquid splattered the ground in front of him. With a nasty hiss, the grass withered and smoked. My touch turns water to poison, Polybates said. Let's see what it does to your blood. He threw his net at Percy, but Percy rolled out of the way. He diverted the waterfall straight into the giant's face. While Polybates was blinded, Percy charged. He plunged Riptide into the giant's belly, then withdrew it and vaulted away, leaving the giant roaring in pain. The strike would have dissolved any lesser monster, but Polybates just staggered and looked down at the golden ichor, the blood of immortals spilling from his wound. The cut was already closing.
Good try, demigod, he snarled. But I will break you still. Gotta catch me first, Percy said. He turned and bolted toward the city. What? The giant yelled incredulously. You run, coward? Stand still and die! Percy had no intention of doing that. He knew he couldn't kill Polybates alone, but he did have a plan. He passed Mrs. O'Leary, who looked up curiously with a gorgon wriggling in her mouth. I'm fine, Percy yelled as he ran by, followed by a giant screaming bloody murder. He jumped over a burning scorpion and ducked as Hannibal threw a cyclops across his path. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw Tyson pounding the earthborn into the ground like a game of whack-a-mole. Ella was fluttering above him, dodging missiles and calling out advice. The groin. The earthborn's groin is sensitive. Smash. Good, yes, Tyson found its groin. Percy needs help, Tyson called. I'm good. Die, Polybates yelled, closing fast. Percy kept running. In the distance, he saw Hazel and Orion galloping across the battlefield, cutting down centaurs and carpoi. One grain spirit yelled, Wheat! I'll give you wheat! But Orion stomped him into a pile of breakfast cereal. Queen Hilla and Reyna joined forces, Forklift and Pegasus riding together, scattering the dark shades of fallen warriors. Frank turned himself into an elephant and stomped through some cyclopes, and Dakota held the golden eagle high, blasting lightning at any monsters that dared to challenge the fifth cohort. All that was great, but Percy needed a different kind of help. He needed a god. He glanced back and saw the giant almost within arm's reach. To buy some time, Percy ducked behind one of the aqueduct's columns. The giant swung his trident. When the column crumbled, Percy used the unleashed water to guide the collapse, bringing down several tons of bricks on the giant's head. Percy bolted for the city limits. Terminus! he yelled. The nearest statue of the god was about sixty feet ahead. His stone eyes snapped open as Percy ran toward him. Completely unacceptable, he complained. Buildings on fire! Invaders! Get them out of here, Percy Jackson! I'm trying, he said. But there's this giant Polybates? Yes, I know! Wait, excuse me a moment. Terminus closed his eyes in concentration. A flaming green cannonball sailed overhead and suddenly vaporized. I can't stop all the missiles, Terminus complained. Why can't they be civilized and attack more slowly? I'm only one god. Help me kill the giant, Percy said, and this will all be over. A god and demigod working together. That's the only way to kill him. Terminus sniffed. I guard borders. I don't kill giants. It's not in my job description. Terminus, come on! Percy took another step forward, and the god shrieked indignantly. Stop right there, young man! No weapons inside the Pomerian line! But we're under attack! I don't care! Rules are rules! When people don't follow the rules, I get very, very angry. Percy smiled. Hold that thought. He sprinted back toward the giant. Hey, ugly! Roar! Polybates burst from the ruins of the aqueduct. The water was still pouring over him, turning to poison and creating a steaming marsh around his feet. 
You, you will die slowly, the giant promised. He picked up his trident, now dripping with green venom. All around them, the battle was winding down. As the last monsters were mopped up, Percy's friends started gathering, forming a ring around the giant. I will take you prisoner, Percy Jackson, Polybates snarled. I will torture you under the sea. Every day the water will heal you, and every day I will bring you closer to death. Great offer, Percy said, but I think I'll just kill you instead. Polybates bellowed in rage. He shook his head, and more basilisks flew from his hair. Get back, Frank warned. Fresh chaos spread through the ranks. Hazel spurred Orion and put herself between the basilisks and the campers. Frank changed form, shrinking into something lean and furry. A weasel? Percy thought Frank had lost his mind, but when Frank charged the basilisks, they absolutely freaked out. They slithered away with Frank chasing after them in hot, weasley pursuit. Polybates pointed his trident and ran toward Percy. As the giant reached the Pomerian line, Percy jumped aside like a bullfighter. Polybates barreled across the city limits. That's it, Terminus cried. That's against the rules. Polybates frowned, obviously confused that he was being told off by a statue. What are you? he growled. Shut up! He pushed the statue over and turned back to Percy. Now I'm mad, Terminus shrieked. I'm strangling you. Feel that? Those are my hands around your neck, you big bully. Get over here. I'm going to headbutt you so hard. Enough! The giant stepped on the statue and broke Terminus in three pieces, pedestal, body, and head. You didn't! shouted Terminus. Percy Jackson, you've got yourself a deal. Let's kill this upstart. The giant laughed so hard that he didn't realize Percy was charging until it was too late. Percy jumped up, vaulting off the giant's knee and drove Riptide straight through one of the metal mouths on Polybates' breastplate, sinking the celestial bronze hilt deep in his chest. The giant stumbled backward, tripping over Terminus's pedestal and crashing to the ground. While he was trying to get up, clawing at the sword in his chest, Percy hefted the head of the statue. You'll never win, the giant groaned. You cannot defeat me alone. I'm not alone. Percy raised the stone head above the giant's face. I'd like you to meet my friend Terminus. He's a god. Too late. Awareness and fear dawned in the giant's face. Percy smashed the god's head as hard as he could into Polybates' nose, and the giant dissolved, crumbling into a steaming heap of seaweed, reptile skin, and poisonous muck. Percy staggered away, completely exhausted. Ha! said the head of Terminus. That will teach him to obey the rules of Rome. For a moment, the battlefield was silent, except for a few fires burning and a few retreating monsters screaming in panic. A ragged circle of Romans and Amazons stood around Percy. Tyson, Ella, and Mrs. O'Leary were there. Frank and Hazel were grinning at him with pride. Orion was nibbling contentedly on a golden shield. The Romans began to chant, Percy! Percy! They mobbed him, 
Before he knew it, they were raising him on a shield. The cry changed to, Pre-tor! Pre-tor! Among the chanters was Raina herself, who held up her hand and grasped Percy's in congratulation. Then the mob of cheering Romans carried him around the Pomerian line, carefully avoiding Terminus's borders, and escorted him back home to Camp Jupiter. Chapter 51 Percy The Feast of Fortuna had nothing to do with Tuna, which was fine with Percy. Campers, Amazons, and Larrys crowded the mess hall for a lavish dinner. Even the fawns were invited, since they'd helped out by bandaging the wounded after the battle. Wind nymphs zipped around the room delivering orders of pizza, burgers, steaks, salads, Chinese food, and burritos, all flying at terminal velocity. Despite the exhausting battle, everyone was in good spirits. Casualties had been light, and the few campers who'd previously died and come back to life, like Gwen, hadn't been taken to the underworld. Maybe Thanatos had turned a blind eye, or maybe Pluto had given those folks a pass like he had for Hazel. Whatever the case, nobody complained. Colorful Amazon and Roman banners hung side by side from the rafters. The restored golden eagle stood proudly behind the praetor's table, and the walls were decorated with cornucopias, magical horns of plenty that spilled out recycling waterfalls of fruit, chocolate, and fresh-baked cookies. The cohorts mingled freely with the Amazons, jumping from couch to couch as they pleased, and for once the soldiers of the Fifth were welcome everywhere. Percy changed seats so many times he lost track of his dinner. There was a lot of flirting and arm wrestling, which seemed to be the same thing for the Amazons. At one point, Percy was cornered by Kinsey, the Amazon who'd disarmed him in Seattle. He had to explain that he already had a girlfriend. Fortunately, Kinsey took it well. She told him what had happened after they left Seattle, how Hilla had defeated her challenger Otrera in two consecutive duels to the death, so that the Amazons were now calling their queen Hilla twice kill. Otrera stayed dead the second time, Kinsey said, batting her eyes. We have you to thank for that. If you ever need a new girlfriend, well, I think you'd look great in an iron collar and an orange jumpsuit. Percy couldn't tell if she was kidding or not, he politely thanked her and changed seats. Once everyone had eaten and the plates stopped flying, Raina made a short speech. She formally welcomed the Amazons, thanking them for their help. Then she hugged her sister and everybody applauded. Raina raised her hands for quiet. My sister and I haven't always seen eye to eye. Hilla laughed. That's an understatement. She joined the Amazons, Raina continued. I joined Camp Jupiter. But looking around this room, I think we both made good choices. Strangely, our destinies were made possible by the hero you all just raised to Preter on the battlefield, Percy Jackson. More cheering. The sisters raised their glasses to Percy and beckoned him forward. Everybody asked for a speech, but Percy didn't know what to say. He protested that he really wasn't the best person for Preter, but the campers drowned him out with applause. Reyna took away his probatio neckplate. Octavian shot him a dirty look, then turned to the crowd and smiled like this was all his idea. He ripped open a teddy bear and pronounced good omens for the coming year. Fortuna would bless them. 
He passed his hand over Percy's arm and shouted, Percy Jackson, son of Neptune, first year of service. The Roman symbols burned onto Percy's arm, a trident, SPQR, and a single stripe. It felt like someone was pressing a hot iron into his skin, but Percy managed not to scream. Octavian embraced him and whispered, I hope it hurt. Then Raina gave him an eagle medal and purple cloak, symbols of the Praetor. You earned these, Percy. Queen Hilla pounded him on the back, and I've decided not to kill you. Um, thanks, Percy said. He made his way around the mess hall one more time because all the campers wanted him at their table. Vitellius the Lar followed, stumbling over his shimmering purple toga and readjusting his sword, telling everyone how he'd predicted Percy's rise to greatness. I demanded he join the fifth cohort, the ghost said proudly. Spotted his talent right away. Don the Fawn popped up in a nurse's hat, a stack of cookies in each hand. Man, congrats and stuff. Awesome. Hey, do you have any spare change? All the attention embarrassed Percy, but he was happy to see how well Hazel and Frank were being treated. Everyone called them the saviors of Rome, and they deserved it. There was even talk about reinstating Frank's great-grandfather, Shen Lun, to the Legion's role of honor. Apparently, he hadn't caused the 1906 earthquake after all. Percy sat for a while with Tyson and Ella, who were honored guests at Dakota's table. Tyson kept calling for peanut butter sandwiches, eating them as fast as the nymphs could deliver. Ella perched at his shoulder on top of the couch and nibbled furiously on cinnamon rolls. Cinnamon rolls are good for harpies, she said. June 24th is a good day, Roy Disney's birthday and Fortuna's feast, and Independence Day for Zanzibar and Tyson. She glanced at Tyson, then blushed and looked away. After dinner, the entire Legion got the night off. Percy and his friends drifted down to the city, which wasn't quite recovered from the battle, but the fires were out, most of the debris had been swept up, and the citizens were determined to celebrate. At the Pomerian line, the statue of Terminus wore a paper party hat. Welcome, Praetor, he said. You need any giant's faces smashed while you're in town? Just let me know. Thanks, Terminus, Percy said. I'll keep that in mind. Yes, good. Your Praetor's cape is an inch too low on the left. There, that's better. Where is my assistant, Julia? The little girl ran out from behind the pedestal, she was wearing a green dress tonight, and her hair was still in pigtails. When she smiled, Percy saw that her front teeth were starting to come in. She held up a box full of party hats. Percy tried to decline, but Julia gave him the big, adoring eyes. Ah, sure, he said. I'll take the blue crown. She offered Hazel a gold pirate hat. I'm going to be Percy Jackson when I grow up, she told Hazel solemnly. Hazel smiled and ruffled her hair. That's a good thing to be, Julia. Although, Frank said, picking out a hat shaped like a polar bear's head, Frank Jong would be good, too. Frank, Hazel said. They put on their hats and continued to the forum, which was lit up with multicolored lanterns. The fountains glowed purple. The coffee shops were doing a brisk business, and street musicians filled the air with the sounds of guitar, lyre, panpipes, and armpit noises. Percy didn't get that last one. 
Maybe it was an old Roman musical tradition. The goddess Iris must have been in a party mood, too. As Percy and his friends strolled past the damaged Senate house, a dazzling rainbow appeared in the night sky. Unfortunately, the goddess sent another blessing, too, a gentle rain of gluten-free raffle cupcake simulations, which Percy figured would either make cleaning up harder or rebuilding easier. The cupcakes would make great bricks. For a while, Percy wandered the streets with Hazel and Frank, who kept brushing shoulders. Finally, he said, I'm a little tired, guys. You go ahead. Hazel and Frank protested, but Percy could tell they wanted some time alone. As he headed back to camp, he saw Mrs. O'Leary playing with Hannibal in the field of Mars. Finally, she'd found a playmate she could roughhouse with. They frolicked around, slamming into each other, breaking fortifications, and generally having an excellent time. At the fort gates, Percy stopped and gazed across the valley. It seemed like so long ago that he'd stood here with Hazel, getting his first good view of camp. Now he was more interested in watching the eastern horizon. Tomorrow, maybe the next day, his friends from Camp Half-Blood would arrive. As much as he cared about Camp Jupiter, he couldn't wait to see Annabeth again. He yearned for his old life, New York and Camp Half-Blood but something told him it might be a while before he returned home. Gia and the Giants weren't done causing trouble. Not by a long shot. Reyna had given him the second Praetor's house on the Via Principalis, but as soon as Percy looked inside, he knew he couldn't stay there. It was nice, but it was also full of Jason Grace's stuff. Percy already felt uneasy taking Jason's title of Praetor. He didn't want to take the guy's house, too. Things would be awkward enough when Jason came back, and Percy was sure that he would be on that dragon-headed warship. Percy headed back to the 5th Cohort barracks and climbed into his bunk. He passed out instantly. He dreamed he was carrying Juno across the little Tiber. She was disguised as a crazy old bag lady, smiling and singing an ancient Greek lullaby as her leathery hands gripped Percy's neck. Do you still want to slap me, dear? she asked. Percy stopped midstream. He let go and dumped the goddess in the river. The moment she hit the water, she vanished and reappeared on the shore. Oh, my, she cackled. That wasn't very heroic, even in a dream. Eight months, Percy said. You stole eight months of my life for a quest that took a week. Why? Juno tutted disapprovingly. You mortals and your short lives. Eight months is nothing, my dear. I lost eight centuries once, missed most of the Byzantine Empire. Percy summoned the power of the river. It swirled around him, spinning into a froth of white water. Now, now, Juno said, don't get testy. If we are to defeat Gia, our plans must be timed perfectly. First, I needed Jason and his friends to free me from my prison. Your prison? You're in prison and they let you out? Don't sound so surprised, dear. I'm a sweet old woman. At any rate, you weren't needed at Camp Jupiter until now, to save the Romans at their moment of greatest crisis. The eight months between... Well, I do have other plans brewing, my boy. Opposing Gia, working behind Jupiter's back, protecting your friends. It's a full-time job. 
If I had to guard you from Gia's monsters and schemes as well, and keep you hidden from your friends back east all that time, no, much better you take a safe nap. You would have been a distraction. A loose cannon. A distraction. Percy felt the water rising with his anger spinning faster around him. A loose cannon. Exactly. I'm glad you understand. Percy sent a wave crashing down on the old woman, but Juno simply disappeared and materialized farther down the shore. My, she said, you are in a bad mood. But you know I'm right. Your timing here was perfect. They trust you now. You are a hero of Rome. And while you slept, Jason Grace has learned to trust the Greeks. They've had time to build the Argo, too. Together, you and Jason will unite the camps. Why me? Percy demanded. You and I never got along. Why would you want a loose cannon on your team? Because I know you, Percy Jackson. In many ways, you are impulsive, but when it comes to your friends, you are as constant as a compass needle. You are unswervingly loyal, and you inspire loyalty. You are the glue that will unite the seven. Great, Percy said. I always wanted to be glue. Juno laced her crooked fingers. The heroes of Olympus must unite. After your victory over Kronos in Manhattan, well, I fear that wounded Jupiter's self-esteem. Because I was right, Percy said, and he was wrong. The old lady shrugged. He should be used to that, after so many eons married to me. But alas... My proud and obstinate husband refuses to ask mere demigods for help again. He believes the giants can be fought without you, and Gia can be forced back to her slumbers. I know better, but you must prove yourself. Only by sailing to the ancient lands and closing the doors of death will you convince Jupiter that you are worthy of fighting side by side with the gods." It will be the greatest quest since Aeneas sailed from Troy. And if we fail, Percy said, if Romans and Greeks don't get along? Then Gia has already won. I'll tell you this, Percy Jackson. The one who will cause you the most trouble is the one closest to you, the one who hates me most. Annabeth? Percy felt his anger rising again. You never liked her. Now you're calling her a troublemaker? You don't know her at all. She's the person I most want watching my back. The goddess smiled dryly. We will see, young hero. She has a hard task ahead of her when you arrive in Rome. Whether she is up to it, I do not know. Percy summoned a fist of water and smashed it down at the old lady. When the wave receded, she was gone. The river swirled out of Percy's control. He sank into the darkness of the whirlpool. Chapter 52 Percy The next morning, Percy, Hazel, and Frank ate breakfast early, then headed into the city before the Senate was due to convene. As Percy was a preter now, he could go pretty much wherever he wanted, whenever he wanted. On the way, they passed the stables, where Tyson and Mrs. O'Leary were sleeping in. Tyson snored on a bed of hay next to the unicorns, a blissful look on his face like he was dreaming of ponies. 
Mrs. O'Leary had rolled on her back and covered her ears with her paws. On the stable roof, Ella roosted in a pile of old Roman scrolls, her head tucked under her wings. When they got to the forum, they sat by the fountains and watched the sun come up. The citizens were already busy sweeping up cupcake simulations, confetti, and party hats from last night's celebration. The engineer corps was working on a new arch that would commemorate the victory over Polybates. Hazel said she'd even heard talk of a formal triumph for the three of them, a parade around the city followed by a week of games and celebrations. But Percy knew they'd never get the chance. They didn't have time. Percy told them about his dream of Juno. Hazel frowned. The gods were busy last night. Show him, Frank. Frank reached into his coat pocket. Percy thought he might bring out his piece of firewood, but instead he produced a thin paperback book and a note on red stationery. These were on my pillow this morning. He passed them to Percy. Like the tooth fairy visited. The book was The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Percy had never heard of it, but he could guess who sent it. The letter read, Good job, kid. A real man's best weapon is his mind. This was your mom's favorite book. Give it a read. P.S. I hope your friend Percy has learned some respect for me. Wow. Percy handed back the book. Maybe Mars is different than Ares. I don't think Ares can read. Frank flipped through the pages. There's a lot in here about sacrifice, knowing the cost of war. Back in Vancouver, Mars told me I'd have to put my duty ahead of my life, or the entire war would go sideways. I thought he meant freeing Thanatos. But now, I don't know. I'm still alive, so maybe the worst is yet to come. He glanced nervously at Percy, and Percy got the feeling Frank wasn't telling him everything. He wondered if Mars had said something about him. But Percy wasn't sure he wanted to know. Besides, Frank had already given enough. He had watched his family home burn down. He'd lost his mother and his grandmother. You risked your life, Percy said. You were willing to burn up to save the quest. Mars can't expect more than that. Maybe, Frank said doubtfully. Hazel squeezed Frank's hand. They seemed more comfortable around each other this morning, not quite as nervous and awkward. Percy wondered if they'd started dating. He hoped so, but he decided it was better not to ask. Hazel, how about you? Percy asked. Any word from Pluto? She looked down. Several diamonds popped out of the ground at her feet. No, she admitted. In a way, I think he sent a message through Thanatos. My name wasn't on that list of escaped souls. It should have been. You think your dad is giving you a pass? Percy asked. Hazel shrugged. Pluto can't visit me or even talk to me without acknowledging I'm alive. Then he'd have to enforce the laws of death and have Thanatos bring me back to the underworld. I think my dad is turning a blind eye. I think... I think he wants me to find Nico. Percy glanced at the sunrise, hoping to see a warship descending from the sky. So far, nothing. We'll find your brother, Percy promised. As soon as the ship gets here... We'll sail for Rome. Hazel and Frank exchanged uneasy looks, like they'd already talked about this. Percy, Frank said. If you want us to come along, we're in. But are you sure? I mean, we know you've got tons of friends at the other camp, and you could pick anyone at Camp Jupiter now. 
If we're not part of the Seven, we'd understand. Are you kidding? Percy said. You think I'd leave my team behind? After surviving Fleecy's wheat germ, running from cannibals, and hiding under blue giant butts in Alaska? Come on. The tension broke. All three of them started cracking up. Maybe a little too much, but it was a relief to be alive, with the warm sun shining and not worrying, at least for the moment, about sinister faces appearing in the shadows of the hills. Hazel took a deep breath. The prophecy Ella gave us about the child of wisdom and the mark of Athena burning through Rome. Do you know what that's about? Percy remembered his dream. Juno had warned that Annabeth had a difficult job ahead of her and that she'd caused trouble for the quest. He couldn't believe that, but still, it worried him. I'm not sure, he admitted. I think there's more to the prophecy. Maybe Ella can remember the rest of it. Frank slipped his book into his pocket. We need to take her with us. I mean, for her own safety. If Octavian finds out Ella has the Sibylline books memorized... Percy shuddered. Octavian used prophecies to keep his power at camp. Now that Percy had taken away his chance at Praetor, Octavian would be looking for other ways to exert influence. If he got hold of Ella... You're right, Percy said. We've got to protect her. I just hope we can convince her. Percy! Tyson came running across the forum, Ella fluttering behind him with a scroll in her talons. When they reached the fountain, Ella dropped the scroll in Percy's lap. Special delivery, she said, from an aura, a wind spirit. Yes, Ella got a special delivery. Good morning, brothers. Tyson had hay in his hair and peanut butter in his teeth. The scroll is from Leo. He is funny and small. The scroll looked unremarkable, but when Percy spread it across his lap, a video recording flickered on the parchment. A kid in Greek armor grinned up at them. He had an impish face, curly black hair, and wild eyes, like he'd just had several cups of coffee. He was sitting in a dark room with timber walls like a ship's cabin. Oil lamps swung back and forth on the ceiling. Hazel stifled a scream. What? Frank asked. What's wrong? Slowly. Percy realized the curly-haired kid looked familiar, and not just from his dreams. He'd seen that face in an old photo. Hey, said the guy in the video, greetings from your friends at Camp Half-Blood, etc. This is Leo. I'm the... He looked off screen and yelled, what's my title? Am I like Admiral or Captain or... A girl's voice yelled back, repair boy. Very funny, Piper, Leo grumbled. He turned back to the parchment screen. So, yeah, I'm a supreme commander of the Argo, too. Yeah, I like that. Anyway, we're going to be sailing towards you in about, I don't know, an hour in this big mother warship. We'd appreciate it if you'd not, like, blow us out of the sky or anything. So, okay, if you could tell the Romans that. See you soon. Yours in demigodishness and all that. Peace out. The parchment turned blank. It can't be, Hazel said. What? Frank asked. You know that guy? Hazel looked like she'd seen a ghost. Percy understood why. He remembered the photo in Hazel's abandoned house in Seward. The kid on the warship looked exactly like Hazel's old boyfriend. It's Sammy Valdez. 
she said. But how? How? It can't be, Percy said. That guy's name is Leo, and it's been seventy-something years. It has to be a... He wanted to say a coincidence, but he couldn't make himself believe that. Over the past few years, he'd seen a lot of things. Destiny, prophecy, magic, monsters, fate. But he'd never yet run across a coincidence. They were interrupted by horns blowing in the distance. The senators came marching into the forum with Reyna at the lead. It's meeting time, Percy said. Come on, we've got to warn them about the warship. Why should we trust these Greeks? Octavian was saying. He'd been pacing the Senate floor for five minutes, going on and on, trying to counter what Percy had told them about Juno's plan and the prophecy of Seven. The Senate shifted restlessly, but most of them were too afraid to interrupt Octavian while he was on a roll. Meanwhile, the sun climbed in the sky, shining through the broken Senate roof and giving Octavian a natural spotlight. The Senate house was packed. Queen Hilla, Frank, and Hazel sat in the front row with the senators. Veterans and ghosts filled the back rows. Even Tyson and Ella had been allowed to sit in the back. Tyson kept waving and grinning at Percy. Percy and Reyna occupied matching Preter's chairs on the dais, which made Percy self-conscious. It wasn't easy looking dignified wearing a bedsheet and a purple cape. The camp is safe, Octavian continued. I'll be the first to congratulate our heroes for bringing back the Legion's eagle and so much imperial gold. Truly we have been blessed with good fortune. But why do more? Why tempt fate? I'm glad you asked. Percy stood, taking the question as an opening. Octavian stammered, I wasn't... Part of the quest, Percy said. Yes, I know, and you're wise to let me explain, since I was. Some of the senators snickered. Octavian had no choice but to sit down and try not to look embarrassed. Gia is waking, Percy said. We've defeated two of her giants, but that's only the beginning. The real war will take place in the old land of the gods. The quest will take us to Rome, and eventually to Greece. An uneasy ripple spread through the Senate. I know, I know, Percy said. You've always thought of the Greeks as your enemies, and there's a good reason for that. I think the gods have kept our two camps apart because whenever we meet, we fight. But that can change. It has to change if we're to defeat Gia. That's what the prophecy of seven means. Seven demigods, Greek and Roman, will have to close the doors of death together. Ha! shouted Alar from the back row. The last time a praetor tried to interpret the prophecy of seven, it was Michael Varus, who lost our eagle in Alaska. Why should we believe you now? Octavian smiled smugly. Some of his allies in the Senate began nodding and grumbling, even some of the veterans looked uncertain. I carried Juno across the Tiber, Percy reminded them, speaking as firmly as he could. She told me that the prophecy of seven is coming to pass. Mars also appeared to you in person. Do you think two of your most important gods would appear at camp if the situation wasn't serious? He's right, Gwen said from the second row. I, for one, trust Percy's word. Greek or not, he restored the honor of the Legion. You saw him on the battlefield last night. Would anyone here say he is not a true hero of Rome? Nobody argued. 
A few nodded in agreement. Raina stood. Percy watched her anxiously. Her opinion could change everything, for better or worse. You claim this is a combined quest, she said. You claim Juno intends for us to work with this... this other group, Camp Half-Blood. Yet the Greeks have been our enemies for eons. They are known for their deceptions. Maybe so, Percy said, but enemies can become friends. A week ago, would you have thought Romans and Amazons would be fighting side by side? Queen Hilla laughed. He's got a point. The demigods of Camp Half-Blood have already been working with Camp Jupiter, Percy said. We just didn't realize it. During the Titan War last summer, while you were attacking Mount Othrys, we were defending Mount Olympus in Manhattan. I fought Kronos myself. Reyna backed up, almost tripping over her toga. You... what? I know it's hard to believe, Percy said, but I think I've earned your trust. I'm on your side. Hazel and Frank, I'm sure they're meant to go with me on this quest. The other four are on their way from Camp Half-Blood right now. One of them is Jason Grace, your old preter. Oh, come on, Octavian shouted. He's making things up now. Raina frowned. It is a lot to believe. Jason is coming back with a bunch of Greek demigods? You say they're going to appear in the sky, in a heavily armed warship. But we shouldn't be worried. Yes. Percy looked over the rows of nervous, doubtful spectators. Just let them land. Hear them out. Jason will back up everything I'm telling you. I swear it on my life. On your life? Octavian looked meaningfully at the Senate. We will remember that, if this turns out to be a trick. Right on cue, a messenger rushed into the Senate house, gasping as if he'd run all the way from camp. Preeters, I'm sorry to interrupt, but our scouts report... Ship! Tyson said happily, pointing at the hole in the ceiling. Yay! Sure enough, a Greek warship appeared out of the clouds, about a half a mile away, descending toward the Senate House. As it got closer, Percy could see bronze shields glinting along the sides, billowing sails, and a familiar-looking figurehead shaped like a metal dragon. On the tallest mast, a big white flag of truce snapped in the wind. The Argo, too. It was the most incredible ship he'd ever seen. Breeders, the messenger cried. What are your orders? Octavian shot to his feet. You need to ask? His face was red with rage. He was strangling his teddy bear. The omens are horrible. This is a trick, a deception. Beware Greeks bearing gifts. He jabbed a finger at Percy. His friends are attacking in a warship. He has led them here. We must attack. No, Percy said firmly. You all raised me as Praetor for a reason. I will fight to defend this camp with my life. But these aren't enemies. I say we stand ready, but do not attack. Let them land. Let them speak. If it is a trick, then I will fight with you as I did last night. But it is not a trick. All eyes turned toward Reyna. She studied the approaching warship. 
her expression hardened. If she vetoed Percy's orders, well, he didn't know what would happen. Chaos and confusion, at the very least. Most likely, the Romans would follow her lead. She'd been their leader much longer than Percy. Hold your fire, Raina said, but have the legions stand ready. Percy Jackson is your duly chosen praetor. We will trust his word, unless we are given clear reason not to. Senators, let us adjourn to the forum and meet our new friends. The senators stampeded out of the auditorium, whether from excitement or panic, Percy wasn't sure. Tyson ran after them, yelling, Yay! Yay! with Ella fluttering around his head. Octavian gave Percy a disgusted look, then threw down his teddy bear and followed the crowd. Raina stood at Percy's shoulder. I support you, Percy, she said. I trust your judgment. But for all our sakes, I hope we can keep the peace between our campers and your Greek friends. We will, he promised. You'll see. She glanced up at the warship. Her expression turned a little wistful. You say Jason is aboard. I hope that's true. I've missed him. She marched outside, leaving Percy alone with Hazel and Frank. They're coming down right in the forum, Frank said nervously. Terminus is going to have a heart attack. Percy, Hazel said, you swore on your life. Romans take that seriously. If anything goes wrong, even by accident, Octavian is going to kill you. You know that, right? Percy smiled. He knew the stakes were high. He knew this day could go horribly wrong. But he also knew that Annabeth was on that ship. If things went right, this would be the best day of his life. He threw one arm around Hazel and one arm around Frank. Come on, he said. Let me introduce you to my other family. This is Joshua Swanson. We hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The Heroes of Olympus, Book 2, The Son of Neptune, by Rick Riordan. This program was produced by Janet Stark and directed by Fred Sanders. Text copyright 2011 by Rick Riordan. Production copyright 2011, Random House, Inc. All rights reserved. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.